Hello and welcome to the Nash Tackle Off The Hook podcast. Just to make you aware, this podcast may contain some explicit slash offensive language. And if that's not your thing, you don't have to listen. But I have given you a warning. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. You don't know the half of it, but yeah, um, I'm anyway. Yeah, I'm, good, on, mate. I'm skating on the thinnest ice known to man. Like. He said, and um, they put a poison in the tank that just instantly kills them. He went, and we've run out of it, so we cut their heads off with shovels. Suddenly, bang! The whole boat exploded. Take your sort of eight-inch-long piranha and imagine that at four, five, maybe six feet. I said, I've revived your dead fish. <laughs> F off, he said. You haven't. That was just humongous. It was... I couldn't believe what I was looking at. I'm just battling this fish out and I'm, I know it's a black man. I'm, yeah. I'm saying I'll never be a naughty boy again. If you catch fish and you return them to the water, then you are my brother. Mark Bryant, welcome to the Nash Podcast, mate. How the devil are you? I'm very well, very well. I've got a bit of a pain in my neck because I mentioned before I uh, slept a bit funny. Usually the pain in my neck is caused by my kids. But at this point, it's actually a physical injury that I've got. So uh, I thought you were going to say me then, pestering you to get you on a podcast. No, mate. That's mate, the no I know it's been a long time coming, but trying to get everything aligned and, oh, mate, I apologise because we probably should have sat down mate, maybe, maybe a year silly. ago. Yeah, You're yeah. an incredibly busy man. And one thing, you have an incredible spectrum of carp angling knowledge, experience and practicality, mate. There's bait in this, there's fish rearing, there's fishing itself and lakes plus loads more, mate. So thank you very much. I'm very much looking forward to sitting down and chatting through it all with you, mate. Oh, pleasure. What have you been up to recently? Oh, recently we've had a few family little holidays or getaways down to the coast and that. So that's been that's been nice. So um, spending time, luckily, sort of time the weather just about right. But uh, <laughs> this week. it's been <laughs> it's well, right, this yeah. week's been okay. I had my uh, little girl's birthday uh, party yesterday, so birthday tomorrow. But we had the birthday yesterday, so I've been sort of busy with that. But yeah, just all all full on really with um, the bait business as well this time of year, particularly because of the weather we've had. It's bit you know we haven't had that really sustained long hot spell where high pressure was dominant. So we've had lots of that you know, low pressure come in, lots of rain, as we all know. And there's been loads of fish being caught. So I've been, you know, and that means for me as a bait maker, I'm massively busy. I've got to get product out the door to customers, constantly chasing your town. It's been, it's been a really, really good year for that. But it just means that, you know, it, my, my time gets cut in half uh, for fishing and that because you're trying to divide it between family, business, fish, X, Y, and Z, like, you know, so, but no, it's been, it's been good, mate. Yeah, but you have done some fishing or not? Have you had the I, summer off? I, no, no, I have done. Um, so, I can pinch usually because of where I live, which is essentially on the Cotswold Water Park. Then, you know, I'm very fortunate. I've got a lot of lakes close, close to me and around. I'm always buzzing around those lakes, dropping some bait into them for from a, some fish grown in stock ponds and that. So I'm always around that area. Um, and I found that over the last sort of year or two, then sort of more the the opportunist style angling can you know yield some really good results for be that float of fishing or fishing in the edge. So. I'll try and finish, I'll try and finish work. You know, I could finish work at, don't tell the missus this, but I'll, I'll finish work. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I hope she won't listen to this, but I'll finish work maybe at three o'clock. And I know I've got two hours until I've got to pick the kids up or the kids are home and I can't push it too much. I've got to be home. Yeah. You know, so if, as long as I'm home between five and half past, that's fine. So I've got a two and a half, two and a half hour window. Um, and of course at two and a half hours on the Cotswold Water Park, you want to be in, you know, 
if there's a southwesterly blow and you want to be in the corner of all those lakes, uh, you know, there's a hundred lakes there, over a hundred lakes. So you want to be everywhere, don't you? But I'm usually bombing around and sometimes you can find an opportunity and make something very happen very, very quickly. So that's sort of been sort of my style of angling. Um, this year, because I've got a young kid, he's only, uh, River's only two or just two. Um, Darcy's six tomorrow. Um, and they take up a big, you know, a huge lot of time, particularly you know, for my missus as well. She's, um, she looks after them and for me, me to go off and do fishing for a week or a weekend after a week of work when she's had the kids all week, it's just not the one. So I've got to, you know, try and tread carefully, um, but try and get my fishing fixed. And I can do that in a, in a two hour sort of spell. So, but the key is obviously keeping areas primed with bait as well as just obviously going on whatever weather's going on, right? Yeah, that can un- that can unlock the door absolutely mm. on any lake you know, across the country. If you're slipping bait into an area when the conditions are right, or if you've if you've done it for long enough, you're going you can catch a fish. You, you can turn up and you look like a hero because you can drop a bait in and have one within five minutes. And that is and always will be, you know, a great way of angling. So I do I do a lot of that. And I, I tried to do it on some of the waters. If there's other anglers there, I can't do it because I don't want to bait up while they're there. So you got to sort of nip and tuck and sort of pick your pick your time. So trying to do that. So uh, so yeah, that's been sort of the essence of my fishing largely this this year. Uh, I nearly had the best session ever about three weeks ago. Nearly the best. Nearly. This is nearly. So this is just how it sort of how it goes. We we'd had all that rain and we had sort of that a day where it was like it was warm, really muggy, but there was not a breath of wind. And all the fish pretty much crossed the water park, all popped up to the surface and they were just there. You know what I mean? I just, those days for float fish, you know, just, they're rare, but when they happen, you can, you can, you can have a bumper session. So I finished about three o'clock from work, went over to one of the lakes I run actually, because there's a, some, there's some big fish in there. Um, and I know they're susceptible for a floater. So I thought well, my best chance of a, of a floater for a caught carp would be there. So I went over there <laughs> Went up, uh, just walked up the banks into one of the swims, some back backs out of the water, and I thought this is game on. Packs full of mixers, and they started taking floaters straight away. And there was one fish at the back which was just bigger than anything. I couldn't see, you know, when you get that sort of silver water, yeah, and you can't it's see, hard, yeah. it's hard. You but you, I could see the shoulders, and I said, well, there's definitely a bigger fish at the back. Um, so I got them feeding on on a mixers, and I literally had my rod, and I I didn't even cast out, just waiting for that opportune moment where it's either separated from the pack or it's it's taken a line, you can get a bait to it, and a free line floater, which is one of my most favourite rigs ever. Yeah, you know I love rigs. You know I love yeah rigs yeah we're going to talk all, rigs. All bits and pieces, but it doesn't get more simpler than a free line floater. You know with super glued to the back of the hook, and you sort of I whip that out, and I can get it a fair distance, so I refine the tackle to do so, so I can get it out. You know good. 20 yards maybe sometimes on a yeah. good cast with the wind behind me and all that um in front of this fish hook this carp biggest one there and i think that's a good one and it's gone off and uh so i'm playing it playing it sort of five five minutes on like tackle 10 pound hook links you know all that sort of mm. stuff there's a bit of weed about it, but nothing that sort of would worry me until it found a weed bed that i couldn't see went straight through it played through it and i've brought it all the way back to the bank trying to get the net in some sort of position, but the fish had actually, it was behind, although there's nothing on the line, apart from obviously it's a free line, but the, the, the weed was like quite heavy up towards the head end. The fish was out the back of it. And cause it was silt weed, it's all knotted and that. And I was like, this is a nightmare. Yeah. So I, the only thing I could do is put the rod down and hand line and just rip the weed off with one hand. So I'm ripping the weed off as fast as I can. And I can see the, 
the pop-up, which is rare because it usually comes off on the fight, but it was glued and it was just hooked on the edge of the mouth there. I'm thinking, oh, it's, oh. You know, I can see, see, it, yeah. see the hook and everything. I'm thinking, right, okay. So I'm, the hook hold I thought was good. So I'm pulling all the weed off and then now playing it. I think, right, it's nearly ready for the net. It's then played back down on the 10-pound hook link. I've got, well, a 10-pound main, I've got to let it go. It's gone through the same weed bed, picked up another bit of weed. And then this time it's come up and it's same sort of thing happened. I put the rod down to get the reed away because there's a bit of siltweed on the bottom, which is knotted on the line almost. Um, and the fish is behind it. But now as it's come up, it's coming up and I can see it's, I think, what's happened? I thought, oh, the line's caught around the, uh, one of the pecks or yeah. the fins. And I think, oh, that's a weird. So I mean, I've got it up. I've got it in the net, bundled it in the net, lifted it up. And what had happened is the hook had come out of the fish's mouth and gone straight back into the side of the carp. No. And I'm like, oh, I'm gutted. So I've looked here and I'm like, wow. And I'd usually, I just unhook it and put it back. But I thought, yeah. I know what fish it is. It's actually one that I introduced as an egg years ago, um, or grown from an egg years ago. So I had some affinity with it. I knew exactly what fish has been in my tank and it's gone through the stages. That's and, amazing. And it's gone in. So, um, and I thought that's got to be close to 40 pounds. It's massive, you know? So it's last out at sort of 36 or 37. So I thought, Do you know, I'm going to weigh it. I'm just going to weigh it. And just for me and curiosity, and I weighed it and it was 39.12. It would have been a personal best off the top. So I'm trying to catch a, a 40 pound off. So I've got a lot of 30s off the top, but not a 40 pounder. Um, so it's hooked right in the belly as well, like just in a weird place. I could see the fresh marks. So I knew it was in the mouth, yeah. but I was, I was like, uh, it just didn't feel right to photograph it. No, of course. So I hooked it and slipped it back. In that time, another angler's come round and I just explained what happened. I said, oh yeah, it's, obviously it's in the, in the belly. He said, yeah, but you hooked it in the mouth though. So and it was a sort of a, a dodgy gray area. gray area. And I thought, well, do you know what? Yeah, it was in the mouth, but it just didn't feel right. So I thought, I'm going to put it back. So I, I put it back. It swam off. I then went at the top end of the lake um, and there's a big common in, in the lake, which is the lake record, record, and that's like an upper 40. And so repeated the process, found some fish, still reeling from the chance yeah. down in the other, the other end of the lake. Um, this is all within like half an hour, 20 minutes. Went at the top end of the lake and uh, got the big common coming up feeding, Pac-Man in them. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. So get same process. And I reckon I've had the bait in the water again, second. So the fish down, it was seconds and it took the bait. And I know... I put the rod back in for this common. That's seconds, and it's on the same line. That's how quick and yeah. fun it can be. And it's took the bait, gone down, baits disappeared. I've struck, and so, I don't know how I've done it, but I've struck it, and it's come out the fish's mouth. So wherever it is, like it's turned and faced me. I don't know, but it's I haven't hooked it. It's then gone off and, and never returned. Yeah. Um, oh my god. Mate. Yeah, I know. And it literally, so after that, I went to another swim. Um, and uh, hooked one of the levers in the lake, which is about a 25 pound fish, lovely fish. Uh, saw that take the bait, knew which fish it was, went for the weed and had a hook ball. Then went oh, home. So went what? home. And this was like, this was like probably total 40 minutes from turning up a lake, went over the tail between my legs. Could have been the best floater session ever. Turned out to be the worst one. <laughs> that is a roller coaster of a 40 oh, minutes, mate. mate. But that's what it's like. So I love that. The adrenaline of, of that style of fishing. I love that. That's, you know, and I and I love you know I love doing a night and waking up you know with a cup of tea in the hand watching the mystery. I love all that as well, but I can't do that at the moment, or I can't justify. I feel incredibly guilty if I yes. allow myself to do that. Uh, I used to feel guilty with my bait company if I took time off because I just wanted to produce and 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 get the bait out to customers as quickly as possible. And if I'm fishing for two or three days, that doesn't happen. Mm. So I, I've always felt incredibly guilty, and that's taken over now with kids because I know how. Oh, you know how hard they are sometimes, and some week the missus just all she wants is a break, and I can't justify really going 
and doing that. So I can empathise with that massively, like that yeah. feeling of guilt. But I'd also think there's a feeling of like, I don't know if it's missing out. You think when they're young, especially when you know, they're the very similar ages. My eldest yeah. is six. My youngest is nearly two, just like yours. I've got one in the middle. But you... you, you you sort of feel that you're missing on that sort of those early years and that time because yeah. let's face it, when they get to 14, they ain't going to want to know no, what they are. That's very, yeah, that's very true. So there, there's that as well. So I just, it's a funny time for me at, at the moment with time yeah. where I dedicate my time, but I'm still getting my fishing fixes because I suppose I've orchestrated my life to surround myself with fishing lakes uh, and managing fishing lakes, um, growing fish. So I'm always about, do you know what I mean? Like I sometimes get that fishing fix from feeding fish or watching fish. Um, I get a phone call to go and photograph fish for friends all the time. And I, and I love all that. And that's my whole life is saturated with fishing yeah. in many forms and the actual fishing part of it. Don't get me wrong. I still love it. And I'm, I've got targets I want to achieve and I want to go and target some fish, but I, I've got to be realistic with my time because I know that some of those targets are, the energy and, and time required to go and do that and execute it is going to take away time somewhere else. And I haven't in my life at the moment, I've got to be, I just got to be a bit careful. I with think that. that's sensible, mate. It sounds like you struck a balance whereby you are still getting your fix. Yes. They're little intense bouts. And yeah. to be fair, it's a point that a lot of people, if they have got local waters, they can, they can mimic the same thing. They can introduce bait and they can go and get two or three hours, which everybody can manage in a day, whether that be going to the yeah. gym. Or, you know what I mean? You can find time. little periods. Yeah. I often find um, some of my, until I had to do the bloody school run, this is, oh, which, is, which killed it. So I, got, so I do the school run with a little girl and obviously River's now getting to the age where he's going to nursery and everything. So I've got to sort of do that as well. But, <laughs> but there was a couple of little spells, particularly in the spring where I said to the missus, like, the month of sort of April and May, I'm going to be, I'm going to go, well, I'll be going, this is, this is why I'll put the kids down at night. That's all fine. But then at four in the morning, I'm going out fishing and I'll then, I'll be back then, go come in, go shoot off to work. But I'm going to be in and out, you know, be very quick. So those little four hour periods yeah. are golden, aren't they? In that, yeah, that yeah. time of year that, you know, I, I, you look at the calendar of the year and how it progresses. And you look how many captures come between four and nine o'clock in the morning. It's a huge, huge number. And particularly some lakes are really localized. So mm. in, in that period, particularly in the spring. Um, so you think, well, let's capitalize on that. Let's turn up at four in the morning with a couple of rods, no, no fixed abode. I'm just going to wander around with PVA bags or zigs or, or floaters or whatever it dictates. And I'm going to get my fix and fish for four hours. Then I'm going to go to work. And that's, that's what I've sort of been doing more recently. And that has been really exciting because you turn up, break a dawn, watch all the miss rolls. You're getting all that. You're tiptoeing around anglers. Some anglers are still asleep, but then you're seeing a show, two shows, as long as it isn't encroaching on anyone, you're in there and you're flicking rods out and you're fishing and you're getting mm. that fix. So I'm just having to adapt the way I fish so it works for everybody, you know, family, family and everything. I love it, mate. That's, yeah, that's quality. Your fishing journey, it's certainly been... Well, extensive, mate. There's some incredible captures. We're going to talk about a few choice chapters within amongst that, as well as a lot of talk about rigs, because I've always known you and you've always been synonymous in my head around sort of being a little bit outside the box with regards to, to rigs, tactics, mechanics, things like that. Yeah. But it's fair to say we've got something in common outside of fishing, which is sport, mate. And that, that's been a key... I was quite shocked to discover it because I didn't know anything about it, but a choice call to your partner in crime and co-podcast host, Mr. Holly. Oh, Mr. Holly. And he, yeah, yeah. he informed me that you 
in amongst your fishing, also balanced a, a pretty healthy, successful footballing career, mate. Is that right? Um, yeah, yeah. It's fair to say I um, I played football all, all my life, and I've always I've played like semi professional. Um, always trying to get the goal of playing professional football, and that took me, you know, to other countries. And in this country, I sort of played at a very good level. Sort of Bath City, I played over in Wales, Aberystwyth, and that. So I always had um, uh, my football career and a job alongside it, and then obviously juggling sort of fishing around that as well. So, so yeah, I've always uh, I've always strived to try and you know, play the highest level I can, and that's it took me some lovely places. You're a keeper as well, mate. I'm a goalkeeper, yeah. Unfortunately for me, um, I'm a goalkeeper who's five foot nine. Oi, there ain't nothing wrong with five no, foot nine, no, mate. No, no, never in any other industry. That's why I went into the bait industry. There's no, there's no bar to entry. There's no height limit. <laughs> but as a goalkeeper um, like myself growing up and trying to um, ply my trade in the, I suppose, the 90s, you know, is that the boom of, a lot of big goalkeepers coming over from Europe, like your Schmeichel, Van der Sars and all you know, huge guys. And, yeah. and, and a five foot nine goalkeeper at the time, you know, um, probably still get overlooked now a little bit because, you know, I was tiny and I didn't really develop and grow until I was um, sort of 17, 18. And, and that wasn't a huge amount, you know, as a, as a, as a youngster, sort of 12, 13, as a goalkeeper, I was like five foot three. Um, and I was training with lots of um, like Bristol city, Bristol Rovers, um, and they, they really, you know, my technique and they love me in terms of my ability. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's always a big question mark over my height. And um, it's really, it's been a, you know, a, a story of rejection from an early age for myself at, at pro clubs um, for that, for that very reason, which was, you know, hugely sort of uh, emotionally sort of upsetting for myself, but it, it's given me some sort of resilience, you know, to keep on pushing them and belief as well. Um, so a lot of the clubs I was at, like Bristol Rovers, Bristol City, the, the, the guys that got taken on as YTs back then mm. and pros and that, they just, they, they, they couldn't match me in my, in their abilities, my shot stopping and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's just, I, I was just scratching my head thinking, but I always knew in the back of my mind, it was, it was going to be a height issue. So, and that's really been, you know, I've always fought against that in all the times and, and what's got me to some of the clubs, I suppose, that I've played for. And we're not talking professional here. It's like all the you know, semi-pro clubs and went over to America. So um, what's got me there is my ability and, and shot stopping and stuff like that. And it's just yeah, your technical ability, technical ability rather than exactly. just physical sort of size. Yeah. And I just, I just trained, I just went all in on that from an early age, just trained, trained, trained and just focused and, and zoned, zoned right into into football and that's um you know you work hard and put hours into anything and you you get better at it, I suppose. What was America like? You went over there you, was it a scholarship some sort of it was a scholarship, yeah. yeah. So I was playing over uh, in this country, semi professional again, um earning earning some money, had a job around that. And then the um the World Cup was over in uh, America, which sort of spiked my interest. And uh they had uh, uh obviously very successful World Cup over there. Then after that, um some of the some of the scouts and clubs and um, colleges and universities they scout from yeah, yeah. from England and they they um, my dad knew um, a guy over there doing some coaching um, and I expressed an interest as I just I knew sort of in in this country um, potentially as a goalkeeper then because of all these huge goalkeepers over here and I'd had like you know five six years of rejection and I was thinking do you know what in America it's a new league starting up the MLS and I'd, I'd start only been in. Uh, the MLS 
um, there was leagues prior to the MLS, but the MLS had started up a few years prior. And I just thought, you know what, no one could be a fresh start over there. And uh, um, they had um, Jurgen Campos over there, who was, he was five foot 10, I think. Tiny Mexican goal. Do you remember him? Yeah, I do remember Or was you like war flamboyant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was in the World Cup, wasn't he? He was in the World Cup. He used to run out and play a striker as well for them. Like really talented guy, but he was small, yeah. tiny, but they loved him over there. And I'm thinking, yeah, if I can get over there, I'm small, but you know, they... He's already there playing. Get me a flashy top. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Yo, I have actually. I sort of mirrored. I had to be, um, be loud in my colours because I was so small. So I was You kn- kept the shorts, mate. I, know, I kept everything. I was yeah, a Jurgen Campos. Um, so uh, if I wore black and that would look tiny. So I, I'd right. wear bright colours all over there as well to sort of mimic sort of my, my hero back then. So uh, I inquired about it and uh, there was a guy over there coaching who basically... Um, put me in contact with different colleges, universities, and, and a college um, looked at me. Um, they had a guy who they, a mutual friend who they knew, he came and watched all my games and gave me the thumbs up to this college. And they offered me a full scholarship to go over there. And I was like, wow. So I literally packed my bags in Boston. This was packed my bags, bags, said goodbye to my mum and dad, and just went straight over to a, hopped on a plane and went to America, which was Poor. just a mate, just amazing experience. Absolutely amazing so yeah dropped everything and went over there america for four years any fishing in that time yeah a little bit actually yeah yeah a little bit um so actually worked quite well for fishing because you'd have um you'd be over there like college system you'd have like a a season playing football and then you'd be home for christmas be home for sort of some some parts of the spring so you had a little block so i'd come back and do a bit but over uh in america you had lots of the river systems like st lawrence i wasn't a million miles away from I was up in Boston. You had the Hudson and you had the uh, Merrimack up in New Hampshire. Um, met up with um, a couple of guys um, who'd fished over there. We were like part of the Carp Society in America. Yes. And they took me out and showed me a couple of places. Um, so, yeah, I went out and we caught fish up to up to um, just under 30 pounds, which was amazing. And the way they catch them, <laughs> the way they catch them, they was fishing these big rivers, huge rivers, like, and there's you know, big flow going through them. We were beyond this massive drawbridge that goes across and um, and I'm looking down and, and we're probably 40 foot up, I'd say 40, 50 foot up at a, quite a distance. And I'm looking down and I can't see the carp or anything. He goes, Oh no, we fish them here. And I'm like, how the hell are you, how do you land these fish? Oh, we've got these drop nets. Yeah. So they have drop net, like a big sea, like you do off the net. rocks. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So he put the rods out, drop them down on maize or sweet corn. And then uh, he put them up. He got these cars whizzing past. I've got a photo <laughs> to have, be on there with a couple of fish. You've got cars whizzing past you. Um, and literally you would just watch, stand back away from the road and you watch the tips and then they tie plastic, uh, white plastic to the tips. And basically when the tips bounce in, they see the white plastic go and all they tie it to line and see, see it going down. Cause you're it's so noisy. You, there's no buzzers or anything. You're just watching, watching the rods <laughs> waiting for this bit of tape to go out. Um, and as soon as it go out, you pick your fish up and the other guy then puts a drop net down, you plan it. And it's quite an art, obviously in the flow to get it all in the right position, but the fish are, beat you know they're up on the on the side like that not not doing anything and the net goes under and they up they go shimmy them up and then get them well it's it's quite an effective method really but it's amazing yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it's novel isn't it you're not doing that back in the uk very often no no you're not so uh so that was great you know so i've done a little bit of fishing up there on some of the some of the rivers and then after uh two years at college there i got um i've done done quite well and i was they they used they have a, a team which they call the All American Team, right? Which is um, 
you don't actually go and play and do anything, but they basically, they pick a team from the, the colleges, which they think represent their, you know, it's like an accolade. You get like a, a sweatshirt, a jumper and a certificate and all that sort of stuff. And a ring as well. You get a ring. A ring? A you, ring. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, but I, I've bloody lost it. So I can't, I don't know where it is, but you get an all American thing. Anyway, certificates and all that. And it's basically um, an acknowledgement of, of how well you've done. I've done really well at college level and, and play, went to the national championships, got to the semifinals and all, and all that. So, I, I done well. And off the back of that, I got recruited to go to a university, which is just a division one, they call it a division one university, which is a big university where sports is like massive, huge. So I had options to go to a, f- a few different colleges and universities in division one, um, picked one, uh, which is called the road university of Rhode Island, um, largely because they had a really good soccer scholarship soccer. program. Um, it's, uh, Rhode Island is a small little state and it's a little peninsula. It's between Boston and New York. It's a little yeah. peninsula that comes out surrounded by water. So on the sea, just, just a lovely way. My friend, a, Trent, um, a guy, uh, an Irish guy had gone there a year before me, he graduated and he, he went, that's uh, not graduated. He got recruited. He went down there a year before me and he lived down there in the beach house. And I used to send me pictures and that. And it's just, it's just a lovely way of living. Just absolutely beautiful. So I thought, right, they've got a good soccer program. It's on the beach. It's like, got everything there. It's, it's lovely. So I transferred for the uh, next two years um, to Rhode Island um, and played university and then played in division one university football, which is uh, just the way that it's all structured. There is amazing. Cause prior to that, I was so focused on football in school, you know, from, from literally like nine, 10, I was so focused. That was what I was going to do. I, I, I didn't have no interest in education. I've been educated, yes, but I had no interest in it. So I come out of school with nothing, absolutely nothing. I said, a C in pottery and a C in art. Everything else was E's and D's and F's. You were the only person I know who's got a pottery. I know. It's, it's a, it was a, luckily, <laughs> luckily for me. Go on the boy. Yeah. So, you know, coming out of school, but I know my mum and dad were concerned because I had, I had nothing, no qualifications. I pinned all my dreams on football, everything. It was like, shit will bust. If it doesn't happen... I'm, I'm struggling. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so education for me just was, you know, uh, I, I never had a, I don't want to say a great experience, but I just, it was my own fault. I was just so driven and focused on playing football. That was it. Nothing else came into my life. And I, I've, I've been very much like that through my life. But once I focus on something, that's it. It's yeah. Just, I tunnel vision. I'm, you know, it's been a, a trait, a good and bad trait for me, but it's good in business, I suppose, or anything you set your mind to because you, you're very focused and you execute and you do everything, anything you, you sacrifice and you're a bit selfish and you make sure it happens. So from, um, uh, from university uh, and, and the system is there is amazing. You, you, the education goes parallel with the football. Mm. If I haven't, if I don't have a C average in all my classes, I don't play football. And suddenly that was the light bulb moment yeah. for me. I was like, right, I've got to, it's education is, is, is will affect my football. Cause I was still chasing the dream of going through the collegiate system and playing professional football at the end of it, but I have to get an education with it. And, and I was a bit old and a, a little bit more, I say a little bit mature, mature where only just, um, yeah, that, that becomes sort of my focus is the education as well. And I had to take, you know, it gave me a really good grounding because I had to take chemistry, uh, or go into chemistry where a lot of the the American kids have already done chemistry at high school. I, I was coming in, I had no experience of chemistry, but they already had a grounding. So they were coming in at a good level mm. and the courses reflected that. So I was coming into a course and I was lost. So the good thing about 
um, the athletes is uh, they invest lots of money into the athletes and they give you a full scholarship, but they want you to succeed and be successful for their university. So I had, they give me a tutor, you know, you have to pay for, and I had a tutor every other night for chemistry to, 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 you know, to, to learn and to get me through the course to keep my C average. Otherwise I won't be playing. So it's a, yeah. so it's a great system for some money in that system, isn't there? It's amazing. Like, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we was talking about the, um, the foot, the American football, take American football, basketball, you know, the American football, um, college games, they're attracting like 50, 60,000 people, you know, and uh, same with the basketball as well. You know, the, the stadium's 30,000 people. Um, and there's a lot you know, that for kids coming into sport, that system is just, just such a well thought out and just a great system because they're coming, going to high school from high school, the natural progression is to go to college mm. or university, college, university in America, that's sort of the same thing. Um, go through that system. And then off the back of that, if you're good enough, you get picked up by the pro leagues in the draft. So American football and, and you know, baseball, basketball, tennis, golf, you name it. They, you know, yep. You're then going off after that. So it gives you such good grounding. It gives you the education that is, you know, you might miss in this country if you go to a pro club and get spat out at sort of 18, 19 or, or don't make it. So you get a grounder, but you also get the, you get used to playing and training as a professional athlete because you're training every single day You've got your classes in the morning and in the afternoon, you're out playing soccer or whatever sport it is for four or five hours. Um, and then you're, you're traveling around America. They fly on you everywhere to hotels, to, to play tournaments or to play against teams. Cause it's, you can't drive anywhere in America. It's so big yeah, it's and massive. vast. So our conference would be the East. So we'd be all over the East of America. And then we'd sometimes we'd go to Seattle or California to play a tournament for a weekend and play Ooh. like three games or whatever. So you go over there and you put up. So it's, just an amazing experience to have that and then after that if you get picked up by professional teams you're a much more rounded person for yeah. having that experience um and you've got an education so if it doesn't work out with the pros and you don't get picked up or or whatever you've got an education to fall back on and it just for me it's just a real healthy environment but the yeah the way it's all set out for me was just a you know a dream and it, I, I thrived in that environment of training and 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 obviously the education had to come with it which which you know helped helped me now running the business it seems a lot more glamorous than the old plough cow field in Aberystwyth or wherever else you're playing, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I played in Wales for <laughs> for a year and that was great, you know, that was uh, that was really really good but um yeah the uh the you know the college thing is is just what what an amazing experience and for me being over there, I helped open the door for other friends as well, yeah. which is lovely. So there was another goalkeeper who was um, my height, actually, a guy called Chris Hamblin. And so I come back after a year of being over America and I'm buzzing with, I'm telling him, I'm saying, this is amazing, mate. You want to get over get that? Over that. And he was like, oh, it sounds really good. Like, you know, and he, he only lived up the road for me. Um, so we used to train together in a little bit and, and, and all that. so I knew him really well. Um, and there was a college called, uh, uh Boston college, which is a, a huge college, you know, in, in, and you got in Boston, you got two college, you got a college university, Boston college, um, Boston university, BU and BC. Anyway, BC, Boston college were looking for, um, a goalkeeper. They, they was looking at me actually as well, but I was heart set was on Rhode Island anyway. Mm. Um, and I, I sort of put the coaches in contact with Chris Hamlin. I said, oh, I've got this guy at home. And he was playing a good level. He's playing semi-professional, really good level, really good goalkeeper, really technically really good, but obviously my height as well. So yeah, that kind the of physical thing again. Yeah, yeah. So the physical thing did come into it, but in America, they were a lot more 
bit more relaxed about all that because there's goalkeepers from the scholarships and that is goalkeepers from Mexico, from everywhere. And, you know, the, the height wasn't really that much of an issue. Um, so he managed to get a full scholarship at Boston College. So he came over and he, he sp- and he's still there now. He's now, he's done no really well. So he, he went through the collegial sort of system. Um, he played um, uh, professional, it was like Division 2 under the MLS. He had this um, Division 2 and he played for the Boston Bulldogs. Steve Nichol was the um, Boston, Boston Bulldogs. Bulldogs. Yeah, some funny names over there. Go on, America. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he had, uh, um, Steve Nichol was the manager, Liverpool yeah, legend. legend. Um, and he, uh, he played with them for a year, but then went into coaching. And he's coaching, he's done brilliantly well at coaching and he's now the men's head coach at Harvard University. Oh, sorry, the women's head coach at Harvard University. And he's just living, he's got a family over there. He's got he's got two boys, two girls. Um, but he's just just having a lovely, he stayed, he stayed there and yeah, he's, he's made a lovely life. life for himself. Yeah. Um, so he's, uh, yeah, he's having a great time. So uh, he's, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's good fun, Chris. We, we got into some trouble over there. We have me and him. <laughs> so, yeah? Oh, well, Brits abroad trouble. Oh, gee. Yeah, I don't want to get myself. No, I can't get myself in trouble. I didn't have any misses at the time or whatever. But we used to get, so the the, the parties over there. Outrageous. Just outrageous. So it's all, because the drinking age is 21. So you imagine all the people coming in, freshmen and sophomore, they're not 21 until they're usually their junior year. So there's loads of house parties, like just party. The house parties are just absolutely biblical. We had some amazing ones down in Rhode Island. We had, um, so our house, we had, um, I'll come on to the story about Chris, but we had a house down in Rhode Island, which was a beach house. Uh, the beach, it's called a beach house, but it was probably about, I don't know, 500 yards, 600 yards from the beach. So beach is there. Um, so we rented it. So basically what happens is you go over there, you get like, um, uh, on your scholarship, you get money towards your um, rents. They, they basically cover it, but you yeah, get like yeah. a check for, couple of grand, three grand, and that's your accommodation. You can either choose to live on campus or live down in the beach houses. And there's loads of, all the, it's all college kids down the beach houses. And that. So we, we want to be down there. You don't want to be on in campus. Yeah, of course. I, I went to college when I, in Boston, the little campus, you're in little rooms, you know, probably the size of this with two people. It's a bit claustrophobic. It's good fun, but you have a few, you know, good laugh and that. But I want to be down in the beach house next to all the bars and all that. Yeah. So we've, uh, so then you, you have to um, find a beach house. So this lovely old lady was uh, uh, renting out her house, a beach house and that. And basically you know, everyone, all the students are in competition trying to get these houses. And this is, this is one we really wanted. So it was me. Um, there was a, an Irish guy with me called Gareth. He's now the head coach of Rhode Island, that particular college. So he's, he stayed there. Um, a Portuguese guy and uh, a guy called Peos, who's um, Swedish. So he had a real, real mix real mix of nationalities. Um, so me and the Innes Irish guys done the negotiations with this woman and she was like really hell bent on, oh, you need to look after this house, my pride and joy. And I, I said, oh yeah, look, we're, we're athletes. We're so focused on football. What are we going to do? You know, we just, it's a base for us. We sleep and everything, but we're training every day. So yeah, we don't want no noise and all that. You know, sold her this, because it's a lovely house. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. So she gave us, obviously the rights to sign the contracts and that, pay the money and everything. We was in there like, you know, and this house was, it's just beautiful, the big wooden house, like massive. It was like, how many bedrooms was it? There was one, there was like a five bed house, um, big, big veranda at the top that looked like you could just about see the sea through the houses, big grassy area, which we thought happy days, that's for parties and all that. Yeah. And we used to throw, and then as soon as we, 
So in the football season, yeah, we, we, we're, we're a bit more sensible, but then at a season, which is all through the winter and all that, we're just training then you're training every day for the next season, but we're like partying hard. Yeah. yeah we are yeah, literally yeah. like we're buying. So there's pubs down the road. The, the guy who owns the pub is an ex um, soccer athlete from Rhode Island, American guy. So a little pub called oh, Charlie O's. Yeah, yeah. So he was right on side. Yeah, mate, you want to buy any kegs of us? So we used to buy kegs of beer off him, bring them into our gardens. Um, I would put them in big dustbins and full of ice. So we'd dig them into the ground. You'd dig them into the ground and put loads of ice around so they yeah, stay yeah. cold. Yeah. And then you've got a tap that comes out. And then basically we'd invite loads of people and then it, that would just grow. This is before social media. And this would just grow and grow and grow through word of mouth. And then you'd get like 300 people turn up Jesus. at your ice party, like, you know. So we then all charge them like $4 a cup. Uh, so you $4, you'd get a little stamp on your little cross on your hand or whatever the stamp is. And then we'd give them a cup and then you can go and drink from the keg. So then you get a massive queue. You get like five, six kegs in there, all drinking. Music up, like full blast oh, and mate, that. sounds mega. It was crazy. Just, just yeah, the best time. Just really real, real fun. Um, loads of drink and yeah, the house was like Boeing where it was all wooden at the top. You get like hundred people upstairs yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything was, the music was on and, and the whole house, you could see everything, all the foundations and that and all the beams, everything was bouncing. So yeah, we gave that house back in a, in a very sorry state, unfortunately, <laughs> but you know, uh, at the end of it, I was leaving the country anyway. So yeah. You ain't going to get caught. Yeah. Yeah. So these parties, you know, that's synonymous with American yeah, definitely. You know, American party. Look at all that. And that's a huge thing over in America, all these house parties. Because of the the age, you can't, it's really hard to get into the bars unless you've got fake IDs because they're really stringent on it, you know? And even yeah. if you look 30, 40 years old, you get, you, you get checked. You just you get checked. If you don't got ID, you're not getting in. I, actually, I used to have to take my passport out because I didn't have an American driver's license. I'd take my passport everywhere with me and show that. And even then they'd look at the passport and because it's not their traditional driver's license, they would... I say, mate, it's a passport. You can't get better than that. It's, that's a passport. It's genuine, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Forget the bars, get to the Baitworks house party, boys. Oh, they were epic. <laughs> but yeah, me, so I, I used to go up to Boston College quite a bit because I'm yeah. still friends there. And we used to, I met up with Chris and we used, to, we used to go out in Boston College. And that was just same sort of setup. Loads of houses outside the college, which was all full of students. But inside the college, which is a big area, they'd have the place called the Quads, which was loads of little houses, purposely obviously built for the students. And it's all student, but inside the actual college itself. Right. And they're all like very uniform on a block. You know, there's like six houses there, six houses there, bang, 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 bang. And it's just a notorious area. There's always parties going on there like, all the time. And, you know, the, I don't know how many people are in that college, but there's thousands of houses, thousands. So you, you, you go to parties and you meet different people every single time. You never see the same face twice. It's just, just it's mind blowing how many people are there. So all these quads, people have these parties and you just literally turn up. You don't know who they don't, you don't know them, but you turn up and they give you a cross in your arm. We'd go in with a cup and you start drinking and away you go. So me and Chris, we went out a few times and we'd go on like proper benders. Like this is in the off season. Like Obviously. Proper benders. We'd go out on them. <laughs> And uh, so the Boston Marathon is a huge, yes. drink, huge drinking yeah. day. So you get any of the, like Halloween, a- any of those days, you know, are just massive drinking days on university campuses. On a Thursday, they call it Thursday Thursday. So <laughs> Thursday night, any of the bars around, uh, around university campuses, and that, they're full up with students drinking and just having parties. It's just synonymous, these little events. But the Boston Marathon is, um, is marked in the diary every single year. Uh, 
and I, we never see the marathon, but it basically goes round. It comes skirts round Boston College uh, and the university campus, and the college yeah, and the yeah. campus, and it comes through Commonwealth Commonwealth Ave, which is a big long road that goes into the centre of Boston. And either side of that is loads of these huge townhouses, like three, four floors, massive. And in there, there's loads of students. They all have house parties. They all got these parties and that. So we we are basically drinking in all those house parties all day drinking not great beer like Bud Light, you know, and all that. Yeah, Miller, yeah, yeah. You know, Miller. Miller yeah, and yeah. all that. But drinking lots and lots. So we're absolutely half cut. We've then gone back to Boston College um, to these quads. And it's, by that time, it was just me and uh, me and Chris. I had another friend who came over, another scholarship with me, uh, James Ellis, and he, he stayed over there. Um, but he wasn't out. I don't know why, where he was on that particular day. He doesn't usually miss it. But anyway, he wasn't there. We then got back to the quads and we're like so, so pissed. And we've gone into um, these parties. We've gone to one, two, and three. And we've gone into this other one party, and there's just loads and loads of women there. It must have been like a um, someone, either, it's either like a you know, fraternities. Right. Yeah. Fraternities, okay. like, yeah, yeah. you know, male and, and uh, sororities, sorority, yeah. I should say, sorority. So some of this, the women, they have like sororities. So it's a house of women, and they basically put on parties, and then obviously it's like bees on a honeypot. Yeah, everyone wants perfect. to go to that one. Yeah, yeah. So there was a sorority one, and there was loads of girls. There was blokes in there as well, but there was loads of girls there. And me and Chris like jackpot. We, yeah, we're in here, we like go. you know. So we've got in there, and um, we've walked into this part. We got our got our cups, we got our got our drinks, and that. I goes, Chris, Chris, let's um come in, come into the bathroom. So we've like both gone into the bathroom. How do we end I said, mate, what do you reckon if we just walk out of here absolutely starkers, like bollock naked? And I was like, oh, mate, I don't know about that. I said, mate, mate, I'll tell you what, let's get our socks and we'll put our socks on our cocks, right? <laughs> so we were like absolutely smashed at this point. <laughs> so we both thought it was a good idea. And I said, mate, because being an English guy, just being English, yeah, as soon as you result, open your mouth, the women are just on you lot, you know, and they're just chatting and they love it. Oh, can you say this? Can you say, oh, meet my friends, you know. This, this is why all your mates there. didn't come back. Yeah, exactly. Right. I know. I know. did you? I don't know. I should go back. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so in this toilet, we basically took all our clothes off. Got no, not stitch of clothes, nothing. This is before phones, anything. So we got, you know, no photographic evidence or anything. So uh, we took all our clothes off. We put them up on a, up on a shelf, our shoes and everything. All we've got is um, socks. And I think I had a black sock, I had black socks on, Chris had white socks. So right. my black sock goes straight over everything, you know, there. So it's, you know, it's not that impressive. So I'm thinking this is, this might be a bad idea. <laughs> you know? I've got a trainer line. All yeah. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Especially being black as well. It doesn't really, uh, I should have had, stuck, I should have had pleasant socks on, but anyway, yeah. it wasn't premeditated. So uh, Chris has got a white sock on. His looks more and more impressive just because the white sock was a bit longer and all that. So I'm mm. like, oh, I've had a, I've had a Maria. But anyway, I'm all in now. So um, literally, we've literally, yeah. <laughs> we've literally come out the door and walked straight into this party and like deadpan, like straight face, gone in, started walking through the party with drinks now, just, and then we just started like chatting to each other and all these people were just like rubbing, <laughs> and we're just absolutely sparkers. And these, these big group of girls come over to us. And they absolutely loved it. Did they? They're like, oh my God, oh my God. what? And at first they were a little bit, at first they were a little bit aggrieved. Yeah, what the hell? But as soon as we opened our mouths and there was English, oh my God, are you from England? Oh my and they just couldn't believe, you know, what we were doing. But that was sort of, in essence, what a lot of the times we, we would do like sort of crazy stuff like that. But The crazy Englishman. Yeah, that's, that's what we got labelled as over there. Chris up in Boston and me down there. So we got, 
Leaving. Goalkeepers, mate, they're all mental, yeah, they're isn't they? All, it mate, just proves it. As soon as we said we're on scholarship goalkeepers, they, I think they thought, oh, okay. But, <laughs> Here we go. But yeah, we uh, we stayed in that part and we stayed naked for a good good few hours. I think I think we got we got dressed and ended up we ended up I ended up sleeping there, not with anyone, unfortunately. I was, I was that pissed. Chris went back to his apartment, which was not far from there anyway, um, and I slept on uh, I slept downstairs. But I was a little bit conscious that. Um, you know, it's just a bit of a dodge to me sleeping in a, a, a room full of girls, you know, a house full of girls. Yeah. So I put, a, I got, on, got onto the couch and I put a little note, a handwritten, a dodgy note on myself saying, hi, my name's Mark. I'm from England. I'm no harm. Just need to stay here the night. I'll be gone in the morning. Just pinned, wow. pinned it on me and I was just passed out and fell asleep. Then the party's all died down. Um, yeah, and got up in the morning, got our clothes and we, we shot off. Like, I know, but that, that was, um, yeah, that was, there's lots and lots of little funny, funny things. When I said I had some parallels with you around sport, mate, first of all, I didn't know you were such a proficient goalkeeper. Secondly, I wouldn't have pictured that story with the Mark Bryant come up yeah, into the was, world of carp fishing, mate. Yeah, I, I suppose I've calmed down a lot from, from my college. <laughs> I don't know, you might not. Have. I don't know, there are little, little glimpses and uh, I don't know, I, I think I'm, I'm quite quiet and softly spoken, but I... There is a side to me as well. Sometimes that that has come out with little bits. It's the bits inner stuff. goalkeeper, mate, isn't it? I think That's so, what yeah. it is. But another, well, the same actual birdie did tell me that your goalkeeping has scarred you in terms of dog excrement. Oh, yeah. You, you yeah, When yeah. you go out, you actually pick it up on the bank, don't you? Um, yeah, if I'm fishing near it and that. Yeah, and that, that's probably born from goalkeeping, particularly growing up as a little boy. You know, I used to go out training um, on well, on parks, you know, so I'm always mm. diving about sometimes training at night in the dark, you know, um, and I'd come back literally head to toe sometimes with it all over me. It'd be in my ears, up my nose, on my hair. Oh, that's grim. Just all down the top. So that smell, it smells a really powerful memory mm. provoker, isn't it? Like that smell can transport anyone back anywhere. Um, yeah, so that smell for me it just evokes some really horrible memories going back. So yeah, if I'm, if I'm fishing and I got anything near the swim, I try and flick it and flick it in the lake or, or pick up and get rid of it or whatever. Um, so yeah, going over to Belgium recently has been really, Oh my God, it, it, terrible because the, the tow paths on the canal systems that we've been fishing, they're just full of it. Like, you know, it's terrible. Like it's disgusting everywhere. It's all some of it in various different stages. Someone's been there oh. for, you know, a week someone's been there for years it looks like and it's you know it's all part of oh, it's just disgraceful so yeah i take a ground sheet over there mike doesn't even take a ground sheet he just literally rocks up puts a bit doesn't even check doesn't even check <laughs> but i have to i just have to it's just and that's you know that's, that's what oh, I that's have. brilliant mate you this time obviously there's a lot going on fishing wise there's a lot of movement there you've gone to a different country you've talked about a little bit of fishing your carp fishing at this time, how how does that factor in with everything that's going on? Footballs are, you said yeah. you worked around it as well, so you're already quite busy. And then while you're in the UK playing your football at various different places, yeah. there's the travel element and going place to place. There's also a day job in amongst all that. Yeah. And then there's obviously this four-year four, four year period in America. How does angling factor in or carp fishing over that time for you? It's difficult trying to fit, fit in uh, angling with any regularity, but I suppose I've always been you know, an avid floater fishing, floater fisherman. So, um, and the stalking approach for me is when you've got limited time has always been really beneficial. And that's really helped shape me in terms of watching fish at close quarters behavior. Um, so that's really helped me 
sort of, um, I suppose, cut through a lot of the smoke and mirrors, which is in the industry with, regarding what works for cart, what doesn't work rigs wise, you know, some fundamental things have come out of that. But um, yeah, back, I suppose what back then my fishing, mm. um, I'd still get little pockets and windows um, and I'd be very intense with that. And I'd fish um, at the horseshoe ticket for a number of years. And I'd done a, um, done a whole, whole, it's when I come back from America, done a whole winter up there. That was from sort of, what year is this? Give me an idea of time. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the time. That was 2000 and... So I come back from America 2001. I reckon that was 2002, 2002, something like that. Right. I'm a bit hazy on the dates, but yeah, I think it's 2002. Um, and I've, yeah, fished up at, at Horseshoe for the winter and I was playing... Um, what was I playing for then? I was playing for Western Super Mare at the time. I've come back from America at this point. Um, I've gone out on trial with various different clubs, QPR, um, Dundee, um, Bristol Rovers again. Um, Dundee? Dundee, yeah, yeah. That's a fair old trek away, mate. It was, yeah. So uh, a guy at um, our university, um, he knew one of the, he was friends with one of the coaches there. Um, and basically they, they took a look at me over in America and invited me up for a, a trial when I, when I finished. So I basically went up there and spent two, three weeks with them, something like that. Um, and done done well, but again, I I, I suspect it was down to a, a height thing. <laughs> unfortunately, mm. same with QPR. I went up to QPR twice, so I got invited up. Ian Holloway was the manager. <laughs> He's uh, a character, isn't he? He is. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, trained trained with QPR for the week. Um, done really, really. Just had a really and played a game in the reserves. Played done really well. Um, another couple of weeks, they invited me back up for another week. So I went back, done another week with them. Um, and then another game for the others and done well again, but, uh, Ian pulled me into the office and said, look, you know, no, no question on your ability technically, but my concern is your height. Um, in our league, if they put two big center halves on you from a corner and pop the ball in, do you know what I mean? I don't think you physically have to deal with it. And I'm, I was like, I, I gutted because I, I thought I'd done really well. You know, you, on a trial, mm. you know, when you've done well, I was in training, I was really sharp, you know, just obviously finished from America training every day. So I was really sharp, but you know, really, really at my peak almost. Um, and, uh, unfortunately it didn't work out. So when I came back, I then went to some semi-pro clubs, um, went to, uh, Western Supermare. That's where I sort of got a bit, bit of fishing in as well. And that was, my fishing was like coinciding with, with that. And, um, and that took me then to Bath City and then to Aberystwyth and other clubs. But, um, but yeah, the fishing back then, I remember, um, when I was at Western, I, um, I fished horseshoe for the winter. So I'll go really intense and I'll be up there because I was getting paid enough from Western to basically not have another job. I'd, okay. have, I'd like, I'd work part-time. So I'd have a part-time job you know, doing whatever. Um, but it gave me a few days then in the week and a weekend if I wanted it. Um, but I had to be, I was training twice or twice a, a week. So I'd basically go up to horseshoe in the winter in December and I was fishing up there. Um, and then I'd wind in at like, four o'clock in four or five o'clock in the afternoon in the winter when it was dark, get in my car, drive down to Western train, drive all the way back, get the rods back out at 11 o'clock and then fish the next day and then do that. And on the weekends I'll come, I'll go home Friday or sometimes if it was good, I'd stay Friday into sun Saturday, then go straight to a football game. Straight to a footy game. Yeah, I didn't do that many times because you can be quite tired. Um, Luckily for me, like the bites were mostly mornings and daytimes on there. I got it, I got it pinned right down to a real isolated time found where the fish were, which were right at the top end, um, in the on top end of the Whitney bank, 
Yeah. And they were all out of range. So they were all out at sort of, or they, they were sitting at 150 to 170 yards, which is outside my yeah. casting range at the time. Um, there was a lot of fish there. But, I, but if I baited at sort of 100, 110, which is achievable with the tackle I had back then. Um, what did you have tackle-wise then? Oh, three and a half, some random rods, three and a half Tesco rods. There'd be Biomasters maybe. Yes. Be Neville's. Um, be some stainless steel along the way there from Neville. And that was, it was quite tricked up, I suppose. Uh, I quite liked all that. <laughs> did still, you? Still do. Still like all the buzzers and that. I love them, yeah. Um, but I was fishing out at that zone and constantly baiting. And I was putting in loads of um, uh, maggots, sweet corn and hemp. But a lot of maggots, loads of maggots. Um, and yeah, absolutely clumped them over the, over the winds. I had a lot of fish. I had probably a hundred, yeah, probably a hundred fish, I'd say over that sort of period and some wow. like 30 pounders, but it was like clockwork every morning you'd get sort of two or three, four takes. Sometimes they'd come in, they'd feed on you. And then you're trying to hold those fish for as long as you can. Yeah. And then they'd drift back drift out in on. the afternoons and then nighttime. It was it. They just go and sit out where they were. So I was picking off the shoal and there was a lot of fish there back then. Um, but I was fishing uh, maggots. Um, and I had like a, a long, I was fishing over silkweed. So I was fishing a long boom. That was um, amnesia. Um, and I used to call it the Bob Marley rig, which is a, a, a rig I'd come up with. I hadn't seen anyone use it back then, but it was literally an amnesia D rig. Yeah. With a little bit of um, cork or foam. Didn't really make too much time long. It was boring enough. Then top of that, I'd have um, a little uh, rig ring. And then I'd basically lasso and tie uh, loads of mangas in a ball and tie them onto it. And it would basically stand up as a, as a, as a balanced bait on the bottom, but it would stand up and, and the, the maggots would be waving about and it would look like, I just called it Bob Marley because it looked like a load of dreadlocks. <laughs> was it, was a hook on laying on the bottom? Or was the hook sort of pronged like a little claw? It was, it was laying on the bottom because there was a lot of silkweed there. Yeah. If you have anything too balanced, it's going to be like a claw catch. and it's yeah, going to yeah. catch on everything. So although there was some buoyancy in it, that was only to throw the rig away and then wanted to lay on the silkweed, which was only a few inches, but I knew it could cause a problem if I started critically balancing anything. Um, and it just lay on and they'd come in and hoover everything up, silkweed and everything. And um, yeah, you get a, you get like clockwork take. So it was a hundred bites. Yeah. I think it was like, I got photos of most of them. I was on my own. So I had to do self takes for a lot. So I was so trying to keep it so quiet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So quiet on there because <clears throat> at the time when I fished, fished it in the winter and I'd fished it previous to that, but I thought I, I need to give it a good go. You know, you know what I mean? You just, I, right. Winter I'm going out and give, give everything. And I'm going to, I, I knew it had previous form doing winter bites. Um, but I knew I had to keep it very, very quiet. And there was you know, anglers coming up and fishing and, and word got out yeah. eventually that I'd, I was catching a few and some anglers would come up and set up next to me, but they were all fishing a bit too short. So I was a bit, Bit, bit selective on the information that I'd give them. And, and the swim itself, there was like big brambles left and right. I mean, two big trees. So I positioned the bivy. So I was right tight to the water. And because the bites were um, in the siltweed, they had literally, and it was still cold, it was still really, really yeah, cold. Yeah. The bites were, the, the bobbin would pull up tight and that was it. And the rod would just go round and they'd literally just kite. And they're so, they're so lethargic in the winter because of metabolism mm. that they wouldn't bust off. So they wouldn't get like a, a screamer. And quite often I'd have, people who would fish next to me thinking that he's had, had one or two and I'd be playing a fish and I'd play it all the way in under, under the water, tip under the water. And I'll be able to net cause they come up and they're a bit lethargic. They could net them and no yeah. real dramas. 
and I'd actually unhook the fish, sometimes photo the fish, but invariably put the fish back if it was a, a low 20 or, or upper double or whatever it may be. Um, and there'd be none the wiser. And I'd, I'd <laughs> quite regularly, that was quite, quite a thing. So uh, I managed to keep it really, really quiet until probably um, February. Um, and then I got rumbled, basically. People people started to fish, some was coming out. A few more people on the bank, yeah. yeah. Um, but there was a rule on there that you had to move swims every, I think it was 48 hours, something like that. Um, and I hadn't seen anyone all winter, December, January, and not until February. December, January, I was the only one fishing it in the week. No one there. It's on the weekend, you get one or two down in the week. So I could invariably fish in the one swim and then go football training and come back. Yeah. But then yeah. the uh, the bailiff at the time there, Clive Owen, it's Clive Owen, Odin, Owen, um, he was pretty hot on that. And uh, so I'd like move to the next swim and just fish diagonally across. So I had to move every couple of days or whatever. But that was fine. But but yeah, a lot of the time it was uh, just trying to keep it all under, under wraps. Otherwise, you know, you get someone turn up in there and they, they'd be in there for the week. But because I kept bait going in regular and regular, and they stayed in that zone from December all the way through? All the way, all the way until February, until uh, the end of Feb. Um, and then the weather changed. Um, it started to get a you know, big low pressures started coming in. Up to yeah. that, it was really cold, like Baltic cold. And you got big low pressures. And then basically that pod of fish moved down to the um, uh, the Whitney Bay, the big bay. Yeah. And there's more, because they're getting caught, more people starting to fish through March. And it's the tr- traditional close season. Um, and I managed to get down in the uh, the big double for the for a week um, uh, uh, and in between sort of football, um, and I caught them as they come through because they are so well on sort of maggots and, uh, on, tuned into even in tuned winter, right yeah. in. Yeah. I put a big bed of that, a huge bed of that out. What were you putting? What's quantity wise? Cause there was a, as you said, there's a good head of fish. You're yeah. having an awful lot of bites. They oh. ain't on you all the time, but maggots invariably with a smaller particle, you're holding them for a bit longer, aren't you? With you are, especially with the silkweed. That made a big difference because everything would bed into the silkweed and mm. particles would get caught up at different levels. The maggots um, would bed themselves in. A lot of them would were dead. Um, so I didn't put in live maggots. I put a lot of dead maggots in. Um, so uh, so I was putting in, I was putting in literally a, a night because basically you catch those fish, you'd spot over the top and you, you'd invariably push a few fish out doing that, but you'd still catch the, you know, a few, a few fish a day, four or five generally. Um, then on the night you would, you would load up. So I'd either load up on the night or what I ended up doing subsequently was load, getting up really early in the morning because the first bike generally was coming about seven o'clock. Right. And it was, they were, it was light by then and they were moved, they were moving back over as the conditions were changing. So I used to get up at sort of, I don't know, half five, six in the morning, get a, a spod mix, a big bucket. And I was putting in like a bucket like that, a huge, was it a 10 litre yeah. bucket enough yeah. to to hold them. Uh, it was enough to get enough bites. And I've learned that through pre-baiting is, is not to be greedy. If I'd have fished at 140 in the pack, I'd have caught, I'd have caught a lot of fish quickly, but I'd have dispersed them. So by fishing short of them and bringing them onto the bait, I was just, there was, there was obviously the main pack of fish, which would have gone into maybe hundreds, hundreds of fish there Yeah, back then. Yeah. Um, and you'd get a, a pack of fish would come over, feed and I'd pick them off, catch them. And then they would return back. Like, well, that way I wouldn't sp- spook the main cluster. Mm. And I continued that all the way over. And that's been, in essence, what I've always done with pre-baiting. You, you don't necessarily want to clump them quickly. You want to string out as long as you can. And you can pick ones and twos. And you can have that for weeks. weeks so rather weeks. than fishing directly on them, you're fishing shorter. Yeah, you just want to bring them on to you if you, if you can. Um, 
Uh, and, and even if, you know, even if you're fishing in a big, in a zone where they all holding up, if you can fish on the edge of them and just pick off ones and twos, you know, you can, you can, you can build momentum them and big build lots of fish over a longer period. Whereas I've gone in and baited an area and sometimes because of the, the swim or if it's on, on, uh, on a big gravel pit on the water park where I've only got access to a couple of areas. Mm. If I put bait in, I know I'm going in there for one, one or two hits and that's done and I've got to build again. So it's a different sort of mindset in terms of how to build the swim with fish, maximize it. And then try. Right, okay, that's done now. I've got, I've got to start another baiting pyramid over the next two weeks, three weeks and get it to its crescendo, go in and maximize it again and then start again. So that, there's different lakes, um, different areas, different swims open themselves up to that style of fishing. But yeah. at, at Horseshoe, it was lovely because the fish were sat at range. I could bring them on to me and pick off enough and then to string it out all the time. So I caught loads of fish. I went for a lot of bait, a lot of sweet. I mean, I was clearing out supermarkets of sweet Tesco, <laughs> yeah. just coming out with crates of sweet corn. Um, and the fish were venting and passing all the bait all the time. Yeah. And a bit of hemp as well. Like a, not too much hemp that you preoccupy on hemp. Cause that's one thing I found with hemp is uh, if you put too much in, you're going to preoccupy them and they, they almost go into that clamping motion on the bottom where they're very, so they're moving very move. slow. Yeah. It's and a nightmare. trying to hook a fish like it's very difficult. But you have put, you done it? What have you done when you fished it? I've had it. No, I can think of it, loads of occasions where I've had them on a big bed of hemp and they have yeah. been granite. Short of putting a real short hook length on a PVA bag and plunging it in. I've not known anything that's really sorted them out in that scenario. It's about the only way. When you um, super saturate the bottom of a lake mm. with foo signals and hemp does that um, and you can do it with micro pellet, you know, fast away, you've got a lot of noise coming off the lake bottom, food signals. Loads of food signals coming off and, and the fish come over. They know there's food there, but because the food items are so small, they can't isolate like a boilie and go in and locate them. So they go into like a clamping mode where they're just down there hoovering. They're hoovering anything that's come in that line. And invariably where you're mass baited with particles and uh, particularly hemp and micro pellet, everything going, going up into that oral cavity, it's getting shuffled about, pellets are going back and everything else is getting blown out the gills or blown out the mouth. So when they're in that mode, yes, you can get a lot of fish feeding like that. But the only way in my experience to catch them is to use a balanced hook. Sometimes no bait mm. at all, but something on there that's just going to go up. So you want to balance like a hook with a sliver of cork or a sliver, of, if you want to do it with a food bait, a sliver of pop up or something. So you get the hook, it's just on the bottom. It's just, it's going up, you know, and I've caught, I've caught fish before on PVA bags micro pellet with um, bare hooks, just casting bare hooks out. With bare hooks? With a bare hook, So yeah. they're just coming in, taking everything, and they just happen to take the hook because it's in amongst everything, basically. Yeah, it, it, was, not- it was an experiment I wanted to prove to myself, and I, I'd done it on um, a lake up in the Cotswold water pot, which I'd recently taken on. There was a load of new fish that were in there. Um, so there was, I won't say they're naive fish, but you know they put pellets out and they feed, and I just wanted to prove a, prove a point to myself. So... I put a load of micro pellet in, but I also had um, a real dense liquid. And I was convinced that this dense liquid, which, which we sell, um, would, would seep into the lake bottom mm. and it'd stain the lake bottom um, along with the pellet. And I thought, even when the pellet's gone, I know that the carp are going to return to that liquid and they're, they're going to dig about. So to prove this theory to myself, I'm going to put a PVA bag in. I'm just going to have a bare hook, a little hook link, bare hook, nothing on no balancing on it at all, just a bare hook, size six, I think it was, put it in there. Cast a PVA bag out and I was doing the night actually. So I cast it out at night and I thought, oh, 
you think, well, if it's going to go, it's going to go in the first hour or two, aren't you? But it went the following morning, <laughs> literally first light about, I don't know, five, six o'clock in the morning. It, um, it rattled off and uh, yeah, uh, had a fish all fairly sort of hooked in the, in the scissors God, uh, just on that. So yeah, that's that, ballsy. They putting a bear hook out, isn't it? Yeah, but I've, uh, it is, but I've, I've, I think it's it, for me, it's, it's logical. And I try and bring that into a lot of my fishing, just a lot, a, a bit of a logical approach. And, uh, those micro, like those micro pellets and liquids, which are dense and heavy, they stay there for a long, long time. And these fish keep returning. They're sucking up everything. So I'm thinking, mm-hmm. oh, it goes in. You know, it's only got to go in once or twice. And on a bear hook, there's nothing in there to impede it. It's just, it's, it's there and it's going to, the gravity of a, of a bear hook is going to be on the bottom cavity. It's going to drag. It's going to, it's going to find purchase. And that's sort of what happens. So, yeah. Bear hook. Yeah. Oh, there's plenty of people I've known yeah, that have yeah, caught yeah. On, on bear hooks. But when you get them in that, zone um that feeding situation where they're clamping it's probably one of the only things probably you can do because you put a big 80 mil boy there and they're just they're ignoring it because they're in that you know they're, they're down mopping up sort of the bottom so yeah having um having something bare but hemp is really important and a lot of the times i will put in sometimes even when i'm betting with boilers and i'm i'm having to spawn them out because of the goals i'll put a pin i mean a pinch of hemp into the spawn literally a pinch and I reckon that's probably 15, 20 grains mm. and that's going in with 30 boilers, but that's enough. Those grains, you know, they're so, or it might be micro pellet or something like that. So yeah. micro pellet, you put in like just a pinch. That's all you need, just a pinch. It's enough for the attraction. You know, the, the amount of times I can stop fish coming through from a, a margin with, I don't know, 10 micro pellets, you know, real good ones. You literally put them in and they, they sink down Fish come through, you see the the body reaction, the twitch, the fins sort of maybe go wreck. They know it's food, they circle back and they're down and they feed. And, they, and they'll be down there for a few minutes trying to put, yeah. put 10 little baits down there. 10 tiny, I don't know, one mil pellets, you know, but that's uh, that's it. And, and then you can introduce something else because you haven't super saturated the bottom. If, you, yeah. if I put a handful in, they'd be there for hours and I, I can't get a belt on anything else. But then if I introduce a boilie, that's, I don't know, a 10 mil boilie or something bigger. It's not what they're searching out, but because I haven't saturated the bottom and those individual pellets are being picked up, they can locate what I've put in and then you get a bite. So it's uh, it's just reading, I suppose, reading the situation. Um, I like that, and not, yeah. yeah, you can, you can not ruin your chances. You can get a lot of fish feeding on, on those food items, but you've got to be very, very careful how you then apply bait, hook baits to that to try and get a bite because you can be there for hours. <laughs> Hours and hours. I've been there for hours. Yeah, we all have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there for hours. Yeah. It's interesting. You referenced it a couple of times already. The water park. The Cotswolds yeah. water park. A load of water. You're fishing, and we talked about this in the sort of, I'm going to say sort of the 90s period here. Yeah. A lot of your fishing, we talked about it before, had been around the water park, but probably before the water park is as we know it now. Yeah, absolutely. You were very much like dropping on to little bits of blue on the map, weren't you? And, and oh, fishing for, yeah, really, who knows what you were fishing really for. Really exciting back then because um, you you were fishing for the old guard, I suppose, of the water park. And a lot of the fish that um, were stocked by hooker, by crook back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I suppose, were either coming to the end of their life or some of them, there was another stocking in 96. So those fish, which is about the time I was fishing it, those fish were all coming through as well. So mm. it was a really exciting time to be up there and fishing. Trying to get access to the lakes was difficult because a lot of the lakes were owned by 
gravel companies and they sort of hold on to those lakes after they've excavated them. Um, they hold on to them for sometimes two decades, you know, so 20 years. And in that time, they've been stopped with fish. Yeah. And the fish have been moved about. So there was pockets of fish all over the water park. And at the time, I just sort of, uh, so I've been fishing the water park since I could drive, which was sort of 18. Um, and since that day, I was coming up to the water park park quite frequently in between playing football um obviously fishing and everything so i was coming up sometimes on a sunday and i was, I was getting i've done a lot of exploring a lot of looking and a lot of fishing on some of the some of the lakes which were had no fishing fishing on them i suppose they were just ex gravel company workings that had just been left for years and years and there were pockets of fish had found their way in by Loads of people back then were, were moving fish about, so you was, was fishing for a little bit of the unknown, which was which is hugely exciting. Was that the main reason why? Because obviously you're looking here. There's a lot of constraints on your time. Yeah, you could pick. I'm not saying horseshoe is an easy option, but venues such as horseshoe that are yeah. equal traveling distance, where there is a known head of carp, and you can go and catch them. Yeah, willingly. Yeah, yeah. Or you can take your limited amount of time and go to somewhere which is completely unknown, which could have absolutely no carp in it. What, what, yeah. what's, what's the attraction with that? Is it the challenge? Is it the, it's the challenge? Yeah, it is the goal, the challenge. It's I was looking at lakes and there's probably no carp in there, but it didn't stop me going back and looking. Um, and just that unknown, because there was always rumours of monsters and huge fish on the water park in various lakes. And I'd, I'd travel up to lakes and, and, and walk around them and uh, just think, what if I'd come around this corner and there's like an uncle leviathan there or you know huge fish so that that was always always the driver and many times i found fish up there i'd fish for them and i'd i'd catch and a lot of it'd be opportunist stuff you know um dropping in for a, a night because i'd you know i had time back then i didn't have the responsibility so i could do a night or two or I'd put bait in and prep areas mm. so i'd find um some of these um um old gravel pits or nature reserves which were weren't really managed or owned by anybody but I'd be very discreet in how I, I fished them because I didn't want, I didn't want to alert anyone that I was fishing them. So I'd, yeah. I'd go about it in a, in a very precise manner of, of either dropping gear, uh, height stashing gear, burying gear, um, cycling in if I, if I needed to parking up to a mile away, you know, and all, and all that and cycling and that, that formed the base. And that was all part of the journey. That was all part of the excitement, but because the water park was so close to uh, Oxford I'd come up sometimes to the water park and I'd I'd find that I couldn't find fish or whatever. And sometimes I'd then go on to Oxford. So I'd fish at Lynch Hill. Right. Um, just as a, I'd, I'd break it up because you could go, go hard at the water park and you might not find fish and it'd be like demoralizing. And I think, oh, do you know what? To mix it up, I'll go up to Stoneacres or Lynch Hill or Linear and I'd just walk around with a float rod and I caught loads of fish like that. And it was really exciting. And I remember, um, Stone Acres was an interesting story. So I was up on the water park and it was a boiling hot, a bank holiday. Um, so it was busy everywhere. I was on the Cotswold Water Park and I'd been at this lake and I couldn't find these fish. And a friend of mine was fishing on uh, Christchurch. So he said, oh, mate, come on up. We'll have like a barbecue, a bit of food or whatever. I was like, yeah, same, mate. I've had it then. I've walked miles and miles today. So I've gone up to Christchurch and it's the first time I've ever been there. So he, gave me, he sort of got the directions. Gave no phones back then or anything like that. Yeah. And I've turned up there and it's busy. You know, there's lots of people being a bank holiday, lots of people everywhere. Um, and the first lake you come to, you've got the calf, haven't you? Which yep. is, which is, and I knew it is the whole complex then was day ticket, but you could buy a syndicate place for stone acres. So you could fish on a syndicate or day ticket. So I know that all these lakes were fair game. You could fish them. So 
And I think I got to the lake and I thought, well, I think that's Stone. I've never been there. I think that's Stone. It's a big lake. It's got to be Stone Acre because I know there's Willow and Christchurch and there's other lakes around, but pretty sure Stone, Stone Acre, but I wasn't sure. So I got out of the car and I started walking down just, you know, just with my fishing gear on, walking down to my mate who's on Christchurch, which is you go down the side of Stone Acres. Um, and as it happened, they were working um, uh, over the path, over the over the road from Stone Acres, and they were pumping a lot of water into Stone Acres. And there was a pipe that used to come on intermittently into Stone Acres, halfway along that calf bank. Mm. So I'm walking down there and I'm uh, just glancing at it. I've got my optics on, obviously. And uh, all of a sudden, I've seen like four fish just like coming up the lake, like almost backs out of the water. And there's this pipe there. And I think, oh, bloody hell, there's a pipe there. This is, I can't believe there's no one fishing there. And I'm thinking, oh, is there any swims along here? And I thought, oh, no, there's a swim down there. So obviously people can fish. But this where this pipe comes in, it's an open area. And I'm thinking, shit, there's fish there. So this fish has come through. Big fish. And I'm like, wow. I've, I've literally ran back to my van, got all my fishing gear in there, picked up um, my floater rod, um, Pick the wrong one up because I've had, I've had like two or three flirt rods in there. And one of the flirt rods was set up with um, seven pound hook link on oh. because I was fishing. I can't remember where it was. I think it was Welford Pools on, I fished there um, occasionally. And you had to go right down to a really small hook link, a small baits to catch them off the top there in the, in the, in the uh, speci link where you could fish it on a day ticket. So I grabbed that rod and I thought, it was, anyway, I, I matched him on and I bought got the other one had like 12 pound hook lick on a much more robust. So I've grabbed the seven pound one, not realised it because I'm in a bit of a, bit of a rush. Bag full of mixers, unhooking mat, everything gone down, sat next to this, behind this push in the bush on the, uh, where the pipe's coming in. And uh, these fish have come, they're just going up and down that calf bank, up and down, up and down. So I thought, right, here we go. So uh, super glued a little mixer to the back of the hook, like a free line again. I've uh, got a catapult and just catapulted a, a couple of mixers up. They're, they're, they're coming from, uh, no, they're coming from my left. Yeah. Left to right. To right. Yeah. So I've put mixers out. There's no breeze hardly at all. And these fish have come down and all of a sudden one of, one of them's come up, started taking them, gone down, gone on another circuit. And literally done that. So 10 minutes later, they've come back and I'm thinking, I haven't put a rod in the water at this point, but I'm thinking, wow, this is, a, there's an opportunity here. So I've, again, repeated the process, put another bigger pouch of mixers out, four or five, six now, something like that. With that, as they've come round on the line, they've come in, started taking the mixers and they're, they're well spread by now from the catapult. And I think, right, now's the opportunity. And there's one fish um, on the side, which looked just longer than anything else. So I thought, right, that's the one to go for. And he was coming up, taking with all the rest. So I flicked the mixer out long, literally, it's a bit like fly fishing. You're just bringing it right back. You're just tracing them out. You're watching the line of the fish and you've got your mixer out, well past them. And I'm, and you guesstimate and you're thinking, right, that fish is taking this line, mm. continues that line. My mixer needs to be there. So I'm like winding, I'm ahead of it, winding, winding. And the beauty of a free line mixer, you haven't got, if you've got a big controller on, you create a wake as you yeah. bring the controller back. And that sometimes that wake with pressured fish, that vibration in the water, particularly that wake, they know, and they just move, they take a different line, but on a single mixer, it's nothing. It just comes back and you just bring it, skip it in, skip it in. I think, right, that looks about right for my eyesight. And they're only sort of 15 yards, 15, 20 yards out. Um, and with that, it's come up in golf a mixer, set the hook. And then it is just absolutely flat rod me. Absolutely flat rod me. It's gone, it's gone all like took in 70, 80 yards of line. I'm like holding on the rods bent double and it's only a light rod. 
It's only then that I realised that I'm looking at the real thing and that line looks really I was going to say, when is it clocked? <laughs> it's it's £7. I'm like, so I've, I've slackened off. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh no, this is a disaster. And it's stripped off. Like I just couldn't, I, then I couldn't do anything mm. with it. I just got to let it go. And it's gone, 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 gone. Hit a weed bed at about 70, 80 yards. And I've, I just prayed. And literally I managed to put pressure on it and it's kicked out. And it's, you know, this was like we're going back in. This was the spring, so there wasn't a huge amount of weed growth, but there was enough to make you worry. I wouldn't have fished seven pound hookling, um, and I managed to play it all the way in. I've got it all the way, all the way back, all the way back, and it was a tussle. It was like twenty five minutes at least because I was just so gingerly playing it. It was only a, a small hook as well. Uh, managed to get that in the net, and that was um, the lever that used to be in there, and that was thirty. I want to say thirty six, thirty seven pound off the top. That was and then sort of PB. So that was. Uh, Mate, that yeah, is mega. Ep- You've literally been on a complex hour. Well, the hook bait was in the water for, I reckon, six seconds, seven seconds. And that's what it quite often with the floater fishing, if you're fishing in that way, that's all it needs because you, you're waiting. There's no, if I were to put that rod out to start with, you've got a line in the water. Yeah. You don't know where the line is. There's no point. So you basically wait, wait for the feed, the fish to feed. There's, there'll be a little precise opportunity, opportune moment to get the mixer in position. You get it out, the fish don't know you're there. They don't know the mixer, they don't know the lines there. They come out, oh, another one, bang. And you can position it so they come onto the mixer. Yeah. They're not seeing, they're not coming in, not hitting the line, line first. Line or anything. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So again, it was like a few seconds. I've, I've done that quite a lot on waters and it's it's a few seconds. It can be on floaters or even on the bottom, but certainly on, on the mixers. So that was, uh, yeah. And I went down to my mate, I said, mate, you can't come and do a photo. And he's like, what? You, well, you just couldn't believe it. I said, mate, I've just turned up. And anyway, I told him the story. I managed to get a, a few snaps of it. Um, you put it in the anglers. Like, no, put it into carp talk. Yeah, yeah, but I lied. Why? Because you had to say you had a ticket or something. Well, no, no. Well, I went. I went and paid for the day ticket then after. Right. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I better go and pay for a day ticket. Yeah, I went yeah. to the calf. I'd have been done, mate. I'm yeah, well, I'm out. <laughs> um, uh, and then, uh, uh, yeah, so I put it into the carp talk on that. But um, I was corrupted back then because there was competitions for bait, weren't there? You put a big fish oh, in, you get yeah, bait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I put it in on tails up. Did you? Embarrassingly. I've, did you win? Yeah, I did. Oh, <laughs> like, that's so like dark. 30 kilos of bait or something oh, like that, which no. was, which just to me, back then was mega. I was like, I've got loads of bait. Yeah. So it went in on tails up, caught off the bottom from a Cotswold water park. Oh yeah. my Even God. Even lied about the location. Terrible. That is, that is carp gods tyranny, mate. I know. It? You're a goner there, I know, mate. I Barry, but yeah, so I helped, helped tails up hopefully back in the day. <laughs> I love it, mate. Yeah, Ash wasn't involved back then, but there you go. <laughs> At but, least you're admitting to it, man. Yeah. A fair few people must have done it over the course yeah, of time. Abso- well, absolutely. It's, it's rife, isn't it? But yeah, that was sort of you know, in, that was sort of my style of fishing back then. But then you know, I'd, I'd go on to other lakes that I found on the water park, which um, unfortunately now have been really like fished heavily by a lot of the anglers, which um, um, which is inevitable. You know, inevitable. Some some of the fish mm. stocks in there were amazing, and I was very fortunate to drop onto a, a lake there, which is probably about. 40 acres, um, loads of older, the sort of um, horseshoe style fish. Right. So inadvertently, it would have got stocked from Horseshoe Lake. It's not a million miles away from there. Um, back when the carp site were about to take it over, there was keep nets of carp being taken out and moved onto the Cotswold Water Park, both east and west. So the Fairford area and over the Ashton Keynes area. So there's fish being dotted around and those fish are, some of those fish are still around today and absolutely you know, revered. Yeah, wow. Um but I happened to find a lake over there, which um, had, a, had a, a huge stock of those fish. Um, and there was probably in 40 acres, I don't know how, there was hundreds of fish in there. Lots, was a there? Bit like, yeah, a lot of fish, but black, sometimes black with them. 
Um, and I was, uh, but it was a, a nature reserve. So you yeah. technically not allowed to fish it, but it was, it was one of those nature reserves for bird watching where um, no one, no one it was owned by, I think um, at the time, was it, um, can't remember the actual governing body that looked over it. It was like a bird sanctuary, bird, RSPB, but it's like a, an English, yeah. English nature style sort of setup. Um, but there was an old bird hide that had been put up, never been used. You know what I mean? No one ever walked around it. It was oh, just, okay. just left. And I was like, right, well, the odd person still used to get around it in the day. And I used to um, basically I'd stashed all my gear, um, buried my gear there. Um, and I've done that a couple of times over the years, but this is going way back now. Um, I used to like park, park quite away and cycle into that particular one. Um, and catch fish literally used to flick them out for the night and used to get like a couple of bites, two or three bites a night because there were so many fish in there. But they're just like epic, like real long, scaly things, like the horseshoe style, yeah. the, the the Christchurch, you know, Stone Acres sort of style that I sort of revered, I suppose. Uh, managed to catch quite a number of those before I went, that was just prior to America, before I went to America. So uh, really enjoyed that. And enjoy, I enjoyed that lake for a number of years um, before I mistakenly told one or two people about it. And, uh, that was the, that was the beginning of the end because then it got a bit of pressure. Um, and the anglers fishing, it just weren't, I suppose, um, so meticulous in their approach in terms of getting in and getting out undetected. Right. And then, then people got to know about it and it just, the be- net closed in. Yeah. But it had a couple of fish kills after that, unfortunately, and they lost a load of fish. They're still fishing there to this day, which are being fished for, um, but back then there was lots, and I think there was an O2 crash. It was a very shallow lake, lots yeah. of weed, so it's inevitable. So How big a, did you have them to? Uh, there at the time, 28 was yeah, the biggest, nice. which was lovely back then. But those fish, and the, probably the biggest fish I've seen in there was probably 35, and this is going back 20, crikey, 20 years, 25 years. Yes, but back then there was probably a couple of bigger ones where I never got through to them. Um, but where where the, the fish go actually benefited the lake because – off the back of that, the lake went really clear, less fish. The recruitment from spawning was non-existent because it was so clear. So the, all the fry got predated. So mm. the pocket of fish that were left in there got bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're still there today. Um, and there's some really, really prized jewels. And there's some anglers, you know, high profile ones that have gone and fished for them and that, but it's a bit of a free for all over there. And yeah. um, it's never quite what it, what it was or what it would ever be. And there's loads of, ot- the otters are really prevalent over there as well. So they're, they're taking fish left, right and centre. So, you know, that's a massive problem on the water park is the otter population as well. They've always been here, but particularly it's pretty ramped up over the last sort of 10 years. There's, there's loads of them, loads and loads. So, what, what do you think that is? Captive release, loss of sort of food sources and habitat elsewhere? I can't help but think, if I think back, so I moved up to the water park with my bait business in 2006 or seven, six or seven. Um, and for the first two years, there was very well, Otters were non-existent. There was, didn't really? hear of anything. There was nothing. The only issues that had ever been reported on the water park prior to that were Ashley Pool, yeah. which had been well documented. And there was, um, um, the fish there had been decimated, unfortunately, in sort of, I'm trying to, I know Dave Gawthorne, I forget them. he was running it at the time. But I think that was back in the, that was the 90s. That would have been 96, 7, 8, so around that period. So there was obviously otters then there, but it was very localised and, it only seemed to be Ashley Port that got devastated. After that, nothing, there was nothing else. Um, but fast forward and we come into 2006, seven, um, I'm operating my business as a water park and I'm supplying bait and I'm traveling around to lakes. So I'm getting a, you know, I'm getting access to a lot of lakes and talking to a lot of anglers and that network, I suppose, of information is growing all the time. So I'm hearing about 
everything. I'd never heard anything about otters at all. All of a sudden, I think it was, it must've been 2007 or eight, the winter particularly, getting to sort of Christmas period. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we're getting otters spotted everywhere, getting squished on the roads. Yeah. You know, casualties on the roads. We're getting, um, being filmed, going into lakes. And it all started from that, that time. And, and that for me was unnatural. And what was really unnatural, I had a friend of mine who's well into his filming and he was GoProing and videoing um, different otters hunting, not hunting in packs, but sharing territory. So right, there'll be a, yeah. usually they got their, a dog otter will have a territory of like a few kilometers, you know, like a big area, massive area, and it will defend that zone with its life. Um, and those lakes will be his, you know, and, mm. and that will, and, and that's, that's how it should be because he's not going to get around and eat every single carp in every lake, but he will hunt on all those lakes and keep them, uh, keep other otters from coming oh, into yeah, his exactly. territory. What we were finding on the water park, we were getting three or four dog otters sharing territory going in. And we were, they, the guy was being able to identify different otters through markings and, and, and yeah. cause obviously they all look, all look same to me, but, um, so that was unnatural. And I couldn't help but think that there was a big release program or, or someone had released lots of otters on the water park, 2007, 2008. Um, and it just created carnage because there were fish being killed left, right and center. Mm. Um, and off the back of that, those, those have bred successfully and it's just got worse and worse and worse. And it sort of hit a crescendo sort of point a few years ago. It's sort of, it's not settled down because they're, they're still here and they're prevalent, but now we've got pockets of otters and I can't help but think that those otters that potentially were released, um, have all been raised in captivity, used to share in territory and areas, but otters, their metabolism is very, very high. So they sort of live fast, die young. So after four to six years, they're gone. They're, they're croaked. So the new generations coming through, which have been born in the wild. So you'd hope that those characteristics of being territorial would kick be, back in. Kick yeah. back in. We would. We would hope. Um, but we all know through evolution what parents passed down. We, mm. But anyway, but so the, we're hoping it's found its sort of natural balance with ours, and these ones are now defending territory and have their pockets. And there seems to be pockets and areas of otters around the water park um, now, and and the crayfish boom has been uh, a help and a hindrance because on one hand it's, an, it's undoubtedly saved the cart because the otters are coming in now and, and eating the the, uh, the easiest food source which is the craze on some of the lakes because they're so in abundant all they got to do is look around and there's four or five craze and they're coming up crunching them um but the the flip side of that is they're coming into lakes so if they see a carp or as they're swimming to hunt crayfish and they see a carp there's an opportunist yeah kill there for for an otter so that's the double-edged sword that we're playing but it's certainly the the crayfish have, have increased over the last five six years in large parts of them being introduced by an unscrupulous i don't want to call him a fishery manager i'd, I'd say it's a cowboy who uh for his own gain who had a crayfish who started a crayfish company wanted to introduce craze to as many lakes as he can which he has and those now have got to epidemic level so in one way it's helping the cart, but the other way it's it's it's, it's propping up the otter population. Yeah, sense. yeah, yeah. It's a, it's an additional easier food source, isn't it? As you say, there's there's a it's a double edged sword, isn't it? In terms yeah, of that, there's it, some benefits and and there's definitely not some benefits. It is. So we're finding now, you know, a lot of the old guard of fish that are left on the water park mm. tend to be your your males who've got that bit of testosterone, that bit of kick to get away from cart, whereas 
you get into the winter and those poor females that have uh, accumulated their egg, regenerated the egg mass for the next year's spawning, um, they haven't got that power to get away. Um, that they've got a big egg mass. They're a bit more slower and they, they invariably be the ones that get picked off from the otter. So you're, you're left with big males and let's not quite you know, male fish grow you know, huge. A lot of the old British records were male fish, Mary, two-tone, you know, et cetera. Mm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so it, it's, it's horrible to watch it, but what becomes important is, you know, being a, you have to see the lakes, fish have to, you have to keep introducing fish because you're going to lose them. And that's, that's always been the way on the water park now. We're going to talk all that thing because I know that you uh, it's a passion of yours and it's definitely something in terms of looking into the future and, and leaving a stamp on things. But going back to those sort of reserve adventures back in the day on the water park, what sort of things did you see? What sort of fish did you see? And what sort of ways did you go around sort of actually fishing for them? You talked about there fishing through the night. Yeah. I'm guessing you're pre-baiting an area and fishing on the deck or keeping things nice and subtle over the course yeah. of time. <clears throat> uh, well, each each lake sort of had its own set of problems and that would be access or um one of them was full full of bream loads of bream so Lovely. so i'm like oh how you got to try and overcome these problems you're only there for a short time how can you maximize it so typically on uh on one of the, the nature reserves it was um all about fishing like huge baits like massive baits. How big oh size so like i don't know there'd be 45 mil maybe <sighs> maybe long cylindrical ones, a bit bigger. And that was just to get around the bream because I would, at the time, so when I was fishing that particular lake, I, uh, I was running, I moved up to the water park and I was full tilt making bait because I've moved up to the water park. I've took on a unit. I didn't have these overheads when I was, you know, doing it from my mum and dad's kitchen. Yeah, of course home. not. So I'm moving up, I've moved up there with a new girlfriend as well, uh, Claire, who's now my missus. Um, so we're, so at that point, when I first started the business, I was we were hand to mouth. You know, we, we moved into a rented accommodation in uh, South Cerny. Um, We had a, a plastic blow up couch for my first sort of six months. That was that was what I sat on. You know, so we we just we were on the not on the breadline, but we were just making enough yeah, just to pay the unit fees and pay pay my rent and to live. You know, it was so I was fishing this. This lake sort of grabbed me particularly because I'd seen a picture of a, like always, you need a spark, don't you? I'd seen a picture of a, of a 45 pound fish that someone who I knew had caught and it was just epic. It was nice big chisel scales, huge carp, massive carp. And it's in this place that had been fished before and it'd been documented before, but it's sort of fallen off the radar and um, no one knew about this particular fish. And there was another, so there was two target fishing. There was another one, which was a real old gnarly fish um, which they used to call the Jurassic. So that's a, a bit of a clue for people who, people who know will know. If you know, you know. Area. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the Jurassic was another one, real wrinkly old fish. Um, last out, 39, 12, hasn't been seen for like seven or eight years, presumed dead. Um, but I'd seen that fish. I'm, I'd, I'd gone down there and I'd spotted it. So I, so I saw this picture of this other big carp and I thought, well, there's two targets in there. And I, yeah. And I thought, and there, and there was, I didn't know how many fish were in there. Um, I was only talking to my friend. He had caught, I think, three or four over two years and he was just dropping in at key moments and catching them. But he'd done a bit of time. So I'm thinking, shit, there's not a lot of fish in here. I was thinking there's like a handful of fish, like six fish, 10 fish maybe. It's a big lake. It's like, I don't know, 45, 50 acres. It's a big lake, um, limited access, really shallow. Um, uh, And it's, uh, 
really heavily into bird watching. Lots of bird watchers there. Couldn't fish it in a day. No, out of the question in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, EA would get regularly tipped off about. It. So it was, it was it was one of those lakes. So I was like, but I really, uh, really after seeing that picture of that fish and then going down there and seeing the other one, which I knew hadn't been for ten ten years, but it looked massive. And I'm like, wow. I'd sneaked in there one day as a bird watcher, as you do, all dressed as a twitcher. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Binoculars, yeah. Binoculars and that. And I'll go round and um, there's one area where you, you're not allowed to walk. It's all triple SI as well. Right, blink. And I was sort of chancing my arm a little bit, but there's one particular day where the bird watchers were in particular hides facing the other way. And I thought I'd just walk up there. The wind was pushing in, you know, all that. Stars aligned and there was a, uh, that fish, or two fish came in. That was one of them. And the other fish didn't look too bad. But this one was like, I was like, that's definitely the Jurassic because there's a, his dorsal is um, really melted at the top. He's got, mm. he's got hardly any dorsal at all. Goes into nothing. And I thought, that's that fish. Got to be that fish. So I thought, that's there. Uh, and then I thought, well, what if that other fish is there? You know. So I hatched uh, hatched plans to, to fish that lake. And I just knew that trying to get to get into the lake and fish it was going to be difficult. There's loads of bream in there. Absolutely scores of bream. You can see them. There's a black with them. So I'm thinking, right, the bait and approach. Because I, I, I haven't got the time with bait, was I can't go and fish this. I can only fish nights. Mm. And I can't, I can't physically do it. The demands on my body. I can't go and fish it four nights a week because I want a bait business. I got to go and roll bait. So I, I, I knew I could only fish it once or twice a week. Once a week, it turned out as the best best way. Um, but I knew that I've got endless bait. Yeah, I've got endless bait, yeah. and I need to, I need to somehow bring the fish into an area where I can fish for them. So I, I settled on an area, and it was a nothing area. It wasn't. I couldn't go pick an area where a southwesterly wind went into because there might be a bird hide over there and that mm. rules it out because they're, they're keen as us, the bird watchers. They're yeah. in there at like four in the morning sometimes on first light to get their shot of a kingfisher or whatever. So um, I'm thinking I need somewhere where I can stay the morning, but I'll be out of there over in the dark or I could string it out to maybe six o'clock and then go. Because yeah. a lot of the time the bird watchers weren't there at early doors, but the odd one would get there was really keen. So I had to be a bit careful. So I had binoculars and everything over there so I could sort of scope out. But there's this one area where I thought, right, I can bring the fish to this area, but it's a nothing area. It's a passing area. It's not an area which, which I thought, hmm, it's going to hold fish. They don't want to spend time there. But if I put bait there, I think I can bring them in and hold them there for their feeding time. And I just needed to pin down when that time was and then adapt my fishing around that. Hopefully it wasn't 12 o'clock midday. Yeah. Because that's going to be a bit... <laughs> no, you know, It's going to be a nightmare, but... I was open, you know, invariably in the spring, most lakes and that are, are, are sort of first light, early morning. And I was hoping that was going to be the case. And it turned out it was. And I pinned that down by fishing there, you know, for a, a few overnights. And I managed to sneak in there um, in the day with binoculars as a bird watcher, watching the area where I'd baited. Yeah, no activity in the day. No, okay, it's mornings. Hope it's going to be morning. So, so yeah, um, the baiting approach was sort of key on it. And that was... Uh, centred around lots and lots of boilers, as you would imagine. Um, so, but I was making, uh, initially I wasn't putting in big boilers, so I didn't think the bream would be too much of a problem. I fished it for two two seasons hard. In the second year, I went to bigger baits. Um, but for particularly that first year, um, the bait was the key. Uh, and the key to get them visiting the spot was actually not to put boilers in first because um, all boilers, particularly if they're freezer bait, the shelf life's different. It won't break down as quick. So we're, we're limiting and inhibiting sort of the enzyme process, the bacterial breakdown process. Mm. Um, the byproducts of that is the baits will gas and come up and float off. Now on a freezer bait, that's all happening. So basically if you put any freezer bait into a lake after five, four to five days, depending on the ingredients, 
it will naturally gas, float up and go off and the birds will have it. And that's, that's exactly what you want. But I knew that the passing area, uh, I needed to have bait there. And I didn't want bait. Potentially that would, that would sort of be hanging around for long, long periods. And yeah. I didn't want to draw attention to it because if gas, if bait gases up and pops to the top, the bird population soon suss it out and they're on it. And then they will locate your baited area and they can smash it then. Oh, so I was thinking, no. yeah, I need to, to be a bit... And it's bit, shallow, you said, as well, didn't you? Yeah, it's literally like I could wade across all, most of it oh, up to my chest, no. so it's really shallow. So um, I baited, off with, baited up with uh, tigers because they can stay there for weeks and weeks. Yeah. So, yeah, started started baiting up in um, 1st of April and then fished it 1st of May. So I was baiting it for a month and I was literally baiting it every started off every four days, then got it down to every other night traveling down and where it was located. I had to, because I didn't want to get caught going in and out on these were all nighttime excursion baiting up all nighttime. So I'd literally have the, have food with Claire, have some, you know, whatever, this is April time. So it's getting dark at sort of, I think back then it was about nine o'clock. have something to eat. So right off to bait up. So I'd disappear for like a two hour round trip to, to go and do everything because it wasn't just park next to the lake. It was park yeah, a mile so. away from the lake, then cycle in, then hike over uh, an, a couple of fields with a backpack full of bait. And then um, I had waders stashed over there and I had a wade out because it was so shallow. And literally it was like deathly quiet over there. Mm-hmm. And even then I was like dropping baits in because uh, it was, you know, it was odd, odd people about. Um, and then back and then just kept on building up sort of the bait. And then after two weeks of baiting with tigers, I then switched over to boilers because I was, as I was going out, I could feel the bottom with my feet. I was dropping the bait and it was all getting firm and hard. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. right, it's being cleared, being cleared. Um, and then you swip over to, swap over to the boilers and the boilers then, they, you know, that really brings in a lot of the bigger fish. And uh, I had, you know, absolutely mountains of boilers to put in if I wanted. I was putting in like five kilos every other night, every other night. And it's all getting cleared. So I was thinking, right, yeah. something's clearing this. Yeah. A lot of bream, but then there's carp as well. Um, so over there, and I, I've told this story before, so I might be going over old ground, but I buried all my kit over there. That was, uh, so I, I had to work out a way of getting all my kit over there. So I basically dug a big hole on a full, this is prior to me fishing it. So in December, January on a full moon, I went over and buried all my kit over, over at the lake. Um, unfortunately for me, and apologies for anyone who's heard the story before, because I'm sort of repeating myself, but it coincided, unfortunately with a girl who later got found out was abducted and murdered. Oh yeah. No. So that night, all the police, there was like big search. You know, they had rested this guy and basically it was a big search for this girl. And where I was, wasn't a million miles away. What, and you'd gone to fish? I, no, I'd gone to bury all my kit. Oh, you'd gone to bury so all So I'm picture the scene, right? I've gone, I've, I've had to park near the lake because I've got all this kit. I've got rods, I've got everything. Um, and I've got it all in, uh, uh, I've got this box. So I've got a big box and a shovel. I've got to do two, <laughs> two trips. So I'm going over with a box and a shovel and all these people are looking out for this murderer and I'm, and these helicopters are circling not, not too far away. And I'm, I've walked halfway and I'm just, I heard it on the radio coming down and I just didn't twig. But when I got there, I was like, shit, yeah, they're looking for this murderer. I'm walking, I've got a spade in me. I'm about to dig a big hole. It looks oh like I'm burying, God, burying a body. In. Yeah. <laughs> so I've gone over and uh, it's a full, I've picked a full moon because obviously you can see, you don't need a head torch. You can see what you're doing pretty much. And I've buried this box, uh, then gone back, got the tackle, put that in there and the air. I had a bit of an epiphany thinking, my, this is crazy. It's like bloody cold as well because it's January or whatever it was. And it was when this girl was being searched for. And I, I remember switching my phone off because I'm thinking, they, I just think I could be tracked or traced here. They, 
I don't know. I thought all things are going through my head. Yeah, it's that nighttime period and all things going on, you lost your head. Yeah, 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 there was. I was panicking like, and I was just covered in sweat, dirt, mud, everything. Where I'd I'd buried it in this like woods and where I'd picked, it's going through tree roots and everything. But I got it in there and managed to bury it. I got pictures of it all buried and everything, put tarpaulin over the top, camo net and then loads of leaves. And it's all buried. It's all out of sight. So it means now I can just go in, turn up, um, unlift the tarp or lift up, unbury it, un tarpaulin, get my kit out, walk 10 yards to the swim. Everything was done by touch and feel. So all my rods were already made up with little leg clips on, um, with little links where I could basically loop on. So everything was yeah. done because it was all in the dark. So everything was touch and feel and could basically get the clips on. Um, I had a little roll up um, mat, which I slept on, sleeping bag, um, progressed to a little air bed because that was a, uh, that was the way nice. trying to sleep on the floor is, is a nightmare. So cold, um, particularly first of May, because it's, you still get those nighttime temperatures, which are down yeah, between yeah. single figures. And yeah. So, um, um, went over, get all, got all this stuff all done. Had a little tarpaulin, which I used to sleep under just in case it rained. Uh, but yeah, it was, um, it was exhilarating fishing because I generally only knew of a couple of fish in there. There was obviously more, didn't know quite what was in there. Um, only fishing a little little way out, and um, yeah, setting up sort of your, for your first night sleeping on the floor in amongst all the wildlife, and it was just you walk in there. I, I, if I was fishing, I don't. I, I isolated the time more and more, but that first year I went in there on dark. Turns out I didn't really need to fish in the dark. It was all about the mornings. But I used to get in there in the dark and sleep there all night. Um, and when you first got in there, because everything was like calming down, mm. all the wildlife, it's noisy, like, you know, like the jungle. It was like, it was, you know, it, was, it was all the birds and that all settling, all starting to roost. It was a sanctuary at the end of the day. All the, there was loads of badgers about, loads of foxes, deer, everything. When I used to cycle in, I used to have to go over a field and I used to call it the badger field. It was lo- on twilight, there's loads of these badgers. Yeah. I used to go through this field at pace because there were cows in the field as well. <laughs> and there was loads of cows and a couple of them looked a bit tasty, like, you know. I yeah. used to go through through them at pace. So if, if I go through at pace, they ain't got time to look up and wonder what's going on because they spook and bolt. And in the dark, they could like just take you out. So it's a big like, old unit, isn't it? They are big animals. So I thought, well, if I go through at pace, but as I was going through at pace, I would catch you know, it was twilighty. I clutch. They turn out to be badgers. I see this white and black fleck, and they'd be running. And sometimes they'd be running. I'll be at the same pace. Then they'd be like right beside me, and then look at me like. That. <laughs> And then divert off left into the bushes, and they'd be coming around. And a couple of times they'd come across me, and I'd nearly go over oh, a badger. Like, oh my god! Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's really, really sort of raw and exciting stuff. So, managed to sort of get in to for the first night on on the reserve, and um, yeah, lo and behold, sort of first morning, I absolutely yeah, clumped them. I had well, clumped them. I thought there was only five or six fish, eight fish in there. I had four on the first morning. It just went off. That was the power of the pre-baiting, constant pre-baiting. They just came in and I'd, like, I'd catch one. It was like, wow, it's a mid to upper 20. Amazing. God, I'll keep that, a couple of, couple of sack retainers, sacks there. Sacks are easy, obviously. I'll keep a couple in the sack. Uh, I'll keep one in the sack and then, shit, there's fish bubbling out there. Flick the rod. I'm only flicking it out 10, 15 yards. I'm right on top. As I'd flick it out, so shallow, like fish would spook. I was like, shit, they're here. I've had two, wow. two rods out. That would be it. Um, but well, they, those big hook baits as well, did you say? No, you not, not that year. Yet. Yeah, I hadn't switched. So uh, that's uh, that first year was all on like double 18 millers. Big, sort of, Which is still a big old hook mouthful. bait. Yeah, mouthful. Because I knew there was bream. I thought, oh, I'll put double 18s. I'll be okay. I wasn't. <laughs> but that first mm-hmm. night, luckily, 
uh, in the morning, the cop turned up, they were turning up there and I catch him, I caught four or five, like I think it's four that first, first morning, upper twenties, uh, biggest was 30, 31. Nice. And I was like blown away, like, you know, and I remember like, well, I got to like six in the morning, it's well light by then. Um, and I'm thinking, I got to get out of it. I can't blow this, you know? So uh, that was between four and six in the morning, twilighting and then first light. So I then obviously packed all the gear away, put it all back. I then, um, I, all, I, all I travel over is a rucksack. All I got are my buzzers. Cause so I thought yeah. if I get rumble, all I, all I'm taking over is my buzzers, buzzers and that's it. I had buzzers. Um, I had everything else all in, all in the box, little terminal tackle and all that. Um, I stripped all the gear straight back. And it's actually surprising how much tackle you don't need. I was going over. I had literally four or five leg clips, three rigs all made up with yeah. bottom baits. And that would do me. I didn't need anything else. Nothing at all. Yeah. Right, you know, didn't need anything. So I stripped everything back to like a box that big. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, I managed to sneak out the back and then walk out on, onto the fields and just look like I was going for a walk. I used to have um, a high vis in my... Uh, uh, in my bag. So sometimes I put the high vis on as I was going back up the street. So I look, I look like someone going to work, you know, someone, I then yeah. get on the bike as I was cycling back. Oh, he's cycling off to work with a high vis on. looks like a worker. That's some extensive garden, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, could be. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, managed to, um, I say catch quite a few on that, that first morning. Um, but I knew the nature of that spot that is a passing area. And I, I, I sort of had to try and maximize it. So then, I was fishing it all on uh, the last quarter, the moon face. That was prominent. That was always the one over there. Always the one. Um, that was when, when I look at the diary, it was always when the most act, when I saw the most activity and caught the most. And some lakes are different, but I'm a big believer in sort of moon phases, be that full moons, new moons. But particularly that last quarter, there's a little, there's a little window of, of a couple of days where it just, just seemed to go off. And I found that on other lakes as well, but particularly that one. So I thought, well, I've got, I've got to come back tomorrow night. So I'll come back put bait in that morning, sneaks in, come back the next night and had another four, three or four, I think it's three, three that next morning, again, like 25 pound all the way up to sort of 29s. And I'm thinking, this is amazing, but they're different fish. And I'm thinking, I've caught eight fish in two, two visits. How many are in there? Gotta be more. And like the clarity, it was like tea water, so tea stained like algae. So you couldn't really see a lot, you know, it's not like you can go around in a day, it's gin clear. Mm. When they're up in the water and they get into into shallows, you could see them, but you couldn't really see them apart from that. It's a sort of water where it's a bit like the old Belgium canals. When you return a fish, you return it, you know, a 30 pounder, it sinks down six inches, it's gone. Gone, yeah, disappeared. It's a bit like that. So I was like, it could be anything in there. There's obviously more fish because I was seeing lots of activity. Um, So I was... Of then basically that spot then I went back I think four or five nights later started catching bream and I thought right I've I've exhausted the pack which come in that that pack that's come in and, and regularly fed which I've been putting five kilos of bait in that's done I, I don't know how many fish out of the pack I've caught mm. so I can't really visually see um I've got to start again so I start to build the process so another two three weeks of constant baiting constant baiting you'd go in and have bang bang two hits yeah, of fish hits. usually on the last quarter um, usually, uh, or if the weather looked really good, particularly I'd go in, but I was only fishing it. I wasn't, I didn't fish a lot. Like, I, I fished up until they spawned. And then I thought as soon as they spawn, that's it. You know, the fish I'm going for, I don't want to catch them when they're, you know, I don't like fishing for pre-spawning fish anyway. I like to give them a lot, long time to recover. So I thought, you know, and at that time it gets busier in the summer, there's more people there. So I'll give it to when they spawn, which is quite early. It's usually mid-May. So I only had like, few week window when I was fishing. If I, if I started fishing in May, I'd like two or three weeks and that was it. Yeah. So I couldn't build up, but 
when they spawned, I'd leave it and I'd go back in the autumn and then I'd build up again. So I was building like two, three weeks and then going in the fish it and, and usually catching a few, however many of that pack. And then you sort of, you're building another process just because of the, the way the lake was shaped, formed and the, the stock of fish. I, I think now there's probably somewhere in the region of 35, 40 fish, something right. like that, a guess, a real guess. Um, this is going back a number of years now. Now the otters have been on there and decimated it. So I don't know what's left, if anything, on both lakes. There's a lover lake not too far away from there. Um, so, which is unfortunate. But yeah, at the time it was uh, really exciting because you just didn't know what was there. So th- that sort of draw to the close the first year. And I think the first year I had, um, I think about 15, 15 fish, maybe 15, That's 16. That's mega going, isn't it? Well, it wasn't because I was only thinking I was fishing for a handful of fish, but um hadn't seen it hadn't turned up with these big ones so i'm like oh i've got to be close i've got to be close and i've lo- I lost a couple of huge fish there which flat rodded me and i can't help but think those were maybe one of or one of at least one of them was the the biggest one there or one of the big ones because it flat rodded me and i just couldn't stop it and it just felt different to everything else you know the 20s and 30s that i've been catching it just felt different big slow well it stripped a lot of line but it was like really ponderous and steady pressure so I was in tatters, I was shaking, and it sort of almost like brought a tear to my eye because I'd lost it. Because he put so much effort into making that moment happen, mm. and then it's gone. It just from a hook pull you can't control, and that's. But it's all that was all part of the buzz. You know, it was all part of everything leads up to that little moment, and it wasn't to be. You know, it just 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 happened. But I vowed to go back the following year and to do it all again, armed with the information. But yeah, you have. That I built, and 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 the second year was was easier because, um, I did a few nights there, but very little because I knew that 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 window was from four till six, and I could potentially get over there at half three in the morning. Didn't have to spend the night. It'd be tiring, yes, but I didn't have to spend the night doing the nights on the floor. Is absolutely exhausting. It's horrible, and yeah, it's, anyone who slept on the floor in a sleeping bag will know that. When you've got to get up from a standing start, you know, a standing start, no, standing start, when you get up from a, a horizontal start up to go and strike a rod, if it's at twilight and you're, you're, you've got terrible night's sleep, um, you, you get up, you're really disoriented because you, yeah. you're, the, your head's been like, in my case, five foot 10 down on the ground. <laughs> and then I get up to that position, all your blood's rushing. And yeah, lightheaded. I, a lot of the times I'd fall over, I'd stumble, I'd fall into a rod, almost fall in. And it was just so tiring because you, you were always on edge of someone rumbling you, someone being around. Was there people about in the park or not? Um, there, so a couple of instances. Um, there was one instance where there was a homeless guy. Yeah. Who basically slept, he was sleeping there and he was like 50 yards from where I was fishing. I think, I presume it was a homeless guy. So all of a sudden I'm walking back an unusual way because there's a, a bird watcher and I've got to go back another, I've got to get out another way. I can't go the way I usually go. So there's someone walking down this field. I think it was a bird watcher, which got lost because he, he, usually you don't walk that way. There's no bird hides and it's all triple SI. So I'm thinking, shit, I can't go that way. So I've gone the other way and I've gone 50 yards from where I'm fishing. And there's a big blue tent, like being just put up in the middle of this nature reserve. I can see it like 50 yards away as I've gone through the foliage. I'm thinking, what the? So uh, I'm like, I've just thought stops in my tracks. I'm thinking, what am I going to do here? Yeah. Is there, any, there could be someone in, there could be someone dead in there. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Is that what you think? I don't know what to expect. It's zipped up. I've got close. I've like said, 
And it's no. massive blue and like... Yeah, like it's oh, like... Well, no. it's a blue... It's like a... An Argos job. Yeah, an Argos, like, yeah. crisp packety blue thing, like, you know. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm going to walk into here. So I've I've gone up a bit closer to it and I've got within 10 yards and I'm sort of, hello, hello, like coughing. I don't want to look... You know, it's, it's, it's not a massive, massive leg. And I don't want to start shouting, but I want to try and wake, wake up. up. Yeah. I don't want to startle someone and go in. So uh, I'm like, oh, Christ, why well, I've... So I get a bit closer, get shout, nothing. Now I get right up to the tent and I can see, right, it's, it's obviously zipped right down to the bottom. Can't see in, can't see anything. I've shook the tent, like rattled it, waited, listened, no movement. And then like I said, scratched the tent, like scratched me, you know, that, that horrible noise on nylon, Ooh. scratched it. Yeah. Like a lax murderer coming to kill yeah, that's you. That's not the one you want to hear from the God inside. God forbid if someone's on the inside there, like, like trying to keep stum. It's a bear. What the hell? <laughs> so I'm like scratching the island. No, nothing. So I'm like sat there for a good few minutes thinking, I've got to get out of here because it's getting late. I'll get, I've got to get back rolling bait. Cause I've got to get back in to roll bait. Um, so I've, uh, I've then thought, right, plucked at the car. So I've got to unzip and have a look. I've got to look. So I've got the zip. I thought, right, do it like a bandaid. Do it quick. So I've literally gone zip and pulled open like that. And, uh, and I've looked in there. No one in there. Thank God. Oh. But there's like a, uh, a sleeping bag on the floor, um, a pillow, uh, and that's it. There wasn't much else in there. And I'm thinking, shit, someone's sleeping rough here or sleeping here. And yeah. I'm like, this is mental. And I'm like, a bit of a sigh of relief because I, you know, I generally thought when I was going to open it, I was going to find a dead body or something. Did you really? Yeah, well, I just, you just don't know, don't you? So not too I far. I don't think I'd have unzipped it, mate. I think I'd have just jogged on. Well, do you know what? I, I knew that if there's someone coming and going, it's going to blow my cover. Oh, yeah. My, yeah, self, my selfish head was on. And I was thinking, this thing's standing like a sore front. I can't believe the uh, bird watchers haven't seen it. So I've uh, obviously I've seen what's in there. I've, I've lifted up the tent where obviously there's like a, a built in ground sheet to it. Right. And I can see the foliage on the bottom hasn't gone yellow. So I'm like, okay, this hasn't been here that long. It's been here a few days. You know, because I haven't heard anyone. I would have heard someone. So uh, I've literally think, what am I going to do? I've got to get out of here. I'm going to roll the tent up. I'm going to pack it down. So I've packed the tent up. So I've literally rolled it all up. I've managed to stuff it as hard as I can into my rucksack. Are you joking? Yeah. yeah so you need to homeless man's tent. I, I, well, I think so. It's That's bad brutal, karma. It's bad mate. karma. Bad karma. So I've uh, I rolled up this tent, um, left the sleeping bag there. I thought I'd leave him sleeping. <laughs> Very nice of me. Well, I think you're due to rain that night as well. But uh, anyway, so I've uh, I've, re- I've screwed up this tent. Um, I've then gone back out of, of obviously uh, uh, the, the lake. Got um, got to this little wooded area. I've, got, I've gone through the um, gone to pick up my bike, which is stashed in this little wooded area. And I thought probably the best thing I can do is um, is probably set light to this. So I've, I've got it home. <laughs> yeah. Just get just get rid of all, Jeez, every, all evidence. evidence. Yeah, evidence. So I've basically got a lighter and basically set it all alight and, and cooked it and it's all gone up and happy days in the bin, gone. Like, you know, so I've come back uh, a couple of nights later to bait up and I've gone in and the sleeping bag's gone. So I'm like, oh, thank God for that. So he's obviously moved on. So he's took the sleeping bag, wherever it was. <laughs> God knows who it was to this day. Good job he weren't in it. You'd have burnt him, mate. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> get out of here, lad. Yeah. So yeah, there was, there was always that. Um, there was... Uh, there was a, another instance with, um, which I, that I thought someone was, um, um, a, a close encounter where, where I was sleeping was on, um, so if you imagine like, um, uh, there's no, there's no footpath or anything like that. It's just literally you're going into stinging nettles and trees and yeah. everything. You've got to find somewhere to, to sleep. And invariably the best places to sleep were 
where the, the deer, foxes, badgers, everything would walk through and they'd take it, they'd, they'd all use the same paths. That makes sense. Mm. So there's actually like a little path. It looked like, oh, it's a path for here, but it's not. It's where the, it's where the wildlife, what they use and they just, they tread the same path, you know, very, very predictable. So invariably there is like um, space, like the size of this, this, if there's about a meter and a half where it's just been little trodden down, you know, something yeah. like that, where you could, I could lay out my uh, roll mat uh, and, and uh, an inflatable little air bed and then put on my, uh, and my sleeping bag, which has all obviously been stashed. I set them a little tarp and a couple of big sticks I'd put up, then a little bit of like the army, you know the army tarps. Yeah. You just stretch them out. I had that literally pinned down, got a couple of pictures of that where you stretch it up high. So any rain, it comes down and beads off, off and I yeah. can, I can nip out. So it's really easy to put up and down screws into nothing like you know so um had that all set up so i'm sat there i'm um, or led there i've got in there and I, I say that second year i didn't do as many nights but sometimes i just get in there i'd, I'd get out and do a night um so that one I'd, I'd got there about 11 12 o'clock and i thought right i'll, I'll go in there sort of i'll get in there late i'd have a nice bit of food with the missus chill out for the evening and mm. then go so i didn't need to be there in the evenings really so there's no point rushing and then and there's always a few people about at sort of seven eight o'clock so I thought, i'll go in there at like 10 11 so i've got in there absolutely knackered right let's get the baits in and and that year um i got plagued by bream like you know so i'll go in and i'll try and fish and uh your bream would be wiping me out and it all through the bike time as well and i was mm. thinking i can't have this and that's when i i switched over and i thought well i've got a bloody bait company i can do anything i want with baits so <laughs> Let's make um, big baits. Let's go with really big baits. Because I'd fished other lakes um, with big baits in the past, like Coat Water, where I'd fish huge baits because I had a massive bream problem. So yeah. I'd fish big baits over there. So I thought, yeah, I'm confident with them. I know, you know, it's very, they're very selective. Um, you're still going to catch 20 pound carp on them, but I need to get around these bream because they're killing me. They're killing my bite time and my, I'm through the night. I'm, I'm starting to catch them now at like one in the morning, two in the morning, and ongoing. Um, and I'm then trying to go to work and it's just not going to work for me. So, uh, I didn't have any rolling tables that rolled any big baits. The biggest baits was like 22s or something like that, which probably you know, from what I've, I've learned about bream, you get, you get a bream and stretch his mouth out and you, you can put 22s in there fairly comfortably. You get to 24 and above. That's when it becomes really selective, depending on how big the bream are. Yeah. How big are these bream? The, these say. bream are like seven, eight pound average. So okay. a 24 mil and above is very selective with it. You're still... You can still catch them because what they end up doing, they suck at the hook bait and invariably sometimes they suck the hook up and they get hooked that way, but they Mm -hmm. haven't actually ingested the bait. So I was searching for uh, a rolling table that would roll me big because I'd do it by hand. Yeah, Uh, I didn't have machines at the time. (sighs) I was still rolling on hand tables. So my my day-to-day was like eight, nine hours looking at a wall rolling on hand tables. That sounds horrendous. It was mate. horrendous to make 70 kilos of bait to then sell around the water park to earn myself a living. So that was what I was doing. So table wise, I found this table in, uh, it was Spain, 30 mil, because they've got big baits all over there. So yeah. I basically paid for it. I think it was on eBay, um, imported it over. It came like a couple of weeks later. So I've got a 30 mil table. Still got it to this day. Um, so I was rolling 30 millers on that. And then I was chopping sausages, which were, so straight out the extruder, I'd extrude them sort of that big. They're about 40, 40 to 45 mil and making them sort of that long as well. Right. Like stick, like boily sticks. Yeah. And they're very selective. So the bream physically couldn't, because the bream's mouth, the cavity, it goes up and goes round. 
something like that won't go up and round to get to oh, straight. Yeah. How are you? How are you using them on the on the actual rig? You, they're bottom baits, I take it. There's no buoyancy added to no, them. No. Yeah. There? So the, the key element of those big baits, um, and still remains to this day, is to make them heavy and selective. So if I had a wafter on there, that'd be wafting about this yeah. potential for the hook to hook the bottom. And invariably, you'd probably hook one. Well, you'd foul hook a few bream or carp because it's wafting about everywhere. So I wanted this bait hard on the bottom, not moving, staying there. And then the, the suction of a carp on a forty-five miller or the big long sticks is enough to everything's going up into the cavity. It's all going because it's it's all or nothing. It's not it's not mopping up the bottom and accidentally taking a ten miller because it's just getting caught up in the vortex. That fish is isolating that bait. Going down, boom, boom. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's fixed. It's, it's, it's no other. Nothing else is on its agenda. It's hitting that bait. So, with um, the the big baits, the heavy baits, it was key to make them really heavy, no buoyancy whatsoever, long hairs. Um, so I take the hook away from the equation so the bream wouldn't suck the hook up. So I was using hairs, you know, conventional hairs of probably an inch or two on a big bait because if that's going in, it's going in. So I was using su- long supple hook links size twos or size fours, two inch hook links, big, look, look, look just ridiculous. Just yeah. Look, look ridiculous. Um, but one of the keys was, which I found out after fishing it for a night is the bream would come in and they'd roll your bait around. So you imagine a bream coming in on a bed of 30 millers or 45 millers or whatever. They would come in and they would be hitting these baits and they'd be rolling around because they're, they're round on the bottom. They're just rolling around. So the, I remember the first night I, I brought the rigs in at bite time thinking I should have had a bite and I had to go. And they were covered in loads of weeds and twigs and that. And I'm twigged on twigged. The, nice. I'm going to say the magic twig. It's yeah. It's not going there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, um, twig then on me that, um, oh, these baits are being rolled around by these bream and that's, that's killing my chances. And it did. So what I ended up doing is making these, um, uh, 30 mil baits and then the cylindrical ones and squashing them. Oh, so like a little pillow. Type yeah, so shape. they're like literally. I get them all on a rolling table, all done. I will get like um, a chopping, big long chopping board or something mm. like that, you know, at the kitchen, and just just uh, just flatten them down just slightly so they when they sit on the bottom, they're not moving. Mm. They just stay in there. They're little yeah, dis- nice. little discs. And I've done that with the big cylindrical sausages, just to give them a flat edge. So then I found I wouldn't get all those bleeps through the night where the fish are constantly bream are like coming in, and th- although the bream were in the swim and trying. I wouldn't say they gave up on them because they were always there, but I caught very few bream after that. I, I, I was going from catching well, as many bream as I, was, I wanted, seven or eight, nine oh, consistently to having the odd one every three trips. And that was enough. But what it did do, it, it made the fishing very selective. And I started, you know, the, every time it would go, it'd be a, you know, a one toner with a, with a carp. Um, and that was the key really on the baiting approach. Cause I kept, and the key thing, the really nice thing was I didn't have to bait with a lot of these because they were so selective. Right, so I was putting the, the, the year before when I was putting in five kilos of bait, I was compensating for the bream, mm. you know, and I didn't catch loads of bream. I caught a, nut, a few, but then not to be a problem. And I can never gauge what was left on those big baits, uh, so on them smaller baits because the bream would come in and would have them. But these big baits were so selective that the birds did rumble me on the second year, but they couldn't deal with the big baits. They couldn't get them in the take them. Yeah. Take them. So a lot of them gave up. So it just left me, um, to put the bait in. And the good thing was where I was putting in five keys, I only needed to put in kilo and a half, two kilos of bait. Kilos, Cause they're so yeah. carp are going to eat them. That's the only thing that can pick that up is a carp. So, you know, out of a kilo, you'd mainly get like, I don't know, 60 baits or something stupid like that. 
or 50 baits. I can't remember what it was now. I did, I did count them um, on a 30 kilo mix, or 30 kilos, sorry, 30 mil baits. Um, but they were so selective, I could drop and lessen the bait quantity. Um, right. And, but you, just, you know, and don't get me wrong, for my observations, carp prefer to feel, feed on small food items. You know, their preferred choice is, is 12 and 15 minutes. They love that all day long. Um, when you get to big baits, they're not, they're not so keen, I think, on, on gorging. You won't get that same effect, but that's why I sort of drop the baiting and you just, you're selectively fishing for the, yeah. sort of those fishing out. So yeah, those, those big baits sort of have their place. Um, but you certainly wouldn't catch numbers and it's not their preferred, preferred, um, uh, size wise, but, but certainly, you know, when they have one, what you'd find is your rig mechanics work a lot better as well, because you can watch a, a fish eating a 15 miller or particularly big fish and they can take seven or eight in one sitting bang yeah, up in the mouth or smaller t- 10 mil. Sometimes they shuffle them about and they select a few and crush and, and they're ingested on those big baits. They're taking one bait and that takes a little while for them to crunch and to get it down and get it out. So what they do, they come in, isolate that one bait, pick up and they're, they're a huge amount of suction required. Mm. And the big fish is easy for them. That's going in all your rigs flying up in there with your two inch hook link and your big hook. It's very difficult to eject you know, it's, it's a big, big mouthful. So the force of the ejection is huge. And if that hook takes takes hold, that, that hook's going past the barb straight away on the ejection of a big, massive, heavy bait. Um, but while they're feeding, and I watch fish feed on those big, heavy baits, they take generally one, suck it up, and they, they're off. They, so they're, they're tipping, feeding, up, and they're going off, and they usually go round in a circle, crunching, 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 dealing with it and then yeah. they come back so they're, they're coming in and they're feeding in a different a way a little circuit a yeah. circuit yeah and they're coming and feeding in a very different way to mass baiting like we said with particles where they can be take their time they're coming in and having to deal with one bait and going round in a circle coming back so your rib mechanics are all like spawn I had some brilliant hook holds and well back as well mm. um, and I didn't lose many fish after that because of that so yeah it's something you work out I suppose along the way but those big baits were integral to catching some of the better fish there as well what did you have capture wise? You got obviously a, a good first year. You've done less yeah. time. You said second year, but yeah, I had, a, I had a similar amount of fish. So I had another. I think it's fourteen second year. <sighs> that's 14. good going, that isn't it? And um, but I was getting a lot of repeats as well. So I'm thinking I'm starting to max out what I know's in there. I didn't know at the time, but I had a few repeats in that. Um, but in amongst those fish, um, this uh, one morning it, was, it wasn't long before they were gone. I didn't know if they had spawned or not. I was sort of in that May, middle of May period. And I wasn't too sure if they'd spawned or anything. Um, but I just go back relentlessly and I caught a couple of fish. So I thought, okay, they don't look like they've spawned. So I'm going to carry on um, because I couldn't just go over and check it in the day. Just couldn't, it was out of the question. So um, I set up on the morning. Um, I, set up, I got there early in the morning that time. I think it was like four o'clock in the morning. Um, and it was by that time in May, it was twilighty light. And um, set up, got the rods in. And there was there wasn't a lot of activity there, and again with the big baits and everything. So I sort of sat back. Um, and it got to I think about five o'clock, and I'm thinking, oh, this is a non-starter now. This is going to I'm going to have to can it off. Um, and with that, I've had a, 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 a lift and a take and a real slow, steady take. Whereas a lot of the takes before were a little bit faster, and in the shallow, we see the boat wave going out. But this was a slow, methodical sort of take. I've hooked into this fish, and it's gone really powerful. Just kept going. I'm thinking, well, I can't. I mean, I'd, I'd like. I think at the time, 18 pound line on. There wasn't a lot of weed there, but I didn't want to lose anything. I'm, thought, mm. I'm fishing close. Everything's bedded down. I don't need to, there's no, why take any risks? There's a few trees left and right of me. 
um, and this fish has gone out and it's gone gone out quite a way into this this lake. And my my, my concern as always is when you when the sun sun was out, it's quite sunny. Uh, well, the sun was breaking out, and w- when you hold a rod up high. And you get the wrong angle and that line lights up and it going out into the lake. isn't so it? So I'm like dipping the rod tip thinking, I can't see the bird hides. Oh, I can see the bird hides in front of me and well, to the right and left of me, but I can't see the other ones and I don't know. So I've got to be air of caution. So the rod tip's down. I'm just playing it all the way back, all the way back. And sort of don't want to lift the rod tip at any point really because the sun's out. I'm playing it, playing it, playing it. And it's come actually a little bit too close. I think I've got to be close now. And it's actually under my feet and it's come past me underneath <laughs> my feet. Um, uh, quite high in the water, and I could see like a knobbly dorsal. I'm thinking, Ooh. whoa, that's this is interesting. And a few of them did have that knobbly dorsal because they're quite old fish. So I thought, okay, so it's gone, it's gone out, and I managed to sort of play. It. And I've had at some point, I've got to put the rod up. So I've put the rod up high-ish uh, when it's sort of I, I'm feeling the fight is coming to the end. Managed to get it. I can see this massive mouth come up, huge mouth with this massive forty-five miller sort of in it, just dangling around outside. And I'm thinking, wow, I said, that's a good, that's a big mouth. Um, um, and one, one point I haven't mentioned is my net. So the net, landing net, was really difficult to, because it's big, yeah, long. It's a big, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I thought, how do I get a net over there and stash it? There's there's rats over there, there's animals, there's all sorts. I don't yeah. really want to stash it in the bushes. So the best way I found was to submerge it. So basically, because it's like tea, the water. You can't see, yeah. can't see it. So I had a little stick in the water, which I knew exactly where it was, which I basically, when it, <clears throat> there was a little reed bed to my right and I could walk right until I hit this stick, put my hand down in sort of 18 inches of water, fill the landing net pole, lift up the landing net and there's, there's my landing net. <laughs> so, so I've got the last, I, I lift that the last minute. So <clears throat> by that time, the landing net had been in position since last year. So when I used to bring it up, it was like bringing up the Mary Rose. It was like <laughs> yeah. covered in silkweed, getting heavier and heavier, covered in leeches, snails, um, loads of shrimp so loads of shrimps in there so it's quite heavy and clumsy and I had to sometimes like clear it off like strip yeah. it all off uh all the land net poles all like covered in algae and there i've still got it all at home um but yeah i managed to bundle this fish into this net got it in the net oh, yes look down and that's it it's the jurassic i'm like no oh way. this is i'm over this is amazing so i'm like shaking thinking this is you know one of the targets sort of ticks off this is a huge fish and it was big so i'm i've, I've got it onto uh Got it in the margins, sort of all a bit of a flutter. I then had another take on my other rod while I'm doing that. And I'm playing, playing this fish and it's almost a carbon copy of the fish I've just landed. It's really heavy, gone, same thing, done out. So these fish are obviously together. I'm like, this is like taking line, taking line. Um, I've now got a bit of a problem. So I've got a fish in the net. So yeah. I'm like, what am I going to do? So I've done, I've got net it in the, net it in the same same landing net. I have to. Yeah. So I'm playing this fish, playing this fish, and it's it's really heavy. And it, I haven't seen it at all. It's come right in close, and it's come right down to my right. And there's a couple of snag trees. It's made a line for these cl- these trees, and I've had to clamp down, get the rod nice and low, and it's gone. Dee, 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 and suddenly, hooks popped. Oh, and I'm like, oh. And this was at the time when I just started sharpening hooks, doing it a lot, and I cursed myself because I brought the hook back, and basically the hook point was you know when you on a sharpened hook if you hit the bone it can like buckle uh, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah, and this yeah. had buckled and i uh, and up to that point i've had no issues but i remember i'd switched over that season to sort of sharpened hooks sharpen himself and can't help but think i'd gone into a bit of bone it hadn't gone in properly and if i'd been using a conventional hook which i was doing i didn't need to go to sharpen hooks but i was just trying to maximize chances i was using big leads big baits big hooks 
didn't need to do it. Do you have many hook pulls with those? Not at all. With what the with the big baits and fishing in that manner? Do you have no, many? No, not generally. No, because it was such a. I say, if the carp target them, they got to make that decision. It's yes. all going in. It's going in. There's no yeah. like just suck at it. Just you know, it's not just wafting. It's not wafting at all. There's no buoyancy to it. So you often see when carp go down, they're feeding on corn, for example. They're sucking up. They've isolated a bit of corn. They're sucking at it, but then corn from left one. You know, yeah, from a little yeah, bit yeah. all go in because it's a big vacuum. So. No, didn't didn't suffer. I had really good hook holds, uh, and they needed to be. So that was part of whole part of it. I wanted to get a really good hook hold. Make sure I got good hook holds, and those heavy baits, you know, because it's it's going in and it's going back quite away. Um, everything's going up with it, and, and mm. those hooks were so. Yeah, lost that fish. Absolutely traumatized by that. But I had this big fish in the lake, and I can't it's help but one. think that that other one was the other bigger. Don't know. I can't say for sure. Can't say for sure. How but, big was the Jurassic? So, um, so I've got it onto the bank. Now the scales I'm using are not the best scales because uh, I've obviously got everything down. I've basically bought, you know, um, you can you've got hand luggage scales, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hand luggage. I was using them. them, so I tested them against my scales, and they they seemed fairly accurate. Were they? Yeah, I reckon they they done it in. Uh, yeah, they they done the increment. Well, they it's all digital. So you just weigh it up and, and lift it, but I couldn't be accurate trying to hold it. It's a big fish mm. weighing it in. I had, um, um, sort of those zip carp sacks. So I got one of them to sort of weigh it in, zeroed it all off, but I, was ne- I couldn't be that accurate, but it wasn't, it wasn't about weight pounds and ounces for me. Anyway. That fish Not wasn't really. It? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it looked like it had spawned because I knew it'd been 39, 12, 10 years ago, <sighs> 10 years previous. It had been, that was my, the last known capture, it may, someone may have gone over there and caught it in between. Mm. I don't know. I don't know because I didn't, but I kept, you know, kept tabs on the place and I talked to a lot of people who had experience over there. And as far as I can make, I haven't been fished for a good long, good long years. And that fish was presumed dead. Um, so when I weighed it, um, it come in, I think it was like 36. So it's always 39 with, with a big, a wet sack and all that. And it was about three pound, I'd say two or three pound for the, for for the slings, so I weighed it after, so it was around sort of thirty six pounds. That'll do, mate. Won't that it? mate, that'll do. But it was just it's such an old fish. It's such old, wrinkly. It's eye one of his eyes was milky. You know, it hasn't got long. It's probably long yeah. gone by now. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we're talking now. We're going back eight nine years now, something like that. So yeah, I'm talking a little while. Eight nine years, maybe longer than that now. Yeah, longer. Longer, yeah, yeah, longer. Um, they're probably all. Unfortunately, all those fish are probably well gone. But um, but yeah, that was. Uh, and I got. I'm doing all self-takes. I'm trying the best to get shots in a self-take and they never come out great, but I thought, you know, I've got, I've got a lovely memory of it. I've got a little bit of video footage of it as well. Um, and a picture, but ruling the loss of that other fish. And I I went back and fished it more over the next, um, uh, the autumn. And I caught a a common in there, uh, which was 35 pound. Just no, never heard of a big common in there. Didn't know about a big common. Um, uh, and that was obviously very special as well. Just pretty, looks pristine. Looks like it's probably grown in there from small size and gone massive. And uh, yeah, How that was cool. Is that? Oh, it's lovely. Absolutely lovely. So that was a, another another lovely moment on that. But yeah, uh, the wildlife. Um, I, I, I've told this story before, so apologies. I don't know if you heard. Of, um, did I tell you about? Have you heard about sort of me sleeping on the ground and, and some of the wildlife and the, no, and the what's people? And, oh, God. Well, obviously this bloke could turn up and he was camping in the, in, in the, in the, in the woods. And I've obviously disposed of him. So I'm always on edge that someone's about, you know what I mean? You get over there and you, you, you hear lots of wildlife. You'll hear the deer crunch, yeah, crunch, yeah, crunch, yeah. crunch, crunch. And you can't help but think, is that someone, that someone here? 
And they're, you know, the field, you get odd people would walk dogs late, late at night. So you get the odd person about. It wasn't like there's not, not people about at all. Um, so there's, so there's one, one night I'd finished, um, um, this was in the second or the first year. I forget now. I think it might've been the first year. Um, so I was sleeping on the floor on these runs where obviously all their wildlife are using. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I'm sleeping on the floor. Um, and I remember I'm still a bit, you are getting over there sort of 10, 11 o'clock in the dark and I'd met, I'd go to work in, in the morning. Um, so I'd sometimes I'd get, I'd have, um, like a t-shirt on that I maybe worn the next day or jogging bottoms, particularly that I'd, I'd roll bait in the next day and I'm going over, I'm going over to this reserve. So it don't really matter. I'm going to go in there, sleep on the floor and then go straight to work in the morning. I got my jogging bottoms on. I got my t-shirt on from the, from the day before. Didn't think anything of it, but if you think about it, you know, all the jogging, I've got bait on it. I've got lantern sheet, particularly, which I've been rolling that day. I've got red marks all over it. I stink, stinks of fish meal and uh, t-shirt the same and everything. But I didn't think much of it. So I've gone over, gone over there and set up, done my usual sort of situation, got onto the floor, get into this um, sort of reserve and you, first thing you do, you sit down and just sit quietly for 10 minutes and just listen, make sure there's no, because in there, if there's someone about you, you'd hear them walking or yeah, hear yeah, something, because yeah. it goes definitely quiet. It's one of them places where you could hear a pin drop. So I was listening, okay, all the birds settle down after a few minutes and that, and then you think, right, they start getting the rods out. So you go for your normal stuff, sat on, uh, led on the floor, Set it all up, all lovely lot, you know. Thought, right, well, I can have a nice sleep tonight, hopefully, and uh, not be pestered with too many bream and wake up to a cart. So I'm there, and I'm dozing off, and I'm sort of falling, falling asleep. And I got to, I don't know what the time was, but it was probably about one in the morning. So pitch black, dark. Um, I've sort of, you know, when you feel like you're being watched, yeah, something like, or you just yeah, you wake yeah. up and you just something eerie. I, just, I woke up and I was, I just felt really weird, and I was like, oh, this doesn't feel very nice. And I said, okay, I'll doze back. Come on, nothing. Just go back to sleep. And all of a sudden I can hear this, just like a, a noise like in the distance. And I'm sort of, I'm sort of halfway up this reserve and then in this wooded area. And, um, there's a, a gent- it's not windy, but there's a gentle breeze, which is going down for me down, down that way. So I can't pick out the noise that well. You know, if the wind was in the other direction coming towards me, I'd, I'd be able to pick out words, but I could hear something going on. And I'm thinking, wow, that's weird. So, uh, I thought, oh, I'll just go to sleep. I'll go to sleep. So I'm not sort of led there. And I think, you know, and you can't get to sleep. And I'm just like mulling things over. Oh, I've got a bloody roll more bait tomorrow. What am I going to do? And you sort of think, and I go, no, no, I've got to sleep. So this, I heard another like clatter, like another like distinctness. It's like branches breaking or something like that. And I think, what the hell is that? And I'm thinking, oh, shit. What's... I'm thinking, is this another, is some homeless guy? Or is... yeah. I just, I don't know. Don't know what it is. It's getting louder. And I'm thinking, and this has got my attention now. And I'm sort of, okay, I'm awake now. Let's just listen. And then I heard another, it's just getting louder and louder. And this, it sounds like someone's walking through the undergrowth, like clumsily walking through the undergrowth, like branches are going over, bushes are going. I'm, I'm thinking this, this is getting close now. This is getting a bit uncomfortable. This must be, I don't know, about 80 yards away from me, I reckon. 80 yards. I think it's getting closer now because I can, I can hear it. I can hear the, the sounds and, uh, I think, yeah, do I just, what do I do? I pack up my stuff. Have I got time to pack my stuff? I just, all these things running from me. I'm thinking, if I pack my stuff, I stash it. I'm thinking, whoever it is is coming up. And if you was to walk through it, you'd probably take the natural line that I'm on because it's sort of, it's not a path, but it's sort of a, bro- yes. it's an area yeah, which, yeah, is, yeah. which has all been trodden down. So I'm sort of, uh, I'm sort of got my zip and I'm thinking, right, I've, I might have to make a run for this or do something. So I'm listening. It's getting closer, 50 yards away. 
getting noisy and I'm thinking that is definitely someone walking through the undergrowth coming towards me closer and closer and it's coming close and I'm thinking this is 20 yards I'm thinking oh shit this is I'm thinking right if this is an angle I'm just gonna go all right mate or you know I might cough or do something on. yeah yeah well I just because other people you know other people knew about it and I thought like I did I, I went over early morning on full moons to scope it out I'd walk yeah, around yeah. on a full moon have a look around and say oh I can get here I can get to there oh, this area looks good. So I thought, I bet this is someone who's really keen. You know, I did put a few people off over there with various tricks and things to, to put them off who did venture over there, but that's probably another story. But anyway, this this noise is getting louder and louder and getting towards me. And now it's like 20 yards away. And I'm thinking, well, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's going to be on me soon. It's coming this way. It ain't stopping. I don't think it's going to stop. So my feet, uh, uh, my head's at the top. Uh, well, the, my head is the furthest away from where it's coming and my feet are going to be where it's going to come on to. My bottom sleeping bag, essentially. And I've got this, all I've got this tarp, so it's all open. You can see me. Mm. So anyway, it's, it's dark as well. It was like particularly dark night. It wasn't, you know, the moon wasn't out or anything. It was a bit of a, a wind. It was a bit cloudy. So it's like pitch black. Can't really see much. And this, something's then come within five yards. And I'm thinking, right, at any moment, I'm just going to have to get out or say, all right, mate, because I think this is someone. With that, it's got to the like edge of where my tarpauling is, right next to my feet. And I've like, shit, I've got to break cover. And I've gone, I've opened my zip, I've gone, all right, mate. And I've like got that. And with that, I can only think that it's a badger. I screeched a high heaven. Oh. It's jumped, literally, I could see this, I can make out this black, it's, it's now for me to you away at the end of my feet. I can see this black and white thing, screech, jump up in the air, gone hard to its right, Almost into lake, knocked all my rods off. No. Yep. And then just clattered all the way down in the reserve, all the way down. I could hear it going through the undergrowth. All these trees and bushes. Yeah, it's, yeah, but it was a big badger. It was oh. massive. It was massive. And uh, I was thinking, oh my, I was like so relieved it wasn't a person because I was, I was ready for, I didn't know what, what are you going to do? Expect. Yeah, exactly. What, what are you going to do? do? Pitch black, two in the morning, you know. Bank um, stick. That's all you can do. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't have anything to hand. All I had was a wooden stick, which was propping my tarp up. Jeez. And I was thinking, I'm, I'm toast here. <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, absolutely crap my pants. But I was so relieved it was a bad I sort of laughed to myself. I thought, oh my God. And my heart was just in my mouth. It just, I was sweating. I was a right mess. Didn't, couldn't get back to sleep after that. But yeah, it just clattered around. And I think what had happened is, I'm obviously set up the smell of me to yeah, you, a, to a yeah. badger. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or any, any, any of those, or a fox or any, anything like that. This, this lovely smell of a land to keep boiling is wafting down this path all through these woods. And he's picked up the scent and he's just come, followed his nose and come all the way up, you know, for hopefully a big free meal. And uh, yeah, from that, Night on, I never wore me the clothes. the fright of his life, mate. Yeah. He's traumatised. I bet he's doing a podcast, mate. Going, mate, oh my yeah, God. Therapy, therapy. This lad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it scared the life out of me. But that was... Uh, That's an incredible yeah. chapter of angling. I think about like... I mean, it's maybe a bit different. Maybe it's not for you now with regards to sort of, I don't know, being a bit more sort of public with like work, with bait works, with yeah. how things are. And maybe that chapter wouldn't happen now because of that maybe it would maybe that's still something that you do but to have yeah. that at that period of time yeah to go around and sort of pioneer places there's a little bit known you might have known the odd fish here and there but realistically you haven't got a clue of the stock yeah and then to fish it in the manner whereby you can't just go there and it be free like no. free and open fishing is it's pretty cool mate i it? loved i absolutely loved it and it was that Sense of adventure, I think we all tried to capture when you're like a little boy. When you turn up somewhere, you're daunted by it. You don't know what's in there. 
you're at your depth, all of that. And I, I crave that. And, and that gave me that real buzz and to, you know, to, to coin a phrase to just motivated me to get out and, and to put everything into it. And, and I, I just, you got, I have to be careful with, with the, with what I do, with where I put my focus, because usually other things suffer for it, be it family business. And yeah. I know that that style of fishing, I could do it the way I fished it, but I couldn't do any more. And I was exhausted, even like a, you know, a month little campaign until they spawned was exhausting because I was baiting every other night or every two nights, three nights or whatever, then fishing little sleep. So I couldn't do any other fishing because I was encapsulated by that. And I can, I can zone out and zone into something and, and put everything into it. And I, I suppose I'm quite meticulous when I, other people say well, I'm not meticulous with the, if you look at my van, it's a mess, you know, it's like, mm. but I, on certain things I'm quite meticulous in, in, in what I do. And, and a campaign like that, um, deserved, deserved, but it, it needed that focus to execute it and to get in, get out. And I, I loved every minute of it and I still try and capture some of that with other fishing. So, you know, I love, I love the social side of fishing and it's great for mental health, but that side of fishing just captivated me. And I still try and, I try and emulate that and, and get, uh, get that fix of what that gave me. But I think if I ever, who knows, I don't think I ever get that back again. We've talked about probably the finest chapter in terms of the overall experience of the, of the fishing there. Another aspect for you that we're going to move on to is, and we've talked about it when we planned this, what you would deem as some of your, your finest angling, but this is on the other side of the spectrum, which is rigs, mechanics, thinking outside of the box to get rewards. Yeah. Talk to me about this specific venue. It's quite a small venue and it's yeah. got quite a small head of very riggy, very tricky to catch carp and how your sort of, if you want your thirst, your sort of, information your processing and your and your rig mechanics and not being i don't know swayed by convention trends and how people go about their fishing or what scene how that led to your success mate yeah so the uh i call it the bird pit that's probably bird pit but it's it's a pond you know it's a tiny tiny place it's a oh acre and a half i think at, at best maybe two acres um but it's uh it's a unique set of circumstances in, in how you're able to fish it and the actual setup of the lake itself. So the lake itself, as I said, is about an acre and a half, two acres. Um, there was, there were two lakes originally, which have basically been joined. There was like a, a, and now there's two islands in it. So if you imagine like a a figure of eight, probably the best description of it, two, they're small dot islands. Um, so they're very, very small, but there's, there's two, a lake of two halves, if you like. One's really, really shallow and the other's you know, depths of like sort of two to three foot. And the other other half of it is probably about, I don't know, deepest area, eight to nine. Right. Um, but interestingly, it's fed by um, a uh, chalk stream. It's really unique. So the water quality going in there is tap clear which makes for a tap clear environment in the lake because the stock density is very low. There's only, well, when I was fishing it, there was 13 carp um, up to mid forties, but these fish had just seen it all old fish, been there for a number of years, all come from eclectic places. It used to be a syndicate. Then basically a guy who bought it um, turned it into, it's not a book in style. That's probably the wrong word for it because but you, but it is run in that way. So instead of having like a 30 or 40 man syndicate on there, he's got a 20 man 
syndicate, if you like, but you only get two weeks fishing. So one in the winter, one in the summer. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lottery of when you get that week in the summer, when you get that week in the winter. Um, and that way, obviously, is 20 members. That takes up 40 weeks of the year. Um, and I think it may have extended a membership now to cover all the all the weeks, but that's how it was run. And there's a traditional close season, so that sort of covers your covers your uh, your, your fishing. Um, so, yeah, that was um, in terms of an exciting place to go and fish. I don't think I've fished anywhere quite as exciting as that because the nature of the lake is gin clear. There's loads of, like watercrest and and uh, say the inflow and the outflow. There's always water passing through it. It's always a flow. And the fish have got big and massive on a lot of natural food, a bit of bait, but mostly natural food. But they know their environment because it's so small, such a tiny little lake. Um, so I've I've joined the syndicate, if you like. I've got my uh, got my week. Um, and my week was, I'm pretty sure it was end of May, which is a you know, fantastic Belter. week. Fantastic week to be on there anyway. I'm pretty sure it was end of May, maybe the first week of June, but one of those. One of those. Um, I'm just trying to cast my mind back. When was it? It was closed for certain points. I can't remember when. It wasn't traditional. I don't think. But my mind sort of escapes me in terms of when it was. But <laughs> no worries. It was closed closed for certain times. Maybe when they spawn or something like that. But it was closed for a certain time. But anyway, I've gone on there end of May, sort of beginning of June. And um, uh, it's just a captivating place. Absolutely captivating. Because of, it's big, all big, huge, mature trees. You can get up and you can find the fish. You walk around, you can find the fish absolutely everywhere. Can you see the bottom in that eight foot? Just um, about, yeah. Right wow. time of year, most of the time of year. Um, I say, because there's only 13 fish and nothing else in there, apart from a couple of perch and the odd pike. Um, there's nothing else to obscure or to, or to kick up. And the, the stock density is incredibly low for the, the lake of that size. So and it's gin clear because of the flow. So any algal blooms, you've got it's push, the rivers pushing through and, and taking that out of the equation straight away. And it's a chalk stream, so it's, it's, it's uh-huh. unique. So, yeah, these fish, prior to it being set up as a as sort of a, a similar sort of booking style where you get your one week winter and summer, prior to that, it was a syndicate. It was heavily pressured. And those fish were known about and fished for. And there's some very good anglers from all over the country had fished for them. So they know their way around rigs mm. and everything. So, you know, turning up there, a handful of boilies probably ain't going to do it. <laughs> Not just, you know, conventionally. So it was such a, a, a exhilarating, because you only get that, then two bites of the cherry, you know, each yeah. time you've got to go there and you've got to fish it. You can fish it as hard or as you can treat it as a holiday. You can take a mate with you or whatever, but. I was like, you know, it's, it's not hugely expensive. I think it was like 400 quid. So you're paying 200 quid a week, aren't you, essentially? So my my, my um, feeling was I'm going to go in, I'm going to fish it hard and then have a little break on a Wednesday and then fish the, the back end of the week hard again. So it's like Saturday to Saturday or whatever. Um, so we always used to, when I, when I fished it, the first night I'd say, right, I, I want to try and get in there, sneak in there and sort of assess it. So I didn't, I was in no rush to get the rods out whatsoever. So I turn up there in the afternoon, beautiful like afternoon, sun's out. And I would sneak in and then I would sort of do a lap and just, you, you had to be so careful because there's a lot of fence all the way around it. And in some areas it's, it, it's tight. It's like a bivy space to Ooh. the, to the water and the deeper end like shelves straight off. So you're right on top of the fish. Yeah, you walk one, one footstep out of place and they know you're there. So I'd walk around and try and do a circuit as best you can. And, and some of the times you're crawling on your belly, on your knees <laughs> to get from you know, one swim to the other. 
um, using the the skyline and um, but but you're seeing fish and when they didn't know you were there, they're behaving like normal carp and and they're they're coming up in the water and even if they're four foot down, you, you see them. But these fish were just circling around and they're you know, they're big fish as well. There was thirteen fish. I think at the time there was like five forties. Wow. All the rest were like most of them were thirty five plus. One or two smaller ones, like a twenty and and maybe a, a low thirty. Um, so so if you if you get a chance, it's it's, it's hopefully going to be incredible fish. But they're just old, it's old, 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 old fish. A lot of them, unfortunately, probably now have have long gone. But um, yeah, back then I, I used to sort of sneak in and, and do a lap and assess where the fish were. Importantly, not not let them know I was there. Then rather than rushing to get the rods out, I'd sleep on the bed chair with no bivy for the first night. And you just sort of just listen. And usually they would show in the night and, and slosh over and you'd work out activity wise where they, where they were spending their time before you thought of like make your approach the next day. So next day would come, you'd get up at the crack of dawn and you'd con- I'd constantly just walk it and not even, not even put a rod in initially. It was constantly walking and working out where there was an opportunity to ambush or, or to, to um to get in and 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 create a trap if you like because it was it's not sort of your to me it wasn't your conventional fishing where you're gonna well, you're gonna set up in a swim and I go seven wraps out there and yeah 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 eight wraps here and I'm gonna bait with a better hemp and then they got caught on that don't get me wrong you know they're carp at the end of the day but yeah to catch invariably you look at the catch reports and it does a, a bite a week. Maybe right, a bite every going. a bite every two weeks. There's only thirteen carp in there. Mm. So you think thirteen carp, how many bites? It's like any fishery, you're looking at stock density. How many bites are those fish gonna give you in a year? You can't rely on one fish to come out ten times, although some do. Mm. You think, right, one fish equals two and a half captures, three captures a year. So, you know, thirteen fish, you're looking at what, forty captures roughly for you know, for, for the lake stock, you divide that over a week, 40 weeks, well, that's maybe, maybe one carp a week, maybe, maybe a chance a week, every other week. So you, you're up against it straight away. You know, it's not going to be a runs water, although, you know, carp fishing, the flip side of that is there's conditions would dictate sometimes that goes nothing, nothing for two weeks and you might get three or four, yeah, you know, it's, so it's, there's always that sort of thrown in the equation, but on this particular one, I knew it's sort of going to be very nip and tuck and getting the bait in and, bait application, what was I going to use and, and rigs as well, because they're so, so riggy, gin clear water. They've seen everything a million times and you think, right, how, how can you be different and set yourself apart from what's gone before? So after walking around uh, numerous times, there's a couple of um, areas where they've basically, where the lake's been joined many, many years ago, there's raised areas and the fish want to get on those areas, but anglers dictate they don't because yeah. as soon as they know anglers there, they're not going to sit there. But because they didn't know I was there, they were coming up and sit behaving and sitting on these air up to this point and having cast a rod in. So what's the beauty of that particular lake? And I'd probably liken it. I've, I've never fished it, but from talking to anglers, a bit like Ashley Pool, gin clear, yeah. get around, watch your quarry. And that to me is just everything. So I was up trees watching them and then I, I had um, pockets full of bait and I found the best way, well, I found in time the best way, but the best way I was finding, I was I went there with a plan of fishing like ridiculously small baits, like tiny. There's no other nuisance species not going to get problems with roach or rud, tench or anything like that. So I was going down like, um, as, a, as a mixture of pellet and boily. I know that they loved trout pellets. So I've been told that in, from the syndicate years before. I know they've been caught on pellet before, which yeah. 
sometimes you think, okay, that's gone before, but it hasn't been used for a long time. So I thought, okay, pellets is definitely, I'm putting in my van, it's, it's there. Um, and I thought, right, if I'm going to fish a conventional sort of boilie, I'm going to make up little hook baits. So I made up tiny, tiny little hook baits, which were probably six mil. Some of them were like pellet shaped. Um, others had a slight bit of buoyancy if I should, if I should need it, sort of wafters, if you like, with a little bit of cork. So I made up these little, little hook baits to use. I had, a, I had that first session, I had everything with me because you just never know. Of course. What's what, going to present itself. Hemp, I had particles and you just take everything out and had floaters, you know, all, all, it's all there. So, um, so I went, uh, yeah, I went around, found these fish on the shallows or the shallower areas. And then from the tree, just literally dotting a mixture of these little tiny six and eight mil boilers and single pellets. I was able to get them in without them spooking because they're, they're just it's, you know, like a 15 mil going in. Yes. Yeah, creates crap. some sound of vibration, yeah. but these little ones would drop in and flutter down and rest. And I found that those fish were so much more comfortable coming in and feeding on them tiny food items, moving from bait to bait, moving around and picking them off. I'm thinking, yeah, they, if I can get a rig in there and they don't see the bait, this is game on now. I'm sure if I'd have baited up with like 20, 15 millers or whatever, it's not the one on there. They're just... They'd be very, very cautious in the way they approach and everything. But these tiny little pellets, I was thinking, well, I don't know if these have been used down here, but they certainly have got a really good reaction and these little tiny little boilers. So I made up sort of a, a, a fish mill mix to mimic a pellet, pretty much identical right. with the yaw and everything. The only difference is I'm using binders um, and boiling the bait to skin it. So in essence, it's giving off all the same food signals as, as the pellets I'm feeding. And it looks exactly the same, albeit tiny, tiny bit bigger. You know, say like four mil most of the pellets from feeding. So, yeah, I'm dropping these bits of pellets onto these spots and I'm watching where these fish are moving and going around the lake. And there's this one area um, where it's, uh, quite, it's the longest length of bank in the shallow area. There's a load of this, uh, there's like floating, um, floating, lots of different types of, of weeds, but particularly there's sort of millfall, which is coming out, almost breaking the surface. And there's a couple of areas where there was, uh, a slight depression where it dropped from three foot to three and a half foot. So nothing, a nothing area really, but it was on a patrol route where these fish would come in and out of this shallower end of the lake into the deeper end. And always the fish would pass like really tight under the bank there. And I was thinking that just looks like a, a golden little spot. Didn't look it had been fished. You know, there's designated swims on the lake where 90% of the anglers would fish from, but the owner said, you can go fish where you want, as long as you know, just be careful and fish where you want. So like, this, to me, that was like, right, I'm going up on that bank when, where it's yeah, so no tight one. to get a bivy <laughs> yeah. that, you know, no one's ever going to, no one's going to fish there. And in the end, what I did, I, I fished it a couple of years. So over time, I, I actually set up two bivies, one on each end of the, there's two lakes almost. So I set two bivies. One up. at the deeper end, one at the shallower. Yeah. So I could, cause I go, I go and back, I to pack down the bivy so many times to go back on, cause I was chasing them all yeah. over the place. But I had them up in these the shallower water or these fish wanted to spend more time there, but it was the anglers lines that would dictate that and their presence. They didn't. So then they go to the deeper end. And in my opinion, when they're in the deeper end, it was a little trickier to catch them because you've got some visual, but you know, this, the jing, the clarity of the water at the top end, the shallows was just amazing. So I had this, this sort of crater, which had obviously been fed in before because that's why it's a crater. So it's probably an old spot. And I thought, well, I'm going to drop same tactic my little pellets on there. Um, there's a little spindly tree, which, you know, had no right to climb really, but I managed to perch myself up on top of it. And I still haven't put a rod in the water, but first fish that came over, 
um, was a a big it's a big orangey fish, and they call it the big orange in there, and that's like a a known forty pounder, one of the known forty pounders, and that came in. It's um it's quite distinctive because it's got uh, its jaw is always open. So we've seen some yeah some like locked jaw jobs. It's yeah, weird, yeah. yeah. So something's happened. The jaw is constantly open, still got a bit of suction, but it's just, so when you take a photograph of it, it's jaw, it's always unhanged, like it's just always there. It looks terrible, but yeah. you know, it's always hung down. It's just, but it's such a character of a fish. And um, so that fish um, dipped down and, and mopped up a couple of pets. So I'm thinking, yeah, this is, this is looking good. So I've, uh, I've set, set a rod up, set, set everything up and I've managed to set myself in amongst all these stinging nettles. And um, I've set the spot up thinking, it's either going to be first light or, or an evening um, as the fish are sort of passing. But what I didn't know is that the fish were spending actually a lot of time in the shallows in the night. So um, these fish were staying up those shallows because in essence, they didn't know I was there. Um, that's where they want to be all the time in three foot of water. It was lovely and warm. The weed wasn't that excessive because obviously the weed was, it expires, it would take out oxygen at night. It wasn't that bad. It was, it was comfortable enough for them to stay there. Um, and they were disregarding sort of the deeper end for whatever reason for that week I was there. So I was like, well, I need to concentrate trait here. So dropping a few pellets in, I then had to devise sort of a, a rig to try and catch them. And I was thinking, well, these fish have seen absolutely everything. I know when they're sucking the pellets in, there's not a lot of suction taking place. So it needs to be quite delicate. I can't go more conventional sort of um, um, too much, too many elements on the rig where it's very stiff and, um, and I'm trying maybe to hook them in a different way when I'm fishing with more conventional boilers. Um, these fish, I need, I need to scale everything down as much as I dare to try and fish for them in a, in a semi weedy condition to land the fish. Cause you've got to be, got to be safe. So, so yep. I do, and so I, I remember putting, uh, putting together the rig, which was a tiny, tiny supple, supple part. And I'm, I'm literally, the rig is the whole length of it is what, two in maybe two inches the whole length of the rig total yeah it's absolutely tiny because i'm watching these fish as they're feeding and they're they're coming in they're they're sucking a pellet up but they're not tilting up right they're just they've they've seen it all before and they're they're eating a bit and they're almost sorting it out as they're and they're 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 not stationary but as they're they're not coming and tilting up right and i can't help but think they've been fished for so long that you know they want to hit that lead yeah, I think once once a fish goes in tilts, goes upright and starts pulling away, everything's tightening up, then it's game over, isn't it? But these yeah. fish just just fed in a slightly different way to anything I've seen. And I just think it's one probably obviously the situation I've created with the pellet has probably something to do with it. But also they've been fished for for well over sort of thirty years and it's such an intense environment. When the syndicate was on there prior, you know, you'd get three, four people there on the weekend and, you know, it's they're just being fished for all the time and they're getting away of it and yeah, they didn't didn't do loads and loads of captures. It was just a hard lake, you know, yeah, a really hard yeah. little lake. So I thought, right, it has to be has to be really really short. I have to try and get that hook set as quickly as possible. So it was um, uh, a size eight hook, so a tiny tiny hook, um, a tiny little sliver of the baits that I'd made. So in essence, I could have fished a, a bear hook with a sliver of cork. Mm. I probably should have done that. I probably should have done that, but I needed something on there for them to to isolate and target because I was putting in literally like eight pellets, baiting up with eight or nine pellets. That was it. I wasn't putting any more in. I didn't want to put a handful in. I'd create a different baiting situation if I put a handful in. And you're spreading those eight pellets Yeah, they're, they're going at the size of a, a dustbin lid. That was all the size where it dropped down sort of half a foot 
and I'd dot them all round the dustbin lid, and my bait was off further to my, my bait was further to the left than it was to to the right because I anticipated the fish coming from the right. And what I found with rigs and bait, and if you can get them get them consuming a bait or two before they reach the rig, that's just golden because they're once they once they pick up a bait, ingest, and they're feeding, it's switching on all their receptor sites. They've they've located food that they want something you know, want another and they not that they lose caution but they're in feeding mode mm. and once they're in feeding mode feeding mode coming onto a rig you know this they're a lot more easier i find to catch i see it all the time with floater fishing i'll put out a pouch full of floaters the first one or two they're they're coming up and they're missing it or they're looking at it as soon as they take one or two bang they're in the feeding mode next one bang they've clumped it and they're you know sort of getting their eye in <laughs> so to speak so i position the rig while well, i thought the fish were coming from the right um, so I positioned my rig on the, on slightly left. So I knew it had two or three pellets, which is nothing before it hit the hook bait. So put it in the first night and, uh, I've, uh, gone, to, gone to bed all sort of confident, got up in the morning, morning and, um, looked at, looked at the spot and the bait on the right hand side's all gone. Everything on the left is still there. And there's like four, three or four pellets on the left and my rig and the bait. And I'm thinking, what has happened there? They've obviously come in from the right, which I thought because it's an obvious route in from, the shallow the shallower bit um where i thought they were sitting all night and i thought they come they've done that they've done that and they've then they've done something's alerted and then they've gone i couldn't life me work out what it was and i was, I was looking at the situation and at the time i had the line I had the lead in and i had the line sort of slack all the way and slack to the rod tip and all the way up and i was thinking they twig something here and the only thing i could put it down to i think the hook's covered the hook's yeah, got a little bit of shine to it, but with a balanced bait, it's, it's on top of, you know, it's, it's resting on top of the hook. So that's, I don't think that's it. Maybe it's sucked in and blown out. I, I could see the position of the rig and it looked like it may have moved the orientation of it. Cause I'm, you know, when you're dropping it in that clear water, you can yeah. like, well, I'm going to drop it and there's a little pebble there. I'm going to put it there. And it moved so, but that could have been from the fish just displacement as they've come in and spooked off something. And it's just, cause it's a balanced bait. So I can't, what, I can't. What was the lead system that you had with this? Cause you said you had like a two inch, Two inch hook length, didn't you? A bit yeah. of a supple section. Yes. And a small hook. What was it? Tiny hook. Did you have a little inline or what did you have it on? Yeah, so it was an inline. Um okay. so I wanted to bring that lead in straight away. Yeah. So my usual setup for that would be a four ounce inline. So yeah. big lead. Big lead. I wanted to send that hook in, which was um drop drop off style. Um so it just enough that it would you get the full weight of a four ounce lead and then it'd pop out and then it'd be free. Yeah. And then okay. you know, I could put my hand down and grab the lead and Use it for the next time yeah. if I was that lucky, which I did actually. That did happen. Nice. So, um, so um, yeah, so a very big lead, very, very short hook link, and then the uh, supple two-inch hook link, but then I extended the hook shank with um, a bit of monofilament. So, in, in essence, she's doing a little combi rig, but it was ridiculously tight before I st- I've started doing other ways of doing that. But back then when I was doing it, this was quite um 10 years, no, 14, 15 years ago now. Um, I, I knew from a lot of my findings from stalking fish that extending the hook shank, making it into a more of a, not a bent hook, but uh, yeah. an extension, just give them all sorts of problem when that bait goes up and in, in terms of the way it moves in the, in the oral cavity. It's, if you think about it, if you've got a section stiff like that, if it's going in, it tries to go up, it's hitting something and it's, you know, you, the last thing you want is the hook to sort of double back on itself and come back out as it's blowing out. Whereas those those stiff sections can sort of jam and and move, and it creates the fish to panic. So I knew 
extending that will give me uh, the most the most benefit. How, knew, how have you joined them? An Albright knot? That was an Albright yeah, knot yeah, at the okay. time. Yeah, yeah. I, I've since then sort of done other things to uh, to create. You can, the, the beauty of now is there's so many rig components out there. <laughs> yeah. it's amazing. Like now, you know, you've got little ring swivels and clips where you can attach stuff. All different monofilaments, all different fluorocarbons. So I love it because you just. You can look on the market now and I'll buy bits from different companies if I need to, to, to do a job and to, to make yeah, yeah. something more mechanical. I think, oh, that's, the, that's it. That's an Olivet. I can do that with that. Or I can do this for that. So, yeah, the rig was, I knew the rig had to be tiny because I've watched the way they feed. And um, there was a, so the two inches and there was a, in between sort of the hook link, there was a little counterweight as well, which at the time would have been like a little BB shot, okay. something like that. So a little BB shot. So to, to give me, once that's up and in, I needed weight on the back end to drag along the, the fish's mouth. So once it's in, and a tiny hook like that, like a size eight, they're so sharp, you know, they're so, yeah. so I wasn't sharp in hooks back then, but they were, they were ridiculously sharp anyway. Once they're in, they're like a little bee sting, they're in like, you know, so they're not, it's not going anywhere. So I'm thinking, I can't be the the rig. So I'm sure if I'd have got a pickup, it would have done its job. So if something's happened to alert the carp. So I looked at the lead and I thought, okay, I can see the lead on the bottom. Maybe, but it was, it wasn't like a garish shiny thing. It was like, a, I think at the time it was a, um, like a coated lead. So it looked okay, but I thought, okay, I can, I can sort the lead out. Cause I know what I'm going to do with that, which I've done on other places. So I still on the setup where, um, so this is the second night now. So on the second night, I thought, right, I need to change things up. So the lead, I then got basically, there's lots, although it's, um, a, a pond there's like clay seams and that so i grabbed yeah. some clay out the margins and i smeared that onto there so it looked like a little clay ball on the bottom so nothing really it it looked a little bit stark because everything around it was dark and it had this like bit of orangey clay i'm thinking well mm, i might be going a bit o, ott here but you know these fish have been fished for i'm sure a bit of clay down there is not going to arouse suspicion and then i looked at the uh, the line lay and i'm thinking this has to be line lay you know, rigs is one thing, but I don't think I've got a pickup. I think this is all to do with the line coming back. No matter how well I think I'm pinning it down to the bottom, slack lining, all that. I think there's, there's a chance we're on the slack line as the fish are coming in feeding, it can get wafted up. It could get picked up on, on all sorts of stuff. So I'm thinking I've got to take that line out. And I thought, how am I going to take the line out the equation? Um, and it, and it sort of come to me from watching the, watching the fish, in the day. So you can watch the fish all day. Although the bite time was predominantly going to be in the morning. I thought, well, you know, a lot, a lot of the day was spent watching the fish and sometimes bring the rigs out because I could see it's gin clear. They're not feeding. They're just like going around mm-hmm. their normal business. And I noticed they were going, um, on the shallower bot, there's lots of like bits, reed stems that are poking out the water and everything. And there's weed and everything. So, and they're going around and they're, they, they think nothing of the reeds then brushing against them, brushing against themselves and that. So I'm like, okay, so the line, you know, a, a reed stem is not spooking to them or any of the bits of weed. So, so at this time I'm fishing one rod. I'm only fishing one rod. There's no need for a second rod. There's nowhere for it to go. Mm. There's no point. So the second, uh, the, the rod set up, I thought, right, let's, uh, got the little clay bit on the lead. That's, that's good. My rig's fine. Everything's pinned down. I thought, right now, I want to suspend the line going straight up from the lead up to the surface somehow, then back to the rod tip. Out where, so everything's out of the water. The only thing that's in the water is the line from the lead to the to the surface. So scrambled about in my van, had um, a cork, 
So I've got a cork. So, okay, that's my float, essentially, which I can come back from to the rod yeah. tip. And it, we're only fishing, I don't know. I'm fishing like literally you know, where your feet are from the bank. So it's not as though I've got to go out a long way. I'm literally just dropping off the rod tip. So I can set my rod up, nice high tip, and I'm going from a rod tip to where the bait, to, to where the where it goes Corkage, down to the lake yeah. is like half a rod length, like nothing. So yeah. I can do that. So I've got the cork all set up. I've just literally cut into the cork so it's, um, in this, so I've, I've created a cut straight through the middle to the centre so I can literally like pinch it on the line. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, so in yeah. the fight, it's, it'll come off. It's got like a groove and then it's, as soon as it's yeah. tight, it's gone. Exactly. It just needs to hold for what I'm doing. Mm. But if, I, if it goes through the weed, it comes off and it's out of the way. It's not a lobster. There's no knots or anything like that. I thought, right, from cork down to the hook bait, um, I looked at reeds. So I tried to, so I got a couple of the reeds out of the water, um, tried to fasten them and tried to tie them on. But in the end, I found the best way there was like long strands of sort of the milfoil uh, and Canadian. So you'd pick a strand up and it'd be like three, four foot long, some of them. I right. thought, oh, that's perfect. So I'd, so on the, so I'm on the bank trying to figure out what I'm going to do all day, sort of watching these fish and they're, they're clearly not feeding. I think I'm setting up now for the night and the next morning. So I have plenty of time. Um, so, um, yeah, so he's, uh, I got the, I got the Canadian pond leaves sort of tight, tied it in a bit of a knot then tied it down segments all the way down the line. Um, and anchoring the top bit importantly in with the cork as well. So that gave him a structure and I got a strand then coming down. So I got a strand coming down sort of wrapped around the line. Then I tied bits to that all the way down. So it looks like a big bit of weed. Yeah, just a big bit of weed, just just which is just fronds of weed, which is all sat there. But importantly, the line's concealed to the carp. They can touch it. They can do anything they want. It doesn't. It's not going to hopefully not spook them. And you know, I've done prior to my carp fishing when I was a young boy. I done a lot of you know float fishing and match fishing. That and I, you know anyone who match fishes will tell you that you know the carp will feed happily on a float. You can stalk them on floats and that, and they just their tails are hitting the line, and they don't necessarily at the moment associate that vertical line with danger. Mm. If we all started fishing like it, if everyone, that was the going practice to have a vertical line down, they'd work it out within weeks, you know, months or whatever. And it'd be a, a tactic you wouldn't be able to use, but because no one does it, you know, carp learn from association. So by having this all out the water, I thought, I wonder how they're going to react to this. So set it all up, get it all sorted then put the rods out for the evening, for the night and uh, sat back or see then, redone the pellets, put another four pellets out because there's already four pellets still there because they, they haven't moved. Um, position exactly the same thing, but this time obviously I've got a big strand of weed coming out and a core coming back to the rod tip. I've set my rod up high and I was thinking this looks a little bit ridiculous. It's blatant, yeah, yeah. It looks a bit, it looks a bit agricultural, but do you know what? The premise is sound in terms of what's going to happen, what I think is going to happen. And a little bit of weeds drifted onto the spot where they're feeding. That's, yeah. that's it. You know, I don't think they're going to twig any different. So, yeah, I, I set the rod up and literally just on first light, I've had an absolute one toner, bang, it's, it's gone. I'm on, a, on it in a flash. So I'm sort of bivvied up, I don't know, five yards away. Literally, I'm, I'm pointing at the off fence and I've got the electric bar at the top and I've got to sort of squeeze out and that's the only place I can get an umbrella to sleep. Literally <laughs> facing away from the lake. Yeah, it's pretty mental. Uh, so I've scrambled round and I'm playing this just all down, all down the margins. Um and it's in only sort of two and a half, three foot of water. So it's going absolutely ballistic. Tiny little hook. So you're sort of, you know, mouse in your heart. First fish, you know, from the first fish you've hooked from the venue. And uh, yeah, managed to 
get it up, get it and play it and get it into the net. And it was, uh, yeah, I fished at roll and it was the one I'd seen the day, day before the big orange, which was, uh, it's Matt, well, it's dying in weight. Unfortunately, when I fished it, they had spawned probably a few weeks prior to that. Um, so it's 38 pound, but one of the known, the known 40 pound fish in the lake with that big drop mouth. I got a lovely picture of me, uh, it was just on first, uh, just into first light, and the sun was just poking up. And I've rushed to get the self takes for the sun bleak because you know, sun on a fish like that would just bleach. Oh, yeah. So I've managed to get the picture, and I've got a, a not a great photo, but a, a decent enough with me in the background, all the mist coming up, and all the all the water, all the floating weed, and everything like that all behind me. But yeah, that that sort of set the tone. Once I found out that little routine, I then that whole week then um, managed to catch well, I caught four that week, which nice. was which is a huge a huge amount of fish for you know nearly half the lake stock I suppose, which is tiny. There was one particular fish that I sort of joined there to catch, um, and it was a, a linear a linear. Uh, they call it the old leany in there, and I, the origins I don't know, but it was just such a chestnut sort of coloured fish. It was just amazing, amazing fish to watch in the water could find it all the time because of the color of it. Um, just different to the other ones were a bit more gray and a, you know, a bit more old school, I suppose, or wrinkly. Whereas this, this linear was uh, yeah, a special carp and uh, it, it didn't get caught a lot. And that was, that worried me. Cause I'm thinking, well, it only does one or two captures a year, probably one capture a year. And it's gone a year, but without capture before I'd love to sort of, you know, try an angle for that one. Um, and in, uh, in the middle of the week, I started seeing that fish sort of appear and in the day as well, it'd come over the spot and, and sort mm. of look and everything like that. So that one would, would be getting about. And I was thinking, oh, quite, that one's, uh, hopefully that one's um, got my name on it. But the spot um, that I fished sort of dried up. I sort of had had one take off it. Um, and then I moved, uh, the, the fish sort of then moved down to the deeper section. And okay. that, that was, uh, I was like gutted because I was thinking, I've got something going here. But I thought they might be back. You know, this is early doors, but for whatever reason, they've gone down to the other section. So I've gone down to the deeper section. Um, and I was thinking, well, I need to apply what I've done there here. Um, so on the far bank, there's a, a no fishing bank all the way along with it, with a sort of little river, chalk river runs along. And I was thinking, right, how can I get, you know, conventionally everyone will cast over there and, and cast as tight to the margin as a gravel shelf going down. Yeah. And I'm thinking, how can I get over there and, and get a bait in position, particularly with this um, weed up the line? And I thought this is going to be tricky. So, um, you know, the, the free rod chick has been, been used a million times, but mm. it was perfect for there back then. It was absolutely perfect. And, uh, um, the owner was no, there's no problem doing it along the setup all safely and all, all that palaver. Yeah. So, so the fish were going along sort of the deeper, deeper bank. And I could, from the trees from the far bank, you could see there's an outlet there, which goes back into the river and I could see where they were patrolling. And on this sort of chalk cliff, if you like, there's a couple of ridges and a couple of areas where, you could potentially present bait. So I, I've done exactly the same thing on that, that area and basically present cast, uh, cast third rod, cast over, reeled my rig over to the far bank and then basically went and put like the washing line set up on that far bank. But importantly, the washing line then to a cork marker <laughs> and then dying. Right. So it's, it's quite a faff to get it. But once it was set up, it started, I was thinking, well, you know, if they come in and feed like they I've seen in the shallows, we're going to catch one. Uh, lo and behold, literally the next morning, the rod's gone off and it's, um, there's only one common in the lake, um, which is a, uh, a rarish visitor to the lake, but it did come out. Um, and that was 28, 29, one of the smaller ones in the lake. Um, and that was on that method. Exactly the same thing. Rod, rod pin tie over there with a, a big drop, big drop back, big boil. And, uh, yeah, hooked that one and, um, played that one all back and didn't lose it. And that was, 
that common. So I was like buzzing, absolutely buzzing. I was like, wow, if I can just get this rig in amongst these fish, they, they just, the line lay was so, so crucial because it's so weedy, particularly that time of year. You know, the lake bottom, whenever you, I've snorkeled quite a lot of lakes and I'm quite fortunate to, to run lakes where I can just go in and, and yeah, get down see. and see. And, and when you get down, which is one thing looking above where you're seeing all the weed beds, when you get down and looking at literally on my belly's on the, the lake bed and I'm, you're looking across, there's loads of deviations. And no matter how well you think that line lay is, it's never a hundred percent. It's very rare to get it all laying flat. So I think these fish over conditioning had just worked out that, you know, the, the, the line was the, one of the biggest. If they can see the rig, yeah, they're going to spook. But the line lay was the, one of the biggest ones because conventionally everyone was just fishing out over weed and weed was going down in, and the line was coming over the weed down onto spots and yeah. down onto areas. So the line lay on there was absolutely pivotal in in success. So Do having, you think if you hadn't put weed down that as well, you'd have still got those takes? Yeah, interesting. I Maybe, you know, maybe, yeah. Just I, because of the fact that it's straight up. So I have used it um, uh, recently. So I used it on, I've done a couple of videos on our YouTube channel. Um, well, the opening night at, at Syndicate, I always try and video it. And I was in a swim, which lended itself perfectly to it because there was, it's a, where I was fishing was a deep, it was a deep side and it's like 12 foot of water. So a bit more problematic to, to do, so, to, ex- yeah. to execute. Yeah. But um, there was weed in front of me, like literally a rod length out, two rod lengths out. And there was a, a hump about seven wraps, seven wraps out. But between me and the hump was weed that come up quite high. Right. So you could play fish through it. There's no problem fishing it. But your line lay is horrendous. Yeah. You just, there's no way you can yeah. get that line down unless you fish like a little flying back lead, but you know, and all that. But there's just no way of getting it down. So I thought, well, it's the opening knot. It's more about the social side of things. So I thought, I'm, I'm going to fish this. And I documented it. So I bought myself um, some uh, big pike buns. buns yeah, you know, these yeah, big yeah. ones, the big, the biggest ones you can get, basically. And recently I've got, um, I was down, uh, uh, where was we? It was down, is it Croy? Weymouth, 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 I think. And I went into one of the sea fishing tackle shops and they had these big polystyrene ones, which they use for sharks and all that. Yeah, like, you know, proper they, were, they were the ones. So I got those because it's all about getting enough buoyancy and a heavy lead to basically then get your line out of the water coming back because you haven't got to have enough float or lead. It drags yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it does it. So yeah, I found those polystyrene ones. But at the time I was using the pike ones on this, on this opener. And um, so I thought, right, I'm going to fix the line with a little... Um, uh, stop knot. So stop knot went at 14 foot, 13 foot. I know it's 12 foot depth. Um, and then going to, obviously that floats free sliding in the event of a, a break, breakage, it will pull over the knot or anything. So it's nice and safe. And I put a little bead above, um, at the time I had a little, a little bit of tubing. So I needed something for that separation for the hook. Mm. Cause otherwise if I cast that, it could wrap around yeah, the float. Tangle. So I had a bit of tubing. So on the bottom, I had a bit of tubing sticking right up and that was, I don't know, 18 inches. You're joking. But it didn't worry me because I'm thinking those fish haven't seen that before. No, they've never different. seen. So to them, it's like a stick. It can be anything. So, you know, you could put anything down there and it's only for association that carp are learning yeah. how to deal things or, or with danger. So something stuck up. I don't think they're going to think anything of it. So it went straight up to the, obviously the float hit cast out. The float hits the uh, stop knot at 12, 13 foot. So I've got a little bit of give so I can angle the float sort of on an angle back to me, then straight to rod tip, um, and then fished it straight down just with a conventional boilie. And um yeah, that uh that well I caught two fish that night into the morning. We didn't 
didn't do a lot of fishing because we, you know, it's a more of a social barbecue event. So we went over, had some food, but yeah, it worked perfectly. And then the, the added bonus was as you're playing it, that float is keeping everything above the fish when you're playing it. A bit, you know, when they fish at rainbow with floats yeah, of course. and all that. Yeah. So that's keeping everything away from the weed as you're playing it and landed them sort of no problem. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a method that I definitely use. I use, I've used it, not loads of times, but in the right situation, it's deadly, you know, absolutely deadly. And especially those, those areas of lakes on shallows where, you know, the fish want to be there every day. You cast a rod like 40 yards and it's, they're gone, aren't they? Because of the, and not some from the splash of the lead, a lot of it is just line lay. Yeah. So if you can you take think? the, take the line lay out, fish a, fish a pike bung right in the middle of them and they they just swim around and brush against it. They don't care. So it's, it was, it was that mm. sort of thinking, particularly on those old fish that have seen it all before. They hadn't seen that. And that was the key on there. They hadn't seen that and they didn't, they had no script book to deal with it because they were getting hooked. There was a, a bit of clay at the bottom, which was, you know, inert. So a bit of clay, they've seen loads that for. There's a bit of weed coming up. Well, they swim through weed every day and don't get hooked. And there's a tiny little hook link with a, looks like a little free pellet. And that was, that was the key on there. Um, so I took, I went back up to the shallows and started seeing that big chestnutty one, which I was, I was thinking, wow, that chestnut one's now up the top then. I'm moving back up. So I moved back up. I'd say the second year I started setting two bivvies up, but the first year I, I moved up there and, um, um, yeah, moved up to that top end, sort of, um, prepped the area again. Um, and it was obvious that, you know, the, all the pellets had gone from the night before. So everything was sort of a fresh slate, if you like, yeah. from a couple of nights before. Um, but I saw that chestnutty one, which was circling at the top. And I'm thinking if that fish stays up here, we're in here, you know, this is a good chance. So set the traps all over again. And it was just one of them them nights when it was a little bit muggy, a bit overcast, a bit of electric. And on, on a water like that, where it's so, so small and intimate, and you've got lots of mature trees, which I climbed up, you know, climbed up all of them. I was walking round and round and round. You get so much shin splints just from walking round in the day because there's nothing else to do. Yeah. Can't really find the fish. I tried floaters, I tried everything, but you know, the float was almost alerted them to your presence. So it's not the ones you just want to leave them to do what they want to do. And you knew that bite time was the morning anyway. Um, so set the rod up again, same as, same as last, um, uh, had to get, um, another bit of cork. So there's a couple of shops down the road, had to go and buy bottles, you know, just to wine or whatever. Just of course you cork, did. Cause That's I had no cork. Classic so, excuse. Yeah, yeah. I don't drink wine, but I literally, I don't drink it. I just but, need some corks. Yeah. 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 75 of them. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't think of anything else that would do the job as well as that cork. It's mega buoyant, little cut in it, brilliant. So I always got lots of cork now in my van. Um, but yeah, done exactly the same process, set it up again, sort of eight or nine pallets. I'm thinking, I don't want to create a feeding situation. I'm fishing for a bite. It's, if I get, you know, if I got one fish there in the week, I'll be buzzing. I've had two already <clears> and it's now like Wednesday. I'm like, this could be, you know, it could be on for maybe another one. I don't know. So, um, yeah, set the rod, uh, set the rod back in, everything position. And it was just one of those muggy nights. And on those little intimate pits, I could hear the fish sort of rolling in the darkness. And they're literally all around the top end of the shallows, some in the deeper water, because I could hear that, but mostly up sort of my end. And I'm thinking, this is, this is happening. And uh, it was one of those, although it's overcast, you could still make out, you could still see the, the surface rocking. And when the fish moved at that top end, it rocked the water. And I could like, you know, I'd, I'd I'd get up and I'd walk down to uh, 20 yards from where I'm fishing. I could see the water rocking. You'd see the weed. The beauty of it is because you had all the weed floating, sticking out. You could see where the fish are because you get a jerk and move. Yeah. You know, so you, 
that anticipation of, wow, they're here, they're obviously there. And you'd see the, see the weed move and, and, and twitch and you'd think, wow, there's definitely one there. Or, I think there's one there. And there's only 13, 13 carp in here, so it's not many, but they're about here. And I think uh, at some point they're going to come across that area. They have to, or one has to. Um, and then literally in, I think it was like three in the morning, this was like just, it was dark still, but it was getting, getting light soon. Um, about a couple of bleeps and I thought, way up, something's up here. And I've looked out and the rod tip's still over. Um, and it's like gone through, it's gone. Obviously the cork's come, um, done its job and everything. And the rod tip's sort of bent over, but it's literally gone round the rebed to the, to the right. And it's sort of stuck fast in there. And I thought, oh Christ, bloody, I must be, must be a small fish or something. I don't know. There's a 20 pounder in there. I thought I better book that. It didn't, it didn't take off like a like clatter out like the other one did. So then I've lifted up a rod and sort of followed, followed it around. Um, and then the fish has come out the reed bed and it's then sort of flat rodded almost out into the, into the weed bed. So it's gone out like into the middle of the lake and it's found the sanctuary of this sort of quite a dense, um, dense reed, weed bed there. And I'm like, oh shit, this is a bigger, bigger fish than I thought. So this is a bit of a, bit of a stalemate. I've got a size eight, eight hook on. Mm. But tight, you know, okay, I've got 15 pound line on, but this is treacherous like, you know. So I've had to get, um, strip off down to my pants basically. And you can, although it's three foot deep, there's a lot of silt. There's an old lake. So I'm like, I'm, I'm going out and it's, it's, although the bottom is like, you know, and going to be, should be up to my waist or whatever, or nipple. Um, I'm there going up to a neck in silt thinking, oh shit, this is dangerous. This is dangerous. But I managed, I managed to get out to the carp and managed to, couldn't see what I was in, just bundled the whole lot, whole weed, weed and everything into the, into the lake. And I'm sort of in the middle of the lake now looking down and it's sort of twilighty, but I can't really see much. I'm scraping away all the weed, pulling away. And I got to the head and I thought, oh yeah, oh, it's a big fish. I can see the, the size of the head. I saw like the sort of the milky eye on it. I was like, oh, I wonder if that's and the colour of it. I couldn't couldn't even make out because of the, obviously the um, the light hadn't oh, even yeah. got up. And uh, I've sort of pulled the weed away, and I can see this linear flank going away, going down into the depths of the water. And I think that's got to be it. There's only one big linear in here, and there's only one fish really that looks like that in there. Mm. All the rest are very different. They're all characters, and uh, so I was like, well, I've got to get to the bank. So I got to the bank got it out and it's it's, it's the linear and uh, um didn't, it's got a name that um they call it various different rings the the leany lin or or whatever but the origins are a little bit unknown but it's just a spectacular carp just absolutely beautiful i was there on my own um trying to you know trying to sort out sort of out of the, the way and stuff um and again sort of the fish of that size the the weight was a little bit immaterial but for the record it was like 38 14 i think it was Again, it was one of one of the fish at the right time of year goes goes forty pounds, has been up to like forty two, I think, forty one, forty two. Right. Um, but I say it was a bit irritable. It's just just such a such an old fish that I knew had a lot of history of not coming out, you yeah. know, a lot a huge amount. So it was one that I, I went there thinking, oh, I get a chance at that one. You just go there thinking, oh, I just want to catch one, you know, but to then have three and have that one, that was yeah, that one was a was a was a mega one. So uh again, I've done it's all self takes, I've got no yeah. You know, although there's probably people that come and take a photo, I've got myself take stuff, and it's just a very intimate place. And it's just you and the carp and your camera. It's just beautiful, just lovely. And it's it's stripped strips away. I have my phone on me, but it's usually off in the day unless the missus want to get hold of me. You know all that all the social media stuff. There's no interruptions. Just it's just you hunting the fish, and that's really rare in this day and age. Yeah, but I, you know, right. very and there's not a lot of waters like that, unfortunately. But that was so, so exhilarating. And, and yeah, that morning taking pictures in the twilight, again, same sort of same area where, where I had the fish 
and it was still sort of fairly dark. So some of the shots look a, a little bit like night shots, but they're such old fish. I don't really want to retain them and for no long risky. periods, yeah, of course no, not. you know, so I wanted to get them back out of respect for the venue and the fish and the owner. Um, so uh, I slipped that back and I thought to myself, oh, I looked at the photos after, as you do, sat back looking at photos and I was like, oh, that's amazing. What a mega fish. Uh, I, oh, it's a shame that it looks like a, it's a night shot. It's not, but it looks like a night shot. So I'm like, oh, bloody hell. Anyway, so I slipped the fish, slipped it's gone back and everything, everything's, everything's fine. And I'm thinking, right, you know, it's free fish now. That is far beyond anything I've sort of expected. Um and the fish now have gone back into the, the deeper ends. I think, okay, I've spooked them because that fish went out. I was in the, I'm in the middle of the lake. You know, those fish have moved a hell of a yeah, lot. Yeah. Um, so then I've gone back down to the deeper end. So in the deeper end, uh, I'm then trying to look for where these fish have gone. And they've ended up not too far away from where I've caught the common from. Right. So I'm thinking, well, that's as good a spot as any because I know I've, I've had one bite off it. I think I could potentially have two. So... I've gone through the process of sort of trying going around there, assessing it, getting all the sticks in process, um, setting a bivy up, so moving down, and you know, it takes takes all day. But you've got you've got all day because I'm thinking the bite time is is the next morning anyway. So there's not you know, that's not a problem. You know, even pop up to the local pub, have some food, just yeah, yeah, very yeah. relaxed in the day. You know, because you know the bite is not you, see, you you hinder your chances by fishing for them a day anyway. I think on that venue at that particular time, there's now more fish in there, so it's probably changed. But at the time then you know, fishing for them, I think would put them on edge and they behave so much more differently. So I was only putting the bait in at key moments when I had the opportunity to catch a fish. So I had the rod out of the water more than it was in. Mm. It was only, the rod was only in the water from when it got dark in the summer at sort of 10, I don't know, through till six, seven in the morning or if I had a bite and that was it. So it was six hours a day it was in really. And you won rod in it as well. You're not exactly got one up in the old shallow spot and no, one up in the deep. No, um, in the deeper end, uh, the second year I, I fished, I found another area where I could fish two. Mm. But when I was up at that top shallow end, I'd always just uh, just fish the one. That was the that was always the one up there. Just the just the one. Just just find the area where they're happy to dip down and try and get a bite. You know, trying to a lot of times with with our extra rods, I feel we try and put them in. Just because, yeah, 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 yeah I'm guilty of it. You know, everyone's 100%. guilty of it. You can, on a water like that with line lay, you know, you, you you're trying to, you're trying to make the carp unaware of your presence and having another rod in the water. Yes, if you're set up the same way, then there's an argument to say you could probably find another spot. But once I'd found that area where I got a bite from, mm. that was it. I was thinking, right, I'm going to concentrate until that spot changes, changes colour, and you know, if they've worked worked it too hard, that becomes a little bit blatant then I won't do anything or yeah, yeah. leave it. But for now I'm, I've got, you know, a couple of bites off it and it's, it's, it's working well. And the, and the key was not putting too many pellets down there, eight pellets. That's it. Um, a little hook bait, little boily hook bait. Uh, and it, we weren't creating that feeding situation where they're churning up the bottom. They're, they're yeah. isolating, moving between each, each bait almost. And it's, it's a, you're, you're fishing a, a, a spread of boily situation just with miniature baits, aren't you? Mm. So, so yeah, I moved down to the, um, so these fish were in the bottom end. So I moved down to the bottom end and getting the rod out, I'd, inadvertently I'd spooked a few of them and they'd basically gone up the top end. So I'm like, oh geez. And this was like cat and mouse. This is all the time. So if you make too much noise in one area, they just move to the next. So I found the best way in the end was I set up in the deep end. I think, right, I know there's a, a chunk of fish in the shallows, um, but I know that if I go up there and create disturbance, they're going to come down. Mm. So I just, I set up, set the rod up in the deep end, got it all in position on that night and then went up straight at the top end and started putting a lead out on a marker. Yeah. And just cast Bless in a couple of times or yeah. took three casts, literally 
cast bang, cast bang, bow waves straight into the deep end. So I'm like, happy days, right? They're in my end now. They don't, you know, they don't think anyone's at that top end. So happy days. So uh, I've gone down to the bottom end, sort of snuck back in, settled for the night. And lo and behold, first light, uh, rod fished over onto the far bank. Same scenario, little lead, cork and everything. Uh, had a drop back, this washing line. Yeah. Gone into that, played this fish. And would you believe I've landed the same fish that I caught two days pre- previous, which was the linear, which, nice. yeah, just a really mega, mega rare one, which has come out twice to that method in literally 48 hours. It's just crazy. So to me, it was like, wow, it sometimes happens, doesn't it? Like that. Sometimes fish, they, they go on, I don't call it a feeding spree, but sometimes they need to feed and they, they are susceptible to getting twice in a week, twice in, you know, in, in 24 hours sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It took a little bit of the shine off of me because I'm thinking, bloody hell, this is a fish that I really set and I've caught it twice in 48 hours, but it's probably more the method. It, yeah, 100%. It's, it's probably it's come in, it's just not thinking, it doesn't think it's being fished for. It's probably a bit more gingerly picking up a pellet or two, but it's, it's done it. And yeah, so I've caught that one, but the beauty of it is I've got... You know, and I, I caught it in there and I was like, oh, do you know what? I, I'm going to put this straight back. Obviously, I've just, I've only caught it for your hours, but I didn't have a decent daytime shot of it. So what I'd done, I thought, do you know what? It's in the net. And what I'd done, um, and which was a brilliant way to photograph fish, actually. I put, um, I got my camera and because the margins are so deep there, I'm stood up, you know, I'm stood in water up to my chest, basically with, the, and I've got the fish in the net where I've just landed it. I've stuck the camera literally on a tripod on the bank facing me. Yeah. Switch the camera on to like take a picture every five seconds. And I thought, well, I'm going to get out and return. I'm just going to spin around and hold it up for a couple. And I've, I've done that and they've come out as the best shots I think I've ever taken of a fish. <laughs> just <laughs> randomly. It was so random. Yeah. The light, the sun, everything was just right. You know, when you get them, the sun was up by then in the morning, but you know, when you get a big cloud come across the sun and you get the, and the light uh, goes yeah. a bit diffused and, Beautiful. You know, the lake in the background. And I thought, well, I'll just take a couple of snaps before I slip it back. And I've done that. So it's out the net, push the net out of the way, face the camera. It's going click, click, click. I've got about six photos every sort of five seconds and turned around, slipped it back. And yeah, those photos come out amazing. So yeah, I was, I was happy, for, happy for that. And uh, yeah, it was that fish. And that that then brought, brought the week to the close. And that, uh, well, although it was a repeat capture, I ended up with four bites from there, which was, I went home sort of Saturday sort of a happy man. The next guy come on, his name was uh, Phil Owen, who was, uh, who was a friend of mine. I sort of still keep in contact through Facebook. And he goes, oh, mate, how'd you get on? I said, mate, yeah, I've had four. He went, what, really? And he was like, happy for me, but gutted. Because he goes, oh, mate, I've got to try and follow yeah, that. Yeah, it's <laughs> a fact to follow. He's, he's caught half of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, uh, yeah, nearly That's yeah. epic, mate. But that that seems to be, and through speaking to, to people who fish with you and yourself, that seems to be very much you, mate, in terms of, you you do like like that's out the box. People might see the situation. They might see, they might come up with a completely different concoction of, of tactics, tackle rigs, etc. To to sort of suit that. But what you've done there is is definitely out of left field. The whole suspended, the whole wrapping, the 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 sort of weed down the line, and all that sort of stuff, and the rig itself to work with those small pellets for you. In other aspects of angling, that that sort of against convention, not using your typical Ronnie rigs or your typical what's in vogue at the time. Mm. That, that always has been a part of you, hasn't it? I've always, yeah, I, I, I hope to think that I've applied just common sense approach to, to rigs in terms of, and if you look at some of the rigs, then you think quacky, how's that working mechanically? But it's all based hopefully on sound fundamental principles of, you know, once a fish sucks or ingests the bait and the rig, 
you've then got very few things to work with to to get that hook where you need it to be. And one one big thing is gravity, and you can affect gravity with buoyancy. Yeah. So when you start thinking of, of sort of down those lines, well, you know, if you've got some buoy- a degree of buoyancy in the in the hook bait, and you've got heavy rig components, well, in a fish's mouth where it's very volatile when it goes straight up into a fish's mouth. But everything's want, wants to point downwards. You know, that's how basically all of our rigs are working, mm. aren't they? From a from the hair rig, there's some weight to the hook. So it's that's why we hook everything in the bottom. It's called cavity from the scissors, right? Hopefully round on the bottom, anywhere in dead center, bottom lip. And that's all to do with weight. So once you, once I suppose you understand that, and I hope everyone would understand that's a basic principle. Well, then how can we exaggerate that? How can we make a, a hook bait that is buoyant and then potentially heavy components that drag or, and then how can we load the back end of the hook or, or the front of the hook? How can we load a pointed area that it's like a claw that wants to drag? Um, and how can we do that with the materials that are available back then and, and sort of now and everything's evolving. Um, but the Ronnie rig is, you know, it's a very, very good rig. I think in large part because it's, it's quite weighted at the back end with all the jingle jangle, mm. you know, there's a lot of weight going on the back end and that's part of the secret to it. I, I feel um, so I've always sort of tried to construct rigs around sort of those those premises, and you know once a fish sucks in something, er- potentially everything should go into the mouth. Once you have got it in the mouth area, they, you're then looking uh, at areas to exploit. And gravity and weight is is a huge huge. It's one of the only ones we got to work with when you think about it. Really. Yeah, yeah. For you, an example of 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 sort of maybe some of out the box type presentations for, that have worked yeah. along those principles. Obviously that's a defining principle. You just yeah. you've highlighted that. What, what comes to mind? Well, ex- ex- extending the hook shank is big. And I think uh, I'm not the only one that's you know, thought of this far from it. There's, there's lots of anglers have always mm. document. I remember reading in the lab, uh, the Save days, um, the Looney extension rig where they're extending the hook shank. So there's nothing new. But from my observations with carp in clear water, I've been very fortunate, one, to fish a lot of waters that are gin clear for many, many years, and also keep carp as well and watch carp, how they feed. Um, so extending that that shank of that hook, you're in essence making a bit of a stick, aren't you? Something that's quite solid. Um, and you can have some flex- degree of flexibility in that if you want to. But something like that is is giving the fish problems because once it's in the mouth, if you try and blow, you know, if you, if I give you a round ball to blow out, you'd do it. No problem. You'd probably be really accurate with it. Mm. If you give you a barrel, it's a bit, it's a bit of a funny shape that comes out at different angles and it doesn't go out true. Um, same with rigs. If you've got something quite stiff and short that goes in the mouth and what you're trying to achieve is, is it not either coming back on itself or it's sort of jamming and getting stuck and that yeah. creates panic, you know, straight away for, for carp. So having, uh, having extending the hook shank for me, um, creates a very, very efficient hooker. So I, I come up with a rig, whew, when I get now, it must be 10 years ago, maybe a bit long, maybe 12, 12 years ago. It was early when I come up to the water park and it was, I didn't have a name for it. Other, the guys at Corda called it the Meccano rig. So when they yes. come out on the features of me, they used to see it and show it. And, and essentially it was using all the things that I've just touched on with gravity and it's an extension of, of a hook shank. Um, um, it's, it's probably quite hard to explain, but, but essentially I doubled up a section of, um, uh, fluorocarbon or a uh, mouth trap. It's uh, stiff. So it's quite a stiff yeah, component. Yeah. Um, and then created a, 
created a loop so you could basically lasso your hook on mm. a bit like um, the uh, multi-rig, that style. So if you imagine a multi-rig pulled down tight yeah. with, with, with a stiff loop, yeah, and then the loop, the loop would then basically, I could then at the end of the loop fold it down at a 90 degree angle, in essence creating my eye of my hook. So it's like an eye of a hook. Right. So I'm, cre- I'm, I'm folding that down so it's basically – Come in in line with the. If you look at the rig on uh, on on uh, straight down the barrel, if you like, from the hook point, this is in line with it and going straight down as well at the end. So it's basically the hook is like that, and then it's coming down, and then it's like a right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, so um, so if you think of Scott Lloyd noodle rig, yeah, it again, it get, the, the mechanics pretty much exactly the same. So it goes like that, and it comes down at the end. The noodle doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So when I say about anglers have. A lot of anglers have I've seen what I've seen and come to and made their own conclusion. The Scott has probably come to his conclusion of that and made the noodle rig. Well, I come to those conclusions making the Meccano rig, and this was twelve odd years ago or something, maybe even longer, thirteen years ago. That extending that hook shank and 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 having that little recess at the back, which almost mimics the eye of the hook. I've just made the hook like yeah, inch, bigger, yeah, yeah, two inches, two one and a half inches yeah. long, two inches, and then I'm thinking, okay, so. I want to make that as free. I want to use stiff components, but I want as much flexibility as I can. So on the end of that hook section, when it comes down, I then I've done an overhand knot and blobbed it. Okay. So it's that little loop section that comes out. So an overhand knot blobbed. So the bits that never happen. So it wouldn't obviously come back on itself and un- unravel. Um, and then bet- importantly, then between the hook and that knot, I've put a little um, tiny swivel, which would break at sort of 30, 40 pounds. It's, tiny, right. it's a micro swivel. Yeah. I've locked that in place with a little, I've, I've done it with um, float stop speeds and all sorts, you know. So it's so I keep it at one end yeah. where that knot comes over. I can then attach a hook link to that little ring swivel, and that gives me total free sit any which way. It's the most supple, far more supple than any braided, hook link or anything like that because it can just rotate 360 in any direction with that swivel element. with that swivel yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the the hook link of choice would be something quite stiff because all I'm interested in is pushing that far away and laying it out flat so when the fish picks up I want to bring my lead into it quickly soon as it can yeah as yeah, soon as it can but this rig doesn't have to work with the lead as well because once it all goes in the fish's mouth everything's aligned it's already the hook's already in position it's already right, there. Right. It's already there. So the hook point's already in. And now with the hook sharpening kits, it's a, in the right situation. It's it's one of my go-tos in terms of the best hookers. And in large part, you know, it's, it's the why, reason why Scott Lloyd uses it as well. It's one of his go-tos. And it's, it's the why it's the why think and anglers have bought it out and you can buy it as a conventional set because it's so efficient, mm. so good. Um, so on the business end, I usually got a size, size four. I usually try and fish... Uh, big hooks because the way I balance the baits, it's all going in. Everything's going in, so why not use a big hook? Yeah, give big you, gape. Yeah, you got more purchase area. What type to, of hook? You got a choddy hook style. Yeah, usually yeah. a choddy style hook because of the nature of That's the stiff. double filament going back out the end. There, you want to. I like to keep a straight line. I've messed about with curves and everything, but I find the best way is a straight line and that little little ninety return at the end. That for me just sits prime prime position. All the the curves, and as soon as you start curving stuff, then you notice if you lay it on a flat um, on the table, then the point of the hook starting to come away and coming up. Yeah, up, you yeah, know what I mean, yeah. I want that dead, down. down almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've messed about with straight pointed hooks, 
Um, if I could wave a wand, I'd have like a, a big curve shank with an outturned eye, but no one would do it. That'd be me ultimate. Yeah. That'd be me ultimate because it, everything's aligned. It's a big hook, you know, but that for boily fishing and that's for bo- out and out boily fishing, that rig, you know, I, I fished for that at Coat Water Park, uh, caught loads of carp on that because of big mouths, everything's going up and in and you're using that gravity, um, to your advantage. So yeah, the hook bait invariably would be something that's balanced, but it's, you've got to be careful. I find with, um, wafters from what I've seen, um, particularly the wobble. Mm. So invariably, if you balance something, um, and we're all now using like, I don't know, bait screws, aren't we? Is a good example. Yeah. yeah. Or using swivels or rings or something. Well, by putting in a bait screw or a swivel, you've created a big pivot point, haven't you? Cause you've got your bait like that and you've got a, uh, over its address that long. So you've got your swivel on that and it's waving about like this on that swivel or on that. Yeah. On that wafter. Yeah. So it's waving about. So, I've seen it so many times when the fish come in, they're feeding on boilers and they're picking, oh, there's a 15 miller. Oh, there's another 15 miller. And they get to within six inches of your bait and they, they consciously made a decision to go for that bait. And then it moves yeah. because of displacement. And they, you know, once they get, once the carp gets within sort of three inches on a big fish, it's blind to it. So it's made its decision. It's going to suck it in anyway. So it's game over. But that six inches, you can make a decision. And it's, you see it on the underwater all the time. You watch yeah, the underwater when they've got a wafter and you'll see it and it will just move. And the fish will be on a beeline and move off and it'll mm. take the one next to it. Oh, that was close. That was close. You see it all the time. Well, I've seen that from trees all the time. So balancing a bait, you've got to be very careful on the buoyancy of it um, and how it's sticking up off the baited area, particularly with those little ring swivels and that, which are really efficient and really good. But you've got to be a bit careful on how much buoyancy is there. So you want just enough buoyancy to throw the rig away. So mechanically it can reset. If it gets picked up, it can reset, reset. Not too much that it gets Not too much that you're waving it around. Mm. They catch plenty of fish, don't get it wrong. Little wafters and that. You'll catch loads. But when you see it firsthand and fish coming in, you think, oh, why have I got a bite? And you can't, you don't twig it really. It's it's really hard to see the... Subtle, isn't it? it? It's subtle, really subtle. You see it on the underwater stuff. It's like, there it is, like 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 a flashlight going off. So yeah, having uh, having that buoyancy, but that rig, you know, the Meccano rig, it's a bit like, we all know, like the hinge stiff rig is yeah. just absolutely part of carp fishing fabric. Well, for, mo- for me, it's the equivalent of a hinge stiff rig, but in a bottom bait form. Yeah. Okay. And, and the beauty of it is you can change the rigs because it's all lassoed on. Everything's interchangeable. So it's a bit, back when I first done it, it was a bit jingle jangle because I didn't have the rig components. So I'm having to fashion this and oh, I use that and I use this for that. But now you can ultra refine it down and you can do away with a lot of it and you could fish, you know, or, you know, like Scott has the, the noodle rig, that, that little section that goes like that. Well, that's, that's half the rig. That's half the, half the battle is getting that. But it's interesting section. that, and I will overlay some pictures of the rig so people can see Hard it. Hard to explain. But yeah. 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 No, no, I think you've explained it very well, but I will overload some pictures and I'll also see if I can get one to be put up on the promo for this so people can see it. But the loop system as well that you've got there is now pretty much in vogue in that, yeah, a lot of rigs are loop on, loop off. Yes, well, a loop yeah. at one end to fix it to your lead system, a loop at the other end to fix your hook on. Yeah, and then ch- interchange your hooks. And there, yeah, yeah, you've exactly. got an example of using that in that form that yeah. you developed ten or twelve years ago. So that's yeah. Just, again, just say I'm not claiming to invent anything, but I think there's a lot of anglers have come to the same conclusions. Mm-hmm. So I just I'm always looking at sort of rig components to see how I can improve things and make things flip and turn. And those were the components at the time, but I've sort of ref- refined that. And I use now a lot of, um, so the, the Albright knot, we all know the Albright knot, which is a, a great knot for 
joining two, obviously, uh, two materials together, usually fluorocarbon and braid. Yeah. Um, well, I, I've used the Albright knot for years and years. Um, and it was only when I sort of think, well, how can I make that braid into a loop? So I doubled up the braided section and then tied the Albright knot. So you with a loop and then you basically at the end of your fluorocarbon and then get a nice loop with an Albright knot, a doubled up Albright knot. Yeah. And that was, I've done that quite That was a number of years ago and that's now become not standard issue, but a lot of guys have sort of gotten onto, well used, onto that. Daryl Peck, for example, uses that pretty much exclusively. Mark Pitchers uses variations of it. Jacob There's, uses it. Jacob uses it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah exactly. But the multi-rig's been around before yeah. I did about that. So it's just, it's, yeah, we all go around on a... It's interesting how things, yeah, but like, as you say, with regards to it all, that the, the principle behind it and then what you've derived from it, the same principle you can see mirrored in, in slightly different forms with different components yeah. with different people. Yeah. But when you've done it 10, 12 years ago and things come into play and it looks a bit different, it could sometimes be like, whoa, that's a bit wacky. But then yeah. realistically, yeah. I, you've, you've explained it very well by talking about the principle of extending the hook shank, et cetera, et cetera. One aspect we have to talk about, mate, and I'm conscious that I've taken loads of your time, mate, um, <laughs> is the bait game. Now, when I talked to Mike about this, and Mike's been mentioned a load of times, the legend that is Mike Holly, <laughs> he talked about, obviously, bait works, how that's come to be, how it started in sort of your parents' house and grew on to the incredible success that it's had. But he did say, and this is something that, I did get a guise for in terms of your love for rearing fish, but he did say that the starting point that I should broach you is your love for growing on fish, but that you tried to start this in your mum's garage. Yeah, I did. Something? Yeah, yeah, Bristol. Yeah, is that what? Happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, crikey, I've always uh, it goes back before then, but essentially, I've always had a fascination with water, fish, all aquatic life. I've just I was always in a pond as a boy. You know, mum and dad would say that was my only interest. That was my fixation. So I was quite into a bit of science and that at school, although I, you know, I, I didn't get, a, 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 as I said, many qualifications. Pottery. Before. Don't leave out Yeah, pottery, don't leave mate. the pottery. Very important. Everyone needs pots. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I've always tried, you know, to grow bloody all sorts of things, you know, from collecting frog spawn and all that sort of stuff. So I've always, always done fish. And luckily my mum and dad had a koi pond. Um, so that was a massive fascination for me as a, as a boy growing up dropping all sorts of my breakfast in there as a young boy, you know, and all I'm just, and that, that was really the embers, the start of my fascination with, with carp, um, particularly growing carp, feeding carp. And off the back of that, that's how I, you know, started my bait company, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, um, I've always um, grown carp and I suppose in, in many ways, that's, it's really, really helped me in terms of when I apply that to my carp fishing, because it can blow away a lot of the the smoke and mirrors, which is throughout the industry of, or oh, you've got to use this because the fish will do this if you don't. And, you know, it, our, our industry is set up to um, ask questions and almost create problems that might not even be there, you know, and I'm sort of treading carefully now because I'm involved with, with a number of companies and everything, but essentially rearing carp, um, having access to those carp and then reading lots of the, koi books i was right i got into a koi carp and that at an early age just reading the material you get to learn about the fish and learn that they're not this mythical creature that gets caught once every 10 years although so come some carp are mm. but you 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 strip away that and i and i don't know maybe some of the romance sort of gets dis- shredded away with that as well but you see carp for what they are and you, you can make 
better informed decisions on how to approach, how to catch them, why they're doing certain things. Why are they in the shallows? Why are they, why do they do this at this behavior when the weather conditions like this? What do they do in high pressure, low pressure, you know, and, and all that sort of thing. So having those, um, having that ground in is, is invaluable, I think. And I implore anyone who hasn't to keep carp, you know, as fishermen, because you can learn so much from them. Just, yeah. just ridiculous amount. Um, the, you know, the guys who keep their koi, um, know their fish inside out, know behaviours and they'll tell you about hierarchy between a pack of fish. They'll tell you about different personalities, how a fish likes to feed, how it does, what it likes, what it doesn't like. You know, there's, there's a whole host of information there, which is amazing, you know? So so that was one thing. So from a very, I say early age, I suppose, before, yeah, before Baitworks, um, I always kept fish. And when, when I just started Baitworks, I started rearing fish. And that was to me like, you know, mega exciting. So started Baitworks in 2005. Um, and probably around that's when I moved to the Cotswold, 2006, seven, when I uh, moved to the Cotswold Water Park. So just as the, at that time, I was up the Cotswold Water Park all the time, back and forth all the time. Yeah. And the, I was trying to, um, I really fascinated my fish like I always have. I've always t- kept fished in tanks and that. And I thought I wanted to grow some fish. And at the time I was fishing a lake called um, Bradley's Lake on the Cotswold Water Park, which is steeped in history. Mm. Um, a lot of those fish would have got introduced from Ashley Pool many years ago when the uh, Fishers Club lost the right. So a number of fish went into Bradley's and then went into the Hills Lake next door, which some of the fish, one or two are still around. So they're very old fish now. Um but when I come up to the Cotswold Water Park, that was one of the first places I want to fish. And it's a big hundred acre lake. And when I was fishing it, there was only, I want to say 35 to 40 carp probably in there. There'd, there'd been a stocking of 30 carp. Um, uh, and uh, prior to that, there was probably only 10, 15 carp left in there. Um, but many of those stockfish, some of them got took out. So there's probably 20 of them left and maybe 10 fish, 10 originals, maybe, maybe 15. So yeah, 35, 40 fish would be a very good guess. And I just, I just read so much about it. I wanted to fish there. So I fished on there and I was uh, such a big lake, huge lake. And I managed to uh, catch a couple of fish when they used to get down towards the shallows when the temp, when the weather is right. Because of uh, the nature of the lake, you could only fish certain areas and you had to, quickly worked out, you had to fish it on the right conditions. So when there's a pumping northwesterly into a certain bay, they're going to be there, like, you know, because it's a big pit and there's only 30 carp or so. So you've got to be on it. So managed to catch a couple, but they spawned um, in the spring and that that really was the start for me. They spawned and I thought, at the time, um, it was uh, South Sunny Angling Club that had the fishing rights, but they had just lost it, lost right. the rights. Um, and then another company called Watermark Fisheries had, had took it on um, and uh, I was in that transitional time, so I was still fishing it and the fish had spawned. Um, and I was like, oh, really, I'd like to have a go at bringing these fish on. So I read about it and I uh, was fascinated with carp and that. I thought, how hard could it be? So I uh, I collected, sort of collected the eggs from the pond. And at the time there was a, a new fishery manager there. And I said, look, that's what I want to do. And he said, yeah, yeah, no, no problem. I said, well, I'll give you some fish as well. So I collected spawn. He had a load for his, for the stock pond they'd just set up. And this is right at the start of sort of watermark fisheries. And I took some spawn home to Bristol and, and really made a pig's ear of it, to be fair. How, you know, <laughs> because I, I don't know what I know now, but you've got to start somewhere. So all these fish, I took way too many. You know, you take a, a bucket of spawn home and you think, oh, that's going to be, you know, uh, a few hundred carp. It actually turns out to be thousands of carp. There's absolutely loads of them. So all of a sudden I've got these thousands of little pinhead carp, loads of them. I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do with all these? So I 
like like everyone does, they all make the same mistake. You try and bring through too many. Mm. So I've then got them in big, I've got like a big um, OUBC container, which is basically a big plastic container, which you can buy off eBay for like 30 quid. I've got them in there. That didn't um, quite work. It was outside. So I thought, oh, I need to, um, I need to build something inside for me so I can keep them warm and all that sort of stuff. So I had thousands in this IBC and I thought, well, I'll take, take a few out. Um, and I was trying to feed them and I, I just, yeah, I just made a right hash, but I wasn't giving them the right food. I was nipping down to the ponds, trying to sieve out loads of um, like zooplankton, like Daphnia and yeah. Cyclops and all the microscopic sort of stuff in the water you don't see, which will feed these juvenile carp. And I was doing that and I was having a little bit of success, but there's just too many mouths there. And like all these fish just got to a size and they were a bit deformed. A lot of them died. And I was like, oh, dear me. So unfortunately, a lot of them went, but a few of them did make it through. Um, and I didn't realise at the time, but they all looked a bit funky because they had like curly fins and like funny, their gills like were quite flared and the, the jaw structure wasn't quite right. And I very quickly learned that nutrition is a, is a key element for fry as they're growing, developing. If you didn't give them the right nutrition in the first sort of week, that's it. That's for life. You know, skeletal growth, everything's happening very, very quickly. And I just right. didn't give them the right nutrition. So it's a steep learning curve. And I balls it up for the first two or three years, really, before I had any success. Um, but I was back in Bristol at the time. And I thought, well, I've got a few of these carp, which are Bradley's carp. These are amazing. You know, I want to want to bring these on. I'll give them to the new company to set up and they put them back in there. And it'd be a mega story. And I love it. You know, and all that. I'll fish for them in years to come. Yeah. So these fish, you know, I got them to about that, I don't know, about an inch and a half big. And I was feeding them egg yolk and everything. I was still learning about what to give them um, food-wise in terms of uh, as a fry dart, not as a boilie maker. I knew obviously when they get bigger. But what I didn't know is that they're, as their organs develop, then they can't utilise sort of high-protein content. And straight away, you have to give them uh, a live diet almost. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I wasn't I was sort of aware of it, but didn't know how important that was. And it, it, it very quickly became very evident that you need to give them the proper diet. So anyway, I got these fish to about an inch and a half. I had them in my, um, uh, I had them outside and I brought them inside to my mum and dad's garage. And, um, at the time I think I was, st- yeah, I was still, I was still doing a bit of running and everything. I said to my mum, right, I'm going to make this, um, uh, little tank in here. Just going to fill it up with water and everything. I'm going to keep some fish. And my mum and dad were brilliant with me. They said, yeah, yeah. They just cracked on like, you know, they, Anything they sort of keep me interested in something, they, they're always fully supportive. Any business, you know, I'd run quite a few different sort of ad hoc little businesses over the years, like selling stick insects when I was a younger lad. Yeah. Yeah. All the sorts. entrepreneur. Oh, it's just all sorts. But yeah, it was maybe, but all sorts. So I had those little schemes that I'd always go into, but never quite finish them. Um, so I said, look, I want to grow these fish and I saw I'm doing it. So and you can see my bake business was, you know, starting to get a bit of traction. I was selling, but I was making a bit of money, mm-hmm. which is great. And my mum and dad's place, I was having, I was paying them a little bit of money rent, which I've never done. So happy days. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, these fish had grown sort of about an inch and a half. And um, I'd, so what I'd done, like, a, you know, like a corner of a room. So I basically yeah. thought, oh, okay, there's a corner room there. If I put a plank of wood sandwiched against it, I make, make a triangle, don't I? I make a triangle and I put battens down the wall, make this structure so I can basically, you know, like a, like a corner, a corner desk would look like in a corner yeah so basically i put this structure this pattern that goes across from wall to wall i've now got a triangle about and i'll take it up to sort of chest level and in there if i put a pond liner i put a pond liner drop it in there seal the pond liner at the top literally staple it all in and then just fill it with water i put my carp in there job done, job done. aerator yep yeah, lovely so i went about starting to 
put this all together, putting all the uh, all the wood up. Very happy with myself after about an hour and a half. It's all done. I said, right, get, my, get the hose. Started, hadn't told my mum and dad that I was filling it that day, but I got excited and I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to fill oh, it up. Yes. So I thought, oh, I'll go out for a 20-minute run, 30-minute run. I'll fill it up. I'll come back and put the fish in. So I said to my mum, I said, mum, do you want to just keep an eye on this? I'm just filling this up. She goes, oh, oh, I don't like don't like the sound of this. I said, no, no, it's fine. Just fill up to this level. When it gets to that level, it'll be about 10 minutes. Come out and just turn the tap off. So, happy days. So I've gone out for my run with shorts and everything, gone gone round Hannum, where I sort of lived. Come back 20 minutes later and I've come come through the door and my mum is literally like holding the baton like that. And oh, she's no. like, literally, your legs are like sprayed out between them, but uh, behind her. And she's like, like, at right angles, holding this baton in. And what had happened is, obviously, I didn't allow for the water pressure. <laughs> Luckily, the, she, she switched the tap off. The, the water's not going anymore. But there's so much pressure wanting to push, push out yeah, this yeah. way. One of the uh, the screws are coming out on the battens. My mum's holding it back, this tidal wave of water that's going to engulf our house, basically, because we had this garage, which I ran the bait business from, but it was all the same level as the house. So it's basically oh, gone no. through there and gone through to the kitchen. And, and all. <laughs> yeah, so she was holding on for dear life. I don't know. She'd been there for, you know, five minutes or that, but yeah, she's not the strongest. So I, I had to get in there and basically hold it with her and that, and I managed then to get a siphon and start siphoning it out and, uh, Luckily, we did, we sort of saved a, 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 an instant in the meadows where I lived. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was my first exercise at sort of having a stock pond in my house, and yeah, never never to be repeated again. But subsequently, that's become a. Pa- I mean, people will know from bait works and the bait sort of game. They'll know from your fishing. They'll know obviously that you've run lakes and you've mentioned that. But but a real burning passion has been collecting spawn with permission from places, growing those those lines, if you like, of fish yeah. on. And then subsequently speaking to whoever it may be and, and either reintroducing them or having those lines within your own lakes, haven't, haven't you? Absolutely. From egg. Yeah, from egg. And that for me was that whole process. I just, I fell in love with very early. And I look at sort of the strains and, and iconic strains of the UK carp scene and sort of sometimes shake my head with that someone hasn't done something to preserve and keep intact some of our heritage and some of the fish that we revere. Mm. You know, the Yateley fish have been talked about a long time, uh, for, you know, and rightly so, because they are, they're just a captivated an era. But those fish, you know, your likes of Heather and the dustbin and all those, and some, the Sutton fish as well. But I know the Sutton strain has been preserved because yeah. VS Fisheries, they do a fantastic job down there and they preserve that bloodline and it's part of their brood stock for, for future generations, which is brilliant. That's amazing. And I know they've done that with the Harrowwood Waltonians as well. So there's a couple of strains there which come to mind, but some of those Yateley carp as well, it just are just despair sometimes when those are once they're gone, they're gone, aren't they? You know, in terms of where they actually came from, you know, a lot of a lot of our carp, all of our carp have come from Europe at some point. Mm. Some have come in the seventies, sixties, and earlier. Some have come more recently, but you know the what I'm saying is these these carp strains that have come over and some of these fish were revered back in the sort of 90s, a lot of them were probably imported at lower weights. You know, there's a lot of people bringing fish over at the time. Waveney Valley, they've already documented that on podcasts. You've got Ken Ryder up at hum- Humberside Fisheries. He was bringing loads of fish in from all over, all over the world. Uh, the EA were in cahoots with Ken and they were buying fish off him and then stocking water. So these fish have gone everywhere. Everywhere, yeah, exactly. Everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Yeah, Donald Leaney, obviously, he's a well-renowned uh, you know, fish dealer. Um, he was bringing in lots of uh, Galicians from sort of uh, Holland and even Belgium as well. Um, so 
the, the lines get blurred you know, a long time ago, but people are very quick to forget that. But some of these bloodlines that we, we have got here and some of these lakes particularly, um, you know, I look at the horseshoe strain, what a strain of fish that is. They've gone to Stone Acres and Christchurch, mm. gone elsewhere and done amazingly. And they've got longevity, you know, so I, I know the carp so have got, now have got active stock ponds in place. Well, that should be a massive USP for them in selling those fish those because fish. they are, they yeah, are with yeah. it for me. They're, you know, just amazing fish, absolutely amazing carp. Um, and some of those strains like your Yately, I'll use it because it's just a, a good example. Um, you know, those, the, the times when you stock fish and leave them um, for 25 years or whatever, and then restock after they've gone, for me, that's just playing with fire a little bit because you are going boom bust, aren't you, straight away. And um, you know, what if someone took spawn from those fish 15 years ago and were growing on the next dustbins and heathers and arthurs yeah. and all that, and they reintroduced them back into Yately so the, so the lake lives on with fish that are absolutely in keeping with what's gone before. And I just, I just think they become part of the fabric, part of the I- iconic nature and, and Yately would still be here. I know it's been taken over and running a different guys, but yeah, for, for, for me, we, we lose a little bit there with, with some of these strains. So for me personally, I'm, I'm very fotunate in the, in a position that I run a, a number of lakes on the Cotswold water park uh, now and where I've can, because uh, if you was to stock loads of different strains into a lake, there's a massive biosecurity oh, yeah. you know, hazard there. And, and But when you're taking them from eggs and hatching and growing, it's a hugely labour-intensive process, long process. But the flip side is you, you uh, eradicate the risk of transferring disease. Mm. So you know, I've, I've done that painstakingly at my, and because it's a labour of love. Um, and... Because of that, I've got a you know a lake that's full of a chocolate, all sorts of you know yeah, fish. Yeah. Really, it's just everything in there, all shapes, sizes, all colours. I love them all. You know, I absolutely love them all. I, you know, I don't like just scaly fish. I don't like just plain fish. I like everything, all shapes and sizes, all the different body shapes. And I absolutely absolutely love that. And the only way I could probably achieve that was to uh, approach fisheries and and, and have eggs. And most most fisheries are really. Uh, really kind, and, and sometimes they let you, sometimes they don't. But though those fish are then preserves in yeah. my eyes, you know, and you've you've got them. And uh, my only, yeah, my only uh, gripe was, hey, why, why can't more people? Or why isn't there more fish being preserved? Some of our iconic fish, you know, because this, you know, the fish farms are brilliant, and, and there's fish farms all over the country that are producing some amazing fish, amazing fish. Yeah. Um, but we're all using sort of similar bloodlines now. And I just hope that we don't lose some of the character of some of those those fish. Um, and I'd love to see them sort of preserved and live on for another 50-odd years. Yeah, like too right, mate. And then, obviously, from the whole fish-wearing game, which we talked about, bait works from your parents' garage. Your parents' garage is very pivotal, mate, I feel. Yeah, it was. Yeah, huge. From that to, yeah. to what it is now, mate. Yeah, very, very lucky that I was able to start bait works in a garage, no overheads you know, for the first year or two with my mum and mum and dad, they just let me do it. They probably thought, oh, this is another idea he's going to have, which is going to burn out. But I, I, they knew I loved making bait and then knew that I had, you know, fundamentally an, an understanding um, with, with fish and, you know, born out of loads of tank tests and um, dropping food into for koi and, and had an appetite for, for consuming, you know, as much information as I can regarding bait. And I got, I got very fortunate at the start with, with um, two or three ingredients that 
still in the baits today, which are really pivotal um, in terms of attraction, which which helped me build uh, what was, you know, a very, very attractive food baits, which stood the test of time. So, you know, I, I knew from, from day one that I wanted to make, I, I wasn't interested in selling the most bait, but I was interested in selling the best bait. Mm. So I wasn't, you know, I, I knew that by creating a good product would, um, you would, you would always have a market and I just wanted to make the best I could. And big part of Baywork's success was, was selling direct to, to customers. So we don't sell into shops. We sell direct to customers. And that just gave, just made common sense to me as setting up a business. I wanted to um, put as much as I could into the bait. And if you're starting off at a low price, price point because you've got to adhere to a trade price, you're going to struggle to make any money and, and make a business out of it. So yeah, it started in my mum and dad's um, garage. And that was literally with, uh, and that's, yeah, that's why well, we mentioned about my car crash then where I ditched for misses and the, uh, we mentioned that before. Yeah, we mentioned we? that. So that was, um, that was the pivotal point at that time that, that sort of happened around the same time. Um, so, uh, I saved up sort of 400 quid from my, um, the job I had was, um, Shefford insulation, selling insulation, which was the worst job, as I mentioned, or I already ha- I ever had it's a horrible job, sales job. Um, I'd saved up about 400 quid and I basically played that money reinvested it into Baitworks and that's how I set up Baitworks in my mum and dad's kitchen, uh, garage, garage, sorry, with a baby bath to roll bait. I had a little Hobart, which I picked up for peanuts and uh, I had rolling tables, which didn't cost the earth. And I basically stu- and I used half of my mum's freezer because the other half, she had like her chicken and frozen mom, veg. Mum and dad have been understanding here. They've been great. They? Yeah, they, without them, I wouldn't have been able to start. Or it would much harder. I'd have to go out and get a unit and that, and then you're on the back foot straight away, aren't you? Yeah, so it gave, words, gave yeah. me the space um, to to play everything into it, and and um, basically my time then was just every spare waking hour was was rolling bait for a lot of the Bristol anglers, local Bristol anglers around the area. Um, and then once I got some traction from that, then the bait started because a lot of Bristol anglers would because around Bristol there's not a lot of lakes, it's a lot of clay pits, yeah, you know, yeah. and there's a river, Bristol Avon, which I had carping back then. Um, but a lot of them were sort of clay ponds just excavated out for motorways or for bricks. Um, so there wasn't a lot of water there. So invariably loads of Bristol Angers all used to get on the M4 up to the Cotswold Water Park and fish there. So my bait was being used up there. I was getting catch reports back from the Cotswold Water Park. And I was like, at the time, it's all about timing, isn't it? These things with, with a bait company. I knew that was the place I needed to be. I need to get up there quick before anyone else did. The only company that was operating up there was a company called Cotswold Baits. Yes. That was run by a guy called Phil Chun. Um, but he was selling into shops. His business model was, was shops. So it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't in my market. I wanted to sell to all the anglers in the water park. And he was selling a bit, you know, cash yeah, hand yeah, out the back of the van. But I thought if I can get up there, you know, I've got a, a really good product. A lot of anglers are using it. So, so that I made, you know, very, very swiftly within two years, I made the, the quick decision to, and I met, met my missus in that time and then moved up to the Cotswold water park and, and took the, the company up there as quickly as I, I could. But that was, uh, that was fraught with, um, the, the early stages of that was, it was a nightmare. The first unit I had, I actually, uh, stopped the fishing on a lake. It was a night, oh, absolute nightmare. So I'm looking for a premises. I want to move it to Cotswold water park as soon as I can. And, um, there's a friend of mine, um, who runs a syndicate up there. Yeah. And I was, I've just joined it as a syndicate member. So I've gone up there for my first look and I'm still rolling bait in Bristol and I'm supplying the syndicate with loads of bait anyway. Um, and I've noticed on this lake, beautiful lake, and on this point, there's what's like a, a big shed, a big, big shed with loads of stuff in it, a like big shed. 
So I've gone to him, hey, has that got electric? He goes, yeah, oh, yeah, we've got electric here. So there's electric, a little light bulb. That's it, you know. I'm like, stone. He started ticking. Yeah, I was like, do. bloody, I should make a great little bake factory for me. And he said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'll ask the owner and I'll get back to you. So I thought nothing of it. Next day, he said, oh, I'll talk to the owner. Um, and he said, yeah, you can come up and, and uh, make a bit of bake. So basically the, the syndicate leader, I talked to the owner, the syndicate leader was a friend of mine. He said to me, yeah, he's fine. He said, uh, the owner said, yeah, you can make some bake for the syndicate. So he thought I was making it for the syndicate just, yeah, yeah, members. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I started moving. So I was like, right, get, in my, get a truck all moved up, got all my, all my stuff in there, got a mate to help me move. And I, over the course of a couple of days, I've moved all my gear up there. I've moved all my ingredients in. And at the time I had like, big Tupperware boxes, which hold about 25 kilos of each ingredient. So, but I had like, I don't know, 35, 40 ingredients. There's, there's a lot, there's a Jeez. lot that goes in it. And that was all scattered around. So it takes up a lot of space. And I have my little compressor and I had obviously the electric plug point and everything from a freezer and everything. So I got up there and within, you know, 40 hours I'm rolling bait and I've got this big vista of this lake. I thought I'm living this the dream. Is, this is it. I've made it. This is it. This is amazing. So I'm, I'm thinking, oh, this is the best. So I've, uh, then secure, I've secured um, a house in South Cerny and we've moved up on the weekend. So I've literally only been in there a week. Jeez. So I've moved up there with the missus, say goodbye, thanks, mum and dad. Big step, you know, never lived yeah. on my own, apart from in America, but living on my own with, with a newish girlfriend who'd been together for a year or two. Yeah. Um, so we've moved up to uh, South Cerny. So I'm like loving it, going to work in the morning. Claire's got a job down at a local restaurants or whatever. And we're just trying to make enough money to pay the rent and, and all that. So, um, I'm not fishing, I'm not this lake after sort of, uh, I think it's about a couple of weeks go by. Um, unbeknown to the syndicate own a uh, syndicate leader, the owner had basically what it is. The owners had a dad and it was his lake. And oh. basically it's his dad's lake. And the son had basically leased out to us fishermen. Right. Dad didn't know anything about it. He lived in London. Yeah. So he didn't know anything about this. All of a sudden, he gets the bill for the electric. He's gone mental. <laughs> he's got a light bulb that goes on there, which usually costs him probably 30p a year. Yeah. In the first month, he's gone in there. It's, it's like you know, 60 quid or something like that. And he's like, and he's question. he's then come down from London, question it, saying what's going on. Basically what was happening, his son was, um, he was looking after the lake for his dad, but he yeah. was leasing it out to like, events and people and stuff like and us to the syndicate and then he'd have a corporate event and he's making money on the sounds like he's making money on the side so it exposed all that and at the time my friend who's a member of my lake now funnily enough they were just about to invest in a load of fish to go into that lake for for fish for the future because they didn't have loads of fish in it so basically it all went crash bang wallop the syndicate folded because he couldn't trust the guy who he'd been talking to about the lake i had to move out and I'm like, oh shit! I got to go yeah, back to Bristol. But I've just moved. I've just moved it. I've just paid for this. Uh, I'm renting this house in South Cerny. I've had to pack all my gear up. I'm like, as of the owner, give me um, you know, uh, a weekend, a few, three, four days to get out of there. And I was like, thank you. You know, just yeah, playing on the heartstrings a little bit. And uh, even and he he wasn't happy because I chucked a load of his stuff out. And the, the son, I said, oh, what do we do with that? He said, oh, just get rid of it. So I burnt a lot of the stuff. Oh, no. And he had like um, like loads of furniture, old furniture and that there. And I'd just put a match to it and burn it because his son had told me to do it. But this was like quite sentimental, some of it to him. He said, oh, that's my channel. <laughs> I've just burned it. All. It's all torched. I'm like, oh, you no. You have had a mayor. I've had a mayor there. So he said, oh, uh, look, I'll give you a few days to go. So I'm like, shit. So I then started ringing around 
siren system. I'm looking at every industrial state. And as luck would have it, there was one up in siren um, not a million miles away from the Cotswold Water Park. But when I say the room was small, it's the size of this room. Uh, maybe Jeez. a touch narrower, touch narrower. Um, and it's tiny, absolutely tiny. So, yeah, it was, a, it was probably no bigger, a bit smaller than the garage I've just come from. But it was like two grand a year rent. I was yeah. It was the only thing available. So I had yeah. to make it work. So I was in there making bait in there. I had electric, stuffed all the ingredients in, had it floor to ceiling. Had to, I, was on a, I was on a bit of a corner pitch. It was the worst, the worst unit ever. Just terrible. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. So it was a bit of a sun trap, got boiling hot. Oh. But I had to have the, I had to bore the bait outside the unit. So all the neighbours, the industrial units next to me weren't very happy. Oh, it was a nightmare. So I stayed in there uh, for, a, uh, for a year. But luckily, because I'm in the air and I'm producing bait, I'm selling more and more yeah. locally. And this enabled me to go, right, I need a bigger space. And that's... It's been a story ever since, really. The, the foundations have always been solid because I've let the company rush ahead and I've always caught it up. I've backfilled with infrastructure. So the company gets big and it dictates we only need a bigger space. And then, and, you go. And then we go. You know, so that's all. I've never done it the other way and gone, oh, I think I'm going to be there in five years' time, size-wise. Well, let, let's, let's invest there and get that and, and then try and work towards that. I've always done it the opposite way, which is a bit more stressful, but it just means for me – starting a business. My biggest fear is it all come crashing down yeah, around my ears. And it's, that's always been the case. And I've talked to um, a few other guys that run their business and that is core central to um, the driver it still keeps people pushing. That's just the fear of it all crashing. And as you get bigger in scale um, and you employ people, it, it, although you think, yeah, you've made it and yes, you, you're, you're making a living, but there's always that fear and you're supporting other people's livelihoods now, you know, other people's paying their mortgage off the back of what I pay them at Baitworks. So I, I've always got that fear, but that's a massive driver and you've just got to turn it. You can't be anxious about it. I turn that into a positive and it, it, it's one of the drivers to make sure I do what I, what I do. It gets me up in the morning, gets me up at night as well. There's all, yeah, I, as you say, it's a double-edged sword with regards to that, but you can see that sort of single track mindedness flow through whatever you've done pretty much. Like it, it is a risk. And you talked about a pivotal moment where there was a car crash, you split with an ex missus and you took this journey into bait works, but it, it, that's been very single minded in terms of driving it. You talked about the, the fear you talked about your fishing in terms of even now there is that, that switch, that fishing head that is very focused when you've got those two yeah. hours, it's intense. Yeah. It's yeah. full on. But the goalkeeping is yeah. the same, isn't it? Like in the it's, early days, that was, that was very tunnel vision. Yeah. And it, it's whatever it is. It's whatever I do. My mum always said as a, as a young boy, then um, she couldn't get me to do, to do anything. Cause I was very stubborn unless I wanted to do it. And she said, if once yeah. I was into something, that was it, bang, I was on and I, you couldn't get me off it. And I think it's, it says as it has its pluses and its negatives. Cause I'll sit down watching TV with the missus. And if I'm into whatever it is, a TV, I'm just, I totally focus on it. And the missus will ask me something. I can't hear her because I'm just so, so tuned in. Sounds just, like bliss. It is nice. <laughs> it is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Or pretend to. Yeah. 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 So Mate. I've always, it's always been, it's always been like that, but it's, I, I, I just know the way I am. So I've got to be careful if I channel that into fishing too much. So yeah. sometimes I'm a bit scared to set myself a target of, a fish and I'm thinking, cause I know how much time and effort and dedication you need to put in to maybe achieve that unless you get very lucky. And I just know that's going to take away from, 
family and from the business. So I think you've done it in a very constructive way, mate. You you talk there about obviously the company and and that sort of financial provision stuff. You've got a family now, so parameters have changed. You're fishing, yes, it's still there. You've still got some onus and some time and you make it work. You've now got, if you like, your fish rearing, which is I know has always been there, and your sort of you, you sort of group with regards to restocking lakes around the water park as well. Yeah. Which you put which is again, it's a constructive use of that of being able to put those heads on and juggle life, which is not always easy if you're doing two things, family and work. You've no. got about sixty five things, mate. Yeah, there's, there's a lot yeah, a lot of things going on, but I I like to be busy. Um <laughs> but you, there's a danger you can spread yourself too thin, particularly when you're trying to focus on many different things and juggle you can wear too many hats, you know, that's so I've got to be a bit selective where you where you put your put your energy, and I, I do struggle f- from that from times to times, and that's why sometimes on the fishing front I'll be really intense for a little period, and then it get then I say right turn turn it on or turn it off, you know, because I know that if I continue like that I'll be wanting on the bank, I'll be wanting to be on the bank all the time, and I know something will suffer, and there's a lot of things going on at the moment with the business and the way it's grew and what we want to achieve. A lot of things going on personally with, um, uh, we, I've, I've managed to fortunately get myself a position where I want to dig my own lakes. So there's, there's a lot there as well, all coming up. So I've got, there's a lot of things happening in the next sort of two or three years and I've got to put energy into it because it's, and focus into it because that will dictate the rest of my life. Yes. So, I, so I try, you know, you go through life and you sort of care for what you wish for, but you can in some ways orchestrate your life how you want it to be. Um, particularly when you have your own business. So I feel fortunate to be in the position I am. Don't get me wrong, it's took a lot of hard work to get to even get to this position. It's far gone past my expectations, what it ever could be. Um, but because of that, then I've got I feel a responsibility, not only for not only to myself, but also my family to make sure they're okay and to and to bring time back into my life because I want to be be around and be healthy and mm. and have have time with with the family and quality time and not just be work 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 or fish 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 but you've got to have balance and I find you have balance between work life business loved ones family and all all of that and you, you you've got to have certain time allocated for all of those things and keep them all a good level when you start putting all your energy into one something else goes down it's keeping all your buckets full isn't it i can honestly it's it's incredibly inspirational mate and it, it, there's no look about it mate you you've put an incredible amount of grafting across the board in various different factors and the success you deserve every single bit of it mate and i'm sure there will be in the future and i look forward to having you back in in a short period of time and and looking at maybe what you've done with lakes etc because yeah, mate, you're a you're a force of nature, mate. You've done an incredible oh, well, job. No, well, you have, you have. Oh, thank you. That's um, very very kind of you to say, but I I don't know. I think anyone in a in a similar situation, once particularly with with your business, once it starts getting traction and you start, it's just you know, it's just a you just put more energy into it. And why why wouldn't you? Because you can then dictate your hours and and time and that. So the good thing about COVID is it's it's born a lot of new businesses, which is amazing. You're both from fishing and yeah, yeah, and those people have started things at home and, and that's now manifested into it. So, you know, the internet, we're in a we're in a golden age at the moment, I think, for the internet, particularly the last ten years, particularly the last five years, it's never been so easy to start your own business because the bar to entry, you know, in terms of going back a, a, only a few years ago, where how do you advertise? How do you reach these people? It was all magazines and so expensive and, and I was an early adopter of uh, YouTube, um, Facebook, and that's been part of the secret to the success is, is adopting those platforms early 
uh, YouTube. I was doing videos back in 2005, six, you know, back way before we blogging or doing anything. And, and the only regret is I wish I probably put more energy into that because look what it is today. It's, yeah. it's a main driver of most companies now. But what I'm saying is, is people could set up, you know, a, a t-shirt company with slogans and logos and you're on the strength of your creative mind about that. And you could, you could be advertising that on Facebook tomorrow and selling the next day. And that's, that's the age we live in now. So there's never a better time to start a business. And so what if it doesn't, if it fails, you know, the bar to entry is so low now, you're not investing thousands of thousands of pounds into it. You can start off small and um, yeah, more and more people are, are doing that. So, so why not? Love it, mate. Mate, thank you so much for coming in. Before I let you go, I've got some quick fire questions, mate. You are not prepped in any way for these. Okay. Oh, so uh, let's see how fresh you are, mate, after Jeez. I've pecked your head. Yeah. Uh, right. One boilie for the rest of your days, a fish meal or a bird food? Oh, fish meal. Easy. Yeah, I thought that'd be easy. Uh, never grow carp again at all or never go and catch carp again? Oh, that's a tough one. I started you off easy and smashed you with it. I still I, I still love the, the catching of carp. I don't think anything's going to beat that. So yeah, catching... Catching the carp. I think if you ask me the question in 20 years' time... Might be different. Yeah, we reverse probably, yeah. Fair play. Uh, three celebs you'd take fishing and why? They can be past or present. Oh, God. Three celebs. Oh, um, I think Paul Gascoigne would be have to be on there. Yeah? Love Pat. Yeah, Paul Gascoigne. Although I know he's having his troubles now. If I could take the 90s, <laughs> Paul Gascoigne, yeah. he'd be he up there. He loves a bit of fishing as well, Gazza. He does. Yeah, no, he does. Um should say Dave Seaman because I fished with Dave Seaman. Legend. I Goalkeeper, fished. yeah, of course. He was he was down on a, a Willow Park fishing when I was with the carp site and I, I was fishing, he was next to me. So we, we've I've got a picture of me and him holding a carp so many years ago. Oh, goalkeeper bounce. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bit of the union. But I won't say Dave, but um, yeah, he should probably be in there instead of Paul Gascoigne. Um, another, another celebrity. Oh, jeez. Probably Lee Mack, probably one of my favourite comedians. Absolutely sharp. He's got about as much energy as you, mate. What, Lee Mack? Yeah, mate. Mate, he's, I love Lee Mack. He's brilliant. No, I'm thinking of Lee Evans, who's got the energy. Oh, Lee Evans. Well, yeah, he's a Bristol, well, he's down my way. Yeah, yeah. That's where I've got the energy from. I'm thinking you and your old bake factory, mate, sweaty. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, Lee does sweat, doesn't he, as well? He does sweat on the blame stage. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And one more celebrity. Um... Probably Uragon Campos, the Mexico goalkeeper. That's Why not? Shout. It's bringing back. That's I hope he's still shout. alive. That's uh, a shout. It was the goalkeeper that did the old scorpion kick. Oh, uh, oh is it Gita, wasn't it? Yeah, Higita. Colombian goalkeeper. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, drum and bass or country and western? <sighs> Jesus. I like all genres. I like a little bit of drum and bass. Sort of over yeah. country music probably just edges it. But I love everything. It's not very Cotswolds, mate. Drum it's and not, bass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it isn't. Uh, person you'd choose to catch a fish to save your life, mate? Um, a carp, that is. A carp. I would say, uh, as an angler you probably wouldn't have heard of, um, it's a toss-up between, it's a toss-up between, it's a toss-up between two or three. Um, there's a guy called Stu uh, Morris. Right. Have you heard of him, Stu Morris? Might no. not have. He is just an exceptional, one of the best anglers I've seen for catching the carp quickly, working it out quickly, and he can fish off the top, in the middle, on the bottom, zigs, you know, and, and, and everything. So I've watched, I've watched him fish. He's got limited time. 
Um, he's uh, worked, uh, he used to work at Honda, but he doesn't anymore, but he used to get little out pockets of hours here and there. Not, not many at all, but yeah, he, he, everywhere he's gone, he's caught fish from. There's not a lake he won't catch fish from. Um, just a very, very perceptive, uh, right time, right time in. And, uh, yeah, just a very, very good angler, but he's, he's caught billions of fish, never really publicized it. He's been associated with a couple of companies, mm. but, um, yeah, just a very, very good angler. I, I, we fished, um, uh, farriers, I fished farriers at the same time. It was, a, it was an absolute nightmare because he was, his shift work, he'd always get there before me. Yeah. So he'd always get, he was just the way it worked out. I'd finish work and I'd get there in the afternoon. He'd been there since 11. So he had gone around and clumped him off the top on floaters and he'd have like four or five over there and that, and I'll be picking up the pieces. So I'd turn up and thinking, oh shit, I'll try to go the opposite way where he's been. Um, but yeah, just, uh, just naturally just very, very good. And you, you just find that with some, there's a, there's a few anglers who sort of, Tick that uh, that box, but yeah, he was probably and still is probably yeah the best the best I've seen. Love that um, history cup. You wish you'd caught. Um, probably for me, uh, probably every set. There's a lot of people that say Yately in the dustbin. That's pro- mm, probably one. one. Uh, just a lovely, lovely shape, head, fins, everything. So that one's got to be up there. But probably the um, a bit closer to home for me. The the resident from Coat Water oh, Park. Yeah been very close on that i caught a number of fish over my years fishing coat water that one eluded me unfortunately um no longer we don't think it's no longer it's never been found dead but that was just a great shape really iconic carp just the shape i really like it had a big big wrist on it you know it just had everything that fish and it had, uh, steeped in history and um yeah it wasn't sorely missed unfortunately because um yeah that lake's uh, unfortunately in in its uh, decline which is a real shame uh which is the better carp the croc the Burfield Common. Seen both and photographed both, actually. You photographed the Burfield? Oh, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, when Scotty yeah. had it. Yeah, when Scotty had it. Uh, what was that? Two years ago? Was it two or three? Two or three. Well, has it been out since? I'm trying to think. I'm trying I don't to... think it has. Don't Not think that it I has. know of. Yeah, don't think it has. But um, yeah, I remember going up to see the Burfield. Got the phone call off Scotty. I was fortunate enough to go up and see a number of the carp from Burfield because he would, uh, he would ring me to come and do the photos. Oh, so I'd be traveling up there sometimes in the winter. Um, and he had some real special ones from there. And, uh, he said the Burfield common, obviously when, when, when it happens. So anyway, he, he rung, I was, I was in the factory with Mike actually, and we was, uh, getting ready to do something. I can't remember what we was doing, but meeting about something. <laughs> and we'd seen the phone go and it's Scotty. And I'm like, Oh, Scotty's it's a funny time to ring sort of mid afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, oh, wait, 11 o'clock. And uh, he rings up, he said, oh, I don't want to steal his thunder here because he's probably got you know, slideshow and everything, so I better gloss over a lot. But anyway, he said, oh, come on up. So I've, I've come on up with Scotty. I said, mate, he's got the beautiful comments. This is amazing. So we've gone up there. I felt huge pressure to get the photo. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Like, you know, there's one thing going up and photographing 30s and 40s, but the Burfield Common, the one fish that he's gone there, you know, to catch, that is, there's a there's a bit of pressure there to go and deliver and, you know, me and Mike have got there and I, I thought he would have rung like, you know, other people. There'd be like, you know, a whole host of people. No, he just rang me and I said, can I bring Mike? Because he's, you know, yeah, yeah, bring Mike. So there's two of us there. Oh, that's it. mate. Oh, it's huge pressure. And the, the where he caught it from, the, the light's all dappled and I'm like, oh, oh no. no yeah. Stuff of it was horrendous. But I managed to see that fish and just the length of it is just colossal. I don't know if anyone's measured it. Someone probably has, but it's, it's a hugely impressive fish when you see it on the bank. Um, yeah, so we managed to do do pictures of it. I actually had to get in the water in Burfield. Like, I was up to, I was, well, I say I was up to my nose in water. I was up to my nose in water with my camera just above. Because I had 
the best way was to photograph it, me out in the water and him back on the bank. Yeah, some was out. I had, you know, because otherwise it'd bleach out. And yeah. then if you get in the dappled, it just didn't do it justice. So yeah, we got some water shots and you know, um they were they come out amazing. So pressure Good. off and video well and all done. sorts, but that's that's Scottish story to 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 sort of relive and tell. But um yeah, so that one, seeing the fish on the bank, that was impressive. The the croc, you know, I've got affiliation with the with the croc in terms of my bait company particularly when I first come up here, that fish was a growing fish all the way through to what it is today. Yeah. So I've seen it from 30 pound all the way up to when it done its first uh, capture at 40 pound. That was to uh, a guy called Roger Williams um, who rang me and I went over and photographed it. That was in November. Um, first, uh, first 40 for the lake. So a really iconic yeah, moment. So I was really lucky in that. And, you know, a lot of my bait has gone in around the Cotswold water pot, which has you know, helped in some way to the, hopefully the fish weights, particularly the sort of the fish meal based ones. Um, so to answer the question, I've gone around the houses here a little bit. On it. I like this. You've thought about it. I've, <laughs> like, I've liked about hearing it. your inner workings. Well, the, uh, I suppose the croc, because um, in a day and age when everything's documented, there's a bit of mystery there because that one was stocked in 90, it was over 98 or 2000. I've got records and I've got a lot of stuff written down at home. So it escapes me, but it's, it's around that time. And it would have come from um, a, a lake not too far from Redmire. So there's a good chance that that's an actual Leany style carp mm. because of the stockings. And you look at Donald Leany, uh, the Surrey Trout Farm, they had a division up in Nellsworth, which is Stride, which is up um, where about a mile from where this fish came from, a couple of, a few miles, not, not far. So it stands to reason that those fish, they look incredibly similar, may have been, but that day and air is mystery. And when it came when it came in, it was very like quite a runty looking fish. Right. And those are the ones like, you know, if I know anything about fish farming and you look at, look at all the British records over the, over the years, everything has gone big. Invariably, they've always come from another lake right. or they've come from a, a harsher environment to where they've gone. And when you hold fish back to that extent, they, they have an aggressive nature of them to, to feed, to feed or to die. And they've struggled all their life in stock ponds or, ditch ponds where they're getting fed maggots or whatever you put them if you get them at the right age and they still got years ahead of them to grow they boom they boom there you go and you just get some of these freaks and that's where they come from and you you look at mary that was moved from rainers i believe you've yeah, got yeah. two-tone un, unknown history where that came from the black mirror that was moved in at a, at a weight you know mary you know all those all those fish that i mentioned there they're they're all fish that have been moved in and then gone on to get huge and massive. So two-tone, you know, there's yeah. there's loads there. So don't discount those fish. And those are the ones that can surprise you. And the, and the croc was no different. It went in and it just put on weight consistent, consistent, consistent. And it's such a, a lovely looking fish. Yeah, it's a cool looking fish. It is. It? It's, it's, it's old now. It's an old, old fish. When it was stocked, probably no one knew exactly how old it was when it went in because you, you stock a 11 pound fish that could have been stunted for 15 years. You mm. just don't know, do you? Or, or held back for 15 years, I should say, not stunted. Um, but they go into those environments, particularly on the Cotswold Water Park, where they've got acres of water, low stock density, and they just go a bit mental, don't they? They just eat <laughs> and eat and eat yeah. and they just change body shape and they just look amazing. I love those stories. And probably because of that, because I've got an affinity with the Cotswold Water Park, I'd, I'd say, I'll probably say the croc. Yeah. Nice. Final question. A night out on the bank or a night in with the missus, mate? Ooh, well, I've had plenty of nights in with the missus because of uh, babies and everything. You know, my bedtime's now about nine o'clock with the missus <laughs> watching TV. So we've had countless of them. So 
Get me right. out. Get me out on the bank anytime I can, yeah. Mark Bryant, you're an absolute star. Thank you guys for watching and listening. I'll be back soon with another Nash Off the Hook podcast. Until then, Mark Bryant, thank you so much for coming in, mate. Pleasure. <laughs>